L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it... Boy Meets World House! Take a listen. Are there any moments or spots on any of the sets we worked on over the seven years that you guys felt more at home that were like your little spots on the set you like to hang out? I'm afraid it was the sink. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. You had to act <laughs> by the sink a lot. Yeah. I was behind the counter. Yeah. Right. Doing business constantly. Uh-huh. Mom stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> Disciplining you Amazing. in some way. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here. And I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Uh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast where we talk about things falling apart. And this week we're talking about our ability to have things that that don't get co-opted by uh, fascists falling apart. Garrison, hello. Take us take us away. Yes. So today we w- we're going to talk about kind of why maybe it's great not to cede any aesthetic ground to fascists anytime it's uncomfortable. Um, and to do so, we've brought on uh, someone who I found on Twitter who wrote a very, very great article about some kind of ongoing debate and drama around like anarchist symbols um, and fascists trying to use symbols. Um, uh, but I'm, we are talking to uh, Black Ram. Hello. Hey, how's how's things? I'm I'm I'm, I'm actually I'm actually doing okay. I've been I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. So yes, if um if people are unfamiliar, it looks like the past few weeks. People have really freaked out about uh, an eight-pointed star. People really, really seem concerned about it. Um, yeah, and- this has a lot tied in with what's been happening in Ukraine because 
as always happens when there's a new story that has anything to do with the the far right, um, people got acquainted with some symbols that they had not been aware of before, particularly yeah. the the Sonnenrad, which is a common symbol that you'll see on members of the Azov Battalion, kind of some other far right organizations in Ukraine, as well as elsewhere. You know, the uh, the Christchurch shooter wore a Sonnenrad, and then they started identifying all sorts of things that they felt looked like son and rads everywhere yeah. on the internet and things kind of spiraled from there well and i think there's actually a little bit more to it than that well, well we're gonna get yeah. into we're yeah. gonna get into black ram's article here shortly but yeah i kind of first want to just briefly go through i think why it's this kind of why this debate happened now because the debates happened before but it's never gotten this like intense a, a big part of this is tied to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and everyone wanting to play like Where's Waldo with symbols being like, can you spot the sun in red on the on the pictures of the Azov battalion? Um, and I think the other so like so everyone's already kind of looking for symbols uh, as like a fun game. But the other thing that's kind of happening is because of the Russia-Dugin connection. Dugin's like a political uh, fascist writer who's a very influential inside Russia. Um, but because of the Russia-Dugin connection, uh, some people are now seeing uh, Dugin's symbol, the Eurasian uh, square, for the first time, right? And now that they've seen the square, they're seeing anarchists using the Chaos Star, which looks a little similar. They're, they're not the same. But they're because they just because they just learned about the Eurasian Square. Now they're seeing the Chaos Star, and they've never really noticed the Chaos Star before. Maybe they're st they just don't really care about what symbols random people use. But now that they see the Eurasian symbol and they see the Chaos Star, they're making this connection here, and they think this is a new development, right? They think this is like like they're they're asking themselves like why are anarchists suddenly using this fascist symbol, um, which they either think to themselves or they think out loud on Twitter.com. Uh, which is really rich because I mean anarchists have been using the Chaos Star longer than Dugan's been using his Eurasian Square, and if you have been watching anarchists for any amount of time on the internet, I know you you would have seen them using the Chaos Star. Um, it's not a, it's not a new development by any means, but because everyone's trying to like where's Waldo and osent their way through the war, they're they're kind of drawing these uh, false connections. Which is kind of unfortunate because there is actually some interesting things to talk about in terms of how Dugan did kind of uh, base his design off of uh, Michael Moorcock's uh, Chaos Star and a whole bunch of stuff around like why anarchists use the Chaos Star. And, you know, there's a, whole, there's, there's a nice debate ha to be had there around fascists always inserting themselves in these subcultures and trying to gain ground, whether it be like the punk scene, the industrial music scene, uh, you know, online gaming, right? Fascists always try to do this. Uh, just often we want to, we try to push back on that, right? Like Nazi punks fuck off. But it seems sp specifically with the Chaos Star, a whole bunch of people just want to cave and let them kind of take this symbol, which is, I don't, I think not not a not a great instinct um but to to kind of to kind of talk about this and other kind of background stuff uh like i said we brought on a uh, black ram hello uh to help to help talk about this so yeah what kind of prompted you to write your article i guess on um, you know watching this debate kind of go down what what kind of actually just like what was the, what was the straw that broke the camel's back and being like okay now i need to write like a decently long article on this topic I think I've said this on like uh, on uh, on Twitter a little while before writing the actual article, but um, I think the, uh, the the spark was a thread from a guy you may or may not have seen him around. He's like somebody. He's like 
well, Dems suck, but 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 he has like anarchist leading on his bio, which I guess sort of which I guess sort of communicates the idea that he would probably like anarchism if he did not consider it to be impractical. Sure. Yeah. But anyways, I actually I kind of wavered on the idea of covering it at all. I thought it would I thought it would only go for like a few days. And it was sort of a Johnny come lately by maybe a day or so, admittedly. But I figured it would be sort of ephemeral. But there's things I sort of kept seeing. But in the midst of writing it, there was like some tanky who went even further and made the link to the Chaos Star. And I think it was the logo of the Sith Empire from certain Star Wars yeah. media. Yeah, it, we'll, it, talk, it, we'll it, talk about that. <laughs> yeah. It's like... It's it's like well it's like well one has six lines and they're not even arrows they're just like uh, blocks in like a sort of hexagonal shape but it's like the same guys really like the idea that the logo of the Ukrainian armed forces is actually the Iron Cross yeah, uh, yeah. a big chunk of this I I think kind of the prehistory of why this became such a specific problem started with. Kind of unite the right in the period after that, where you had all these new fascist groups on the ground in the United States, and they all had their symbols. And I, you know, I was a part of this to to, to the degree that there's some culpability here. Um, a, a number of researchers, including myself, were warning people like, "Hey, there's some like symbols that people are are taking to right wing gatherings, and they're claiming to be normal conservatives, and these are." These are symbols of groups like the Phineas Priesthood or groups like different kind of fascist organizations, and you might not be aware uh, of them. And so you should know what kind of these, you know, the Kekistan flag or whatever means, because people are trying to kind of signpost their sympathy to these extreme groups. And that I think that was important because the, the, those people were legitimate problems, and um, they were trying to kind of stealthily hide their very radical right-wing sympathies behind some like obscure uh, images. But the problem is that it got a lot of people looking, not just looking for fascist symbols and everything, but also looking for the clout that comes from like pointing something like that out. And I think that's, that's kind of the root of a lot of these, these problems. And it's not surprising that it happened with Dugan's symbol. There's no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, Cause it, it does like, again, if you're just like kind of a casual observer, it does look a lot like the chaos star. And, it's and, a, and it makes it's an eight pointed star with arrows. Yeah. And it makes sense. If you know anything about Dugan's philosophy, Dug- Alexander Dugan is a, um, essentially a Russian political theorist and author. Um, there's a lot that's kind of said about how close he is to Putin. He certainly was at one point closer to Putin there's a lot of debate as to whether or not Putin kind of saw him as more of like a useful uh, uh, person to kind of a useful propaganda organ or or whether or not he really bought into what Dugan was saying. But Dugan is and was a really big advocate of like what, what he called like multipolar um, yeah. uh, international politics. Yeah, multipolarity, which is this idea that like the United States should not be a um, the hegemonic power in the world, right? Which it kind of was after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's this idea that there should be a bunch of equivalent powers, um, which is, number one, you can see how a lot of folks on the left would be drawn in by that, even if they weren't particularly fans of, of Putin. Just the idea that like, oh, well, yeah, it's it's been a problem that the United States is this massive hegemonic power. Perhaps it would be better if there were a bunch of equivalent powers, 
Um, and, and it's one of those things where there's a logic to that, but it does kind of require ignoring all of the times in the past when we had a multipolar world and there was tremendous violence. <laughs> there's a root error in this sort of pathway, which sort of like refuses to deal with imperialism as a global system. Yeah. The reason that's a hang up is because you know, once you once you think of imperialism as a global system, you at you then have to move on to the idea that it's a global system that then has to be dismantled globally. Yeah. You can't quite do that with capitalism because it implicates nations that are supposed to serve as like moments of world historic progress against like hegemonic capitalism. And it is one of those spooks of the mind that people kind of have to do away with, which the anarchist movement sort of does pretty successfully because that mostly comes from the fact that it starts off from the position of like the state as an actual sort of structural presence. It's sort of funny that like the Marxist argument is usually down to like hyper-focus on the state and hierarchy is idealist, which is odd when you consider that hierarchy and the state are very much material in the same way that capitalism itself is. So it's like, a, it's it feels more like a sort of argument that's like, a, well, well, my materialism is the materialism. Your materialism is, in fact, a form of idealism. I think with with that, we're going to go on a a quick a quick uh, quick ad break, and then we're going to come back. and I think we should probably now talk about like the origins of the Chaos Star and and Michael Moorcock and Discordianism, um, and then we'll kind of get into the kind of current current debate on it uh, some more. So Ooh. yeah, anyway, here's here's here is some uh, here's some uh, ads for your ears coming in through the earwaves. Oh, yeah, yep, yeah, it's time. It's time mm-hmm. to talk about it's more time talk. for more. Okay, well, you beat me to it. <laughs> That's right, so, so, um, I guess, uh, uh Black Rev, you you actually did a pretty good succinct kind of things on how the Chaos Star came into being initially, uh, via Michael Moorcock. Uh, do you want to just like as brief briefly talk about kind of how he came up with the symbol for his uh, books and stuff? Okay, so full disclosure, I haven't really read the books themselves. I have not either. I've I've, I've read some Michael Moorcock. A lot of what a lot of my familiarity from him is pretty secondhand. One of the main things of that is Sirifungal being like this this sort of eighties band that I sort of think back to. Yeah, their whole vibe is Moorcock's works. But 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 anyways, the reason why the Chaos Star is this shape that it is is because what it's supposed to represent is meant to extend outward endlessly. Yeah. The counter symbol for order is a single a single upward pointing arrow. But yes. with, funny enough, when I thought about that, I thought about the Tiwaz rune or like tier. It doesn't really have the same meaning, but it's like upward pointing arrow in a symbolic context. That's the other example I have. Yeah. But but that upward pointing arrow signifies a straight and narrow expression of where possibility goes where potential sort of goes which creates structure the other the chaos star by contrast has like the eight directions are meant to represent all directions in a circular sort of space like a compass of sorts and the energy and the potential and possibility goes out in all of them with no set path no definite limit no boundaries it just goes it just sort of goes out there 
it's little wonder why the chaos magic movement embraced it for a very similar set of reasons. Yeah. Since even because even though it is kind of a myth that there's absolutely no rules in chaos magic, what is true is that you can explore very uh, a very very broad and like almost limitless range of like practical possibilities within that movement yeah. in that sort of within that sort of framework. Yeah. It's a it's a very like post structuralist postmodern view of it, but yeah, postmodern like, is how I've heard it described. And kind of getting back to the like what Moorcock was in brief, because I do think we need to kind of give an overview of who he is. Yes, um, he he's still alive. Um, last I checked, at least uh, he, is he is alive. I, I I heard him talking at an anarchist yeah. uh, sci fi conference a few weeks ago. If, if you didn't immediately know who he was, he is the most influential fantasy author you have not heard of. He 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 is like a George R R Martin level of influence, uh, if not significantly more so. Like he he's he some people will say he's the most influential fantasy author since Tolkien. Um, and uh, among his, you, you've, you've noted the band Sirith Ungol. If you've, if you've been a fan of war, of any of the Warhammer games, um, he's a huge influence on that because the thing that he created was kind of the, the concept of chaos as a, a sort of religious entity. And I'm not going to get into like the depths of the lore in his books, but a lot of it is about kind of the struggle between order and chaos. Um, and so the chaos star Ha, it, it, he he created that specifically like for this kind of theological like conflict that occurs throughout his books and it became the symbol of like one of the sides in Warhammer and this very like th there's tens of thousands of people who have the chaos star tattooed on them not because of Warhammer but or not because of um any political reason or because of chaos magic because they were fans of like Warhammer 40,000 or whatever yeah and it's in interesting because in the same time, when I first got into anarchist political theory, before long before I, I considered calling myself one, it was because I came across a book published by AK Press. Um, I think I bought it in 2007 called No Gods, No Masters. And it was it's a collection. A, a lot of people have a copy of this book in, in their house if they're into anarchist theory. It's like a collection of early anarchists, like people like Proudhon, um, essays on like kind of the first wave of anarchist political theory. And it has a chaos star on the cover um, because yeah. number one, Michael Moorcock is an anarchist, um, is a, is a uh, like as an, like is both an author and someone who identifies as an anarchist. Politically, and, yeah. Yeah, politically. And so his books ha were particularly popular among anarchists um, who don't always get a lot of chunks of pop culture. <laughs> to themselves <laughs> absolutely um and so he's he's it, it it was kind of from the beginning both this nerdy fantasy symbol that you could see you could you could put alongside a bunch of different shit from the lord of the rings not to i love the lord of the rings but like you you could see it as like sit like like somebody having a tattoo in elvish but it also took on almost immediately this dual meaning where it was actually representing aspects of anarchist political theory. And so it was put yep. and printed on like books that were about political theory and had nothing to do with fantasy. So it's, I can't actually, I cannot actually think of another symbol with a similar pedigree. It's, it's a really pretty unique case. It is, it is because it's, it's less of like an anarchist symbol, but more a symbol created and used by anarchists. Like it was, yeah. like, it, it was, it was, it was, it was invented by an anarchist. Um, it was, a, it, it was a symbol invented by an anarchist to represent something in fiction that had such resonance that people adopted it as an actual political symbol. Yeah, it honestly, like, it honestly doesn't require that much reach to see no. why 
people who would buy people who like the idea of there being no hierarchy and no state, mm -hmm. even if not total freedom, there's still like the most range that you could get that results in that negation. It yeah. doesn't take a lot of elaboration to see why the symbol expressly meant for the symbol of chaos would gain traction. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was talking with Margaret Kiljoy about this a while ago and she was like, yeah, like if you were in the 2000s and you were like a traveling crust punk, at least like 25% of people would have chaos star tattoos because yeah. that's because that like it's about yeah, yeah ex expanding out in all directions you know you, you're uh, the this the single arrow is law and order instead we're expanding out ever in in every possible way yeah um, i mean i have a chaos star tattooed on me and i i it, it's a it, it's it's for primarily ideological reasons as opposed to the fact that i spent my entire childhood <laughs> playing warhammer <laughs> um so so yeah, it's. I think now. So it is worth mentioning. So the Chaos Star was invented in the '60s by Michael Moorcock. Of course, there is. There's been other eight-pointed stars over the course of thousands of years of history. Yes, Jesus, um, of course. It is. It is. It is like a broad, like geometrical shape. Um, Every kind of star has meant something. <laughs> yes, but the the specific design was was made was made by Michael Moorcock. Um, and then because of because of Moorcock's like anarchist tendencies in fiction, his work was used or at least appreciated by a lot of the Discordians, which is also popular. Around the 60s, a lot of the Situationists. Um, and then as the Discordian and Situationist movement kind of morphed and started to kind of intermingle with parts of occultism, we have the Chaos Magic movement starting in the late 70s, which started also using the the chaos star which makes sense because like what robert you, you were talking about how it's like it's not like it's almost like personifying chaos as like a thing to worship um which is actually a big part of early chaos magic text is is like like reveling in the idea of like chaos as like a primordial god which there's there's a lot of primordial gods um in like the actual like world you know like if you look like through through histories of various cultures like chaos is one of the original primordial gods so it is there is a big part of that in early chaos magic books about kind of looking at chaos as this like this very ancient force that should be kind of respected and i think that that is of that is a big part of why the chaos magicians started using uh, the the star. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of crossover between like sci-fi writers like Robert Anton Wilson um, and Michael Moorcock, who then Robert Anton Wilson was very influential in the chaos magic movement. So you you can see how this gets carried over from like anarchist sci-fi to chaos magic, and then because it's in chaos magic, it gets way more visibility. So then it starts then you start seeing it inside more more like underground anarchist scenes, um, and then. So around around this time, Dugan was starting his political career, and he was he was he was dabbling in a lot of various like occult circles himself. Right now, he's he's more of like a traditionalist, uh, like a more like a Christian traditionalist. That is kind of his primarily that is his, like his that is his primary kind of occult um, interest. As long as it could be called a cult. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not worth getting too much into the weeds on on Dugan at this point. I think people, but I, I think it's it's, it's worth yeah. mentioning, like like he like he because he obviously did rip the he did take inspiration from the Chaos Star to make his own version of it. Yeah, he's um, certainly a because guy he who was had in those same circles, occultic leanings and and an, a degree of knowledge. I think again. Like with a lot of things, a lot of things about Dugan are overstated, including his like closeness to Putin, because he's yeah. this really easy. In part because he's like so prolific, and and there's a lot available on him in English. It's really easy to kind of tie everything happening in in Russia to Dugan to, to him. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that's kind of a, a degree of what's happening here. There's a website I've forgotten the name of, 
but I think it had like a bunch of like online reproduction of Dugan's various writings from the nineties, all sorts of weird shit about occultism. And yeah. And yet I do think that there's a very obvious gulf between the Dugan of that weird eccentric, like esoteric Nazi sort of phase of like his relative youth versus today where he frames his entire rationale for multiplorality as a kind of Christian, a Christian crusade against a hegemony that he legitimately believes to be a satanic empire. He has basically said that, and it's not the only thing he considers satanic. Like, it, I, I, we, we should point out that, like, one of the one of the main forces that were uh, that were going like against Pussy Riot were Eurasianists at that at that time, and he called them like devils and witches, and taught his followers to show up with pitchforks. People in the West don't really understand them, so you get guys like, well, you get both Alexander Reed Ross describing him as an adherent of chaos magic, and some guy from the National Review referring to him as the leader of a satanic cult somehow. Yeah. And and boy, I mean, there's a long history of people liking to flat liking to flatten um fascist movements with an occultic tradition to just Satanism. We're not gonna talk about that at length, but it <laughs> whenever whenever you hear people talking about a problem and like they reduce it to it's Satanists, you should be a little on edge because usually they're wrong, or at least incomplete. Um, and they just have have kind of over anyway. We we don't need to get terribly into that. The only, only only reason I wanted to bring that up is because like this is around the same time that people that are fascists were trying to enter in a lot of different political like yes. subcultures, whether it be like the punk scene and industrial music, um, including like the the occult it's scene. What fascists like, just, do because that that is like their primary means, right? Like they they try to like they are an aesthetic driven movement. They try to co opt any aesthetic and use it for their own gains and to. To kind of overlook the anarchist origins of this thing just because fascists tried to co-opt it at some point, I think is very silly. Well, because then, like, what are you going to throw away all punk music? Like, come on, or, or even like, or even like crosses. Like, a yeah. lot of fascists still use variations of Christian crosses that still have essentially political Christian meanings. That I'd probably still assume that the majority of religious fascists do lean on some kind of Christianity. And to the extent that there's neo-pagans involved, there's sort of yeah. a minority. There's a couple of things that this is like. One of them would be kind of in the United States fascist co-option of, of the, the flag of the United States, which we can talk a lot about like the fact that the United States is an imperialist power um, and the genocides done on under that flag without, it, while still acknowledging that Attempts by fascist movements to co-opt it as a purely fascist symbol are problematic in part because that symbol, the United States flag, has a lot of power to a lot of people. And so if you if the fascists kind of co-opt it totally, um, that's a harmful thing. That's a thing that can like allow them to get their brain worms into more people, which doesn't like, mean like you should take and wave the U.S. flag. But it does mean that like. It, it, it's just a matter of don't you don't have to let them take the ground, you know. Um, and I, I think on a kind of a different angle, one of the things I think about a lot is uh, the first time I went to India, seeing especially in a lar large parts of India, you'll see swastikas hanging over the doors of many many houses all over the place. You'll see them hanging from cars. You'll see they're they're constant things, and it's only unsettling if you 
have allowed yourself to forget that the swastika is a symbol that the Nazis stole from another culture, co-opted and invested with a new meaning. Um, you should see Japan. Yeah, you should, yeah, and and why should people in uh, uh, other parts of the world who have been using it for a totally different purpose for thousands of years, why should they be like, well, I guess we don't get this now. <laughs> also, like, or like it. also, it's like in India has had to deal with their own fascists yeah. as well. Yes. Like, well, yes. Like- <laughs> and, and, and there's, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're delving into a lot of very deep topics because there's a lot to be said about how the fact that the Nazis took the swastika led to degrees of sympathy within areas of Indian culture that allowed some fascist ideology to creep in. And like, that's also tied to the fact that both the Nazis and a lot of Indian nationalists were fighting against the British Empire. It's all very complicated, right? So we don't need to. The, the guys, guys like V. D. Savarkar did, who were founders of the Hindutva mm-hmm. movement, yeah. did openly praise Hitler. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of easy for some people to think of it as entirely motivated by religion, but his whole concept of nationhood is entirely racial. Yeah, it says himself that it has nothing to do with religion. So, yeah, and it's 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 one of those things. If you actually want to understand things and engage with them in a useful area, you have to understand that history and grapple with it without like looking at a twenty five hundred year old Hindu temple and going, well, I guess they were Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag problematic. Yeah. Uh, the, The last thing I actually want to talk about is how. How how the kind of debate around symbols and use of symbols has just kind of morphed into just fast jacketing anarchists in general mm-hmm. and worrying about like, oh, the fascists are secretly infiltrating the anarchists and they're going to turn anarchists into fascists, which is pretty silly because, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to turn anyone into fascists, I think anarchists are one of the hardest people to do to do that too this is there's this is a lot of other people it's way easier to convince to become fascists than although when are, anarchists go fascist they tend is, to go fascist pretty hard <laughs> well yeah, yeah but it, it, the, the, the type of like fear-mongering mm-hmm. around it is still it's really frustrating because like i'm looking at yes. all these I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all these tankies like fast jacketing anarchists for using us for using a symbol created by anarchists which has been used by anarchists for decades right um but then you also have like tanky superstar Caleb Malpin regularly hanging out uh. with like like Malpin regularly hangs out with Dugan. Um and then you have someone who's like another like pretty like popular like like tanky influencer uh, like uh, Ben Norton who openly uses du- Dugan's multipolar theory, right? And so if if and if if you're looking for the most visible example of fascist and nationalist rhetoric trying to enter into leftism, you should look at like the growing like patriotic communists, you know, people oh, like, f- People like I Peter believe Coffin. it's referred to as like patriotic socialists, but yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the idea is basically the same. But yeah, it's like people like Peter Coffin and this like growing like patriot communist socialist kind of live streamer grift, um, which is like because like the easiest entry on the left for fascism is in forms of nationalist authoritarian communism, right? It's like you know that 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 is, that is how you get like national socialism, right? It's uh, so, like they just had this like super cringy uh, Nosbill convention just a few weeks ago with, uh, with some of the best moments on Twitter <laughs> up until Will Smith slapped that guy. Yeah, but like you know, you have you have like Coffin and Malpin hanging out, and like Malpin regularly hang, regularly hangs out with Dugan. Like, so, like if you're gonna if you if you want to be watching out for like a fascist creep, maybe you should direct it towards the people just like doing it out in the open and not fast jacketing like queer anarchists who have been doing the thing that they've been doing for like decades. 
I guess one of the last things I will mention is uh, the the hilarious incidents with the Sith Empire thing of people just fully of like yes. fully getting consumed by their own brainworms and trying to insist that a Star Wars symbol uh, is secretly a fascist chaos star, um, and then doing the same thing to the Warhammer symbol. Um, it is yeah. Which, it is I, I, in in. I mean, it, it's funny because like in. Star Wars, it is a fascist symbol, right? That is that's not a yeah. fascist symbol in the real world, but it is within the world of of Star Wars. That but is absolutely a fascist but symbol. But it's also it's also not a chaos star. It's not a chaos star. Uh and in Warhammer it is a chaos star, but it's not a fascist symbol. It's actually an anti-fascist symbol within the world you of could, Warhammer. You can basically argue that, yeah. Yeah. Because it is it is just frustrating looking at all these people being like trying to play trying to play the Where's Waldo game just to all like dunk on anarchists and mm-hmm. It's it just it kind of shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the history of anarchist culture, um, and the history of like anti-fascist anarchists. You know, most of the anti-fascists that I know use the chaos star because it's a because it's a red symbol. It looks mm-hmm. rad. It mm-hmm. looks cool. Um, and yeah, trying to like in, insisting that we must cede this ground and let fascists use anything that they think is aesthetically cool. I think is uh is a first of all like a losing battle to actually just like. To just to just to, to to start that now, I think is uh, yeah. would have some pretty bad implications for fascism and its use of aesthetics. You don't have to give them things just because they want to take those things. It makes sense that you would see like tankies do it because then, if you're a tanky, you could basically get into a position where you can basically discard all sorts of symbolisms and just replace everything with like old like Soviet symbology or something. Which is which is obviously not tied to any atrocities that have happened. <laughs> no. Right. Uh, oh, 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 oh! Incidentally, don't ever tell them about Georgia. Yeah, don't don't tell them about Georgia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Ukraine. <laughs> that giant lake that was like the largest lake in Europe that they turned into a pile of poison. You know, don't mention a few things. And Tr- Trotsky would be proud, considering he wanted to turn mountains into like city structure. I mean that that actually is one of the things I think Trotsky w- was on the right ball about. More Minas oh, Tiriths, more God. Minas Tiriths. Let's Tirith oh, up it. some mountains. <laughs> so, any 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 final thoughts on our lovely circular uh, chaos uh, chaos star? I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking of a, a quote from like uh, what was his name? Uh, Pablo Freire. I hope I've gotten that name right. Yeah. A, a quote I've seen going around that I think goes around something to the effect of when the point of education isn't liberation, the goal is to become the oppressor. Um, you could sort of, usually that quote is like relevant to like the material processes of like being inculcated into a capitalist system. So, so, so you can kind of make the most sense of it as basically like you are educated to become a boss instead of wanting to abolish all bosses. But on a, but on a micro level, you can sort of apply it to the, to the ways in which people, even in like radical spaces, sort of sort of become like self-styled cops, as it were. That I think is a phenomenon that a lot of the anarcho-nihilist tendency sort of responds to. Anyway, this is coming from a perspective that is sort of flirtatious towards anarcho-nihilism but not necessarily but it's like you could a lot of the interactions with like if like certain people demonstrate that 
there are some instances of it where I think I can't quite tell if it's Poe or not. Um, somebody, I saw somebody posted like a photo of themselves with like a like a jacket, and they had like the upside down cross and the inverted pentagram on board, and somebody, someone, somebody with like basically no followers who somehow blew somehow blew up when they posted that photo next to like a Nazi uniform to try and compare the, the inverted cross to a swastika or, or no, not if not a swastika, then like maybe some other part of the jacket and the, the pentagram to like the armband or something like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 And I to think this day, I'm still not sure if that was entirely serious. That's See, that's, that, that's the thing is like, we have to be careful. Like I, I don't like anarchist infighting. It's rarely useful. Um, and we have to be make, make sure to be watchful for like how much of it is just people trolling or people trying to prompt infighting just for the sake of infighting. Right. So if, if like, I tried for a long time to not engage in this debate because I don't like talking about this. Like I, I, I don't like infighting with anarchists. I, I don't like, I don't like having these types of debates. So hopefully the next time this debate starts, we don't need to because we can just we can just point to how this last one went and say, no, look, we clearly demonstrated that this is a this has a long history of use by anarchists and it was in, in, invented by anarchists and not start not start not and not start the debate again because. We we don't we we don't need to do it, and there's no telling if people are doing it sincerely, or people doing it ironically, or people just doing it just to get you know people upset. Um, and I mean, like, if you want to look at anarchists and look at okay, I where where is right wing people, where is fascists trying to kind of blend in with anarchists? Like, look at like Boogs, right? Look at NCAPs, right? These people who try to claim to be anarchists are very bad at actually blending in because they can't help themselves when they start talking about like the validity of anarcho capitalism or the validity of like small nation states. Like it's it is it is it is hard. It's hard to actually infiltrate anarchists. This is the thing that the FBI has said multiple multiple times. It's hard to actually do. So whenever fascists try to blend in, whether they're Boogaloo boys, they can't help but use their old like Boogaloo symbols. They can't help but just like like give hints. It is it it, it is astonishing how how bad they are at this thing. So they're also bad at like the protection that they claim to offer. Like there was a there was an article yeah. from like last year going over. Oh, going over. Well, part of it mentioned that they were basically at this like purported protest that they were supposed to offer protection from, and most and most of what they did was get drunk and like piss on the sidewalks. The, uh, yeah. the Boogaloo boys I've seen at actual protests who are like with like with like cops attacking protesters. The Boogaloo boys are the first ones to run because they're cowards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. Well. I guess. Oh, uh, where can where can people uh, yeah. Black Ram, Where can people find you online, and where can people uh, read your uh, read your article, uh, Chaos Nihilism and the Way of No Surrender? WordPress, basically. Um, I could I call the site a left heretical domain, but the, the but the link goes like my thoughts born from fire dot wordpress dot com. I actually try I, I actually tried changing the URL once I changed it to a left heretical domain. I think in two thousand thirteen fourteen, but I figured that. Doing so would fuck up all of the stats and whatever, so I just didn't bother. Well, thank thank you so much for kind of writing. The, I would I would say probably the most definitive stance on this debate at the moment, which we can always point point back to whenever this uh, inevitably m- comes up again in like a year or two. Because it's I've, gonna I've, come I've, up I've, again. I've like, seen it. I've seen it come up like every every few years. You see it. So thank you, thank you for that, and thank you for coming on. Um, 
yeah. If you want to follow follow us, you can do it at the thing. You know the thing. You know Twitter the thing. Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. You can look at my unhinged chaos tweets at Hungry Bowtie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 nothing is true and everything's permitted. Mm-hmm. Also, at Ascotinus is where I go to like sort of ramble about politics and occasionally the occult and other things. We do, we do, we do love a good, we do love a good ramble. All right, that 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 does it for us today. Uh, fuck fascists, Nazi punks, fuck off, etc., etc., etc. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the only podcast where the host asks all listeners and guests to provide their social security number and bank account number, (coughs) routing number, all that good stuff. Um, This is a podcast about how things aren't always great uh, and maybe are kind of falling apart a little bit. And and it has also not been, for the most part, a podcast about the expanded war in Ukraine um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, we have done some coverage of that, uh, but we've focused specifically on stories of individual people, and and that's generally where I feel like our strength is as a program. But people have been repeatedly requesting we do a little bit of a bigger picture look at what's gone on in that conflict. And so I have brought Aram Shambanian into the studio. Aram, how are you doing, buddy? 
Oh, not too bad, man. How you doing today? Fine and dandy like sour candy. Now, w- w- would you describe kind of your your uh, who you are and what you do and why uh, why you're you're someone people should listen to when we're talking about a conflict uh, like this? Because you are one of the people who, when everyone was like, "There's no way Russia will invade," was was saying, "Well, <laughs> it might happen." Yeah, I mean. Um... Well, I think one of the things that that sets me aside from a lot of other analysts out there is that I never thought I would become an analyst and I never thought that I would do this. Um, I It wasn't set in stone for me from the beginning. I thought I was going to be like a high school history teacher. And so I've always studied the world uh, in terms of reading books on different conflicts around the world. And, and I've tried to keep appraised on where these books have led to, right? So if I read a book about the second Congo war, it makes sense to then follow current events that are related to what happened after the second Congo war. Yeah. As a result, I followed things going on in Ukraine starting in 2014 with Yaromaidan um, and elsewhere in the world. But, but Ukraine has been one that I focused on pretty heavily because um, there's been a lot of information about Ukraine ever since 2014, because of how late the war happened in terms of, human history and in, in terms of recent conflicts, 2014 isn't that long ago. Um, and so uh, I started following it back then. And I think that if you combine modern open source tools, modern technology, some of the stuff that organizations like Bellingcat can do with traditional research and, and, and knowledge, some of the stuff that I've done in school, you have a really powerful tool to combat disinformation. Um, and I think that's one of the best tools we have to combat disinformation is wedding OSINT with traditional research. Um, but yeah. And yeah, when it comes to open source intelligence, um, the Ukrainian war is actually kind of one of the, it's not the conflict where that really started to become a thing that would probably be the Libyan civil war when when that um, began to be something people were talking about in a, a big way. But the Ukrainian, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in particular in, in 2014 um, is really where open source intelligence kind of came into its own in a really widely known way. That's when Bellingcat's reporting on um, the downing of MH117 like went out. And that was kind of like the first first really huge international story involving like open source intelligence cr- cracking a case. Um, and now since the expanded invasion of Russia back in February, we've kind of entered... And again, this isn't really where this period started, but this has been kind of we've seen an explosion of what I think would be fair to call open source intelligence disinformation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about kind of some of the stuff that you've seen, because there's there's a number of accounts claiming to be doing OSINT on the Ukrainian war. Um and boy, howdy, they they are not all giving out good information. And it, it can be difficult for people to tell what they should trust, because if you're if you're kind of just scanning over it, bad OSINT or even outright fake OSINT can look very similar to good OSINT. Right. And, and so I, I would put a lot of the OSINT community into four rough categories. Uh, there's uh, OSINT analysts, and those are pretty rare. Those are the kind of people who combine what they're seeing in real time on social media with a background of knowledge in the area. So like a Ukraine regional expert combining that with what they're seeing happen in Ukraine, that's an OSINT analyst. There are some Twitter accounts that are more OSINT aggregators. They don't really have much analysis they put into what they're, what they're producing, but they spit out a lot of information in real time. And so if you follow the right ones, 
that use the right sources, you can get some pretty decent information from them. Then there's more of the misinformation aggregators, which are accounts that just kind of spread whatever they see without regards to whether it's true or not. Um, they'll sensationalize stories. You know, if there's the uh, a rare command and control plane takes off somewhere in America that's known as the doomsday plane during the Cold War, they'll tweet out, the doomsday plane is in the air. Does it mean yeah. nuclear war? Right. And they're not doing it to be hurtful. They're doing it for likes. And then yeah. there's disinformation aggregators who are deliberately out there trying to sow discord and sow problems. And those are four categories that I've seen all of them develop in their own ways in the yeah. last 10 years. Um, I think the best, best example of that final category, there's a, an account on Twitter called SMM Syria. And if you look at the account, it looks almost identical to the OSCE's special monitoring mission to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. it, takes the same kind of graphics and it has the same kind of terminology, but it's an Asadist disinformation outlet. And so, but they've woven their way into, if you just took a casual glance at the war in Syria, you might believe that it's a valid source. And that's the kind of more malicious disinformation that I'm talking about, where like they know what they're doing and they're trying to confuse people. And it's, there's, you know, I think one of the best examples of, something that really struck me recently as problematic in in the war in Ukraine is you've got a video going around um of that purports to show Ukrainian soldiers shooting captured Russian soldiers um which is a war crime and uh I think credible people within the OSINT community have said this is something that desperately needs to be investigated more seriously this this like is very has a very good chance of being legitimate and people should be looking into this whereas you've also seen folks who kind of reflexively jumped to uh defend ukraine against these allegations putting out what i think is fairly shoddy osint claiming to show like issues with the video and stuff and it's like people circling blurry sections of the video and saying like this is you know looks like it could be edited or this doesn't look credible and it is the kind of thing I think one reason people get tripped up by that is prior to the invasion of Ukraine, there were some Russian false flag events that involved like cadavers, bodies that had been autopsied and stuff, which was broken down by people like Elliot Higgins at Bellingcat. Um, and one of the things that, again, if you're just kind of looking at the surface level, you could see like, oh, well, that those were videos that were faked. And so these like the OSINT around this people like pointing out different sections of the video looks the same. Some of the differences are, for example... Um, when they were analyzing the bodies in those those false flag footage, they brought in actual, you know, corpse cutter uppers, like morticians, uh, or morticians, yes, to to analyze like the cuts in the in the skulls and whatnot, as opposed to again just kind of a guy circling aspects of a video and being like, this doesn't seem right, and it's like. Um, but you can, I can see why people get tripped up by it, and it it is important not to get tripped up by that kind of stuff because um, war crimes are bad. I think is a general attitude that we we both share um, and and should be investigated regardless of like whether or not they're being done by the side who's also towing Russian tanks away with tractors that you're you're on the side of. Right. Like. Right. And and I think that that's that's exactly an important distinction to make right? because like there are certain claims that have come out from the Ukrainian side, certain statements that have come out that as an OSINT analyst, I could probably look into more and maybe poke holes in stuff like the yeah. number of kills that the ghost of key right. has claimed, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Maybe it's not 30 kills or whatever it is that people are saying. Yeah. Maybe he's not real. <laughs> maybe he's not even real, but yeah. that's not harmful as right. much as did these guys shoot people in the legs. Right. Right. And so one of those, 
bears examination just because of the yeah. nature of the claim. The other one, maybe we can examine it after the war when it's not as yeah. It doesn't really matter if there is an, an, a Ukrainian ace fighter pilot who's dropped a bunch of a crazy number, like obviously in a military sense of Russian tra- jets are being downed. That does matter. But like from the perspective of, of people just kind of observing this war uh, as, as news consumers, it doesn't really matter. Whereas whether or not a country gets away with a war crime absolutely matters. And people are treating it with the same reflexive hand wave as they do when they accept these the ghost of Kiev yes. myths, right? They're saying like, well, no, but I want the Ukrainian side to win this war, so we can't even look into any claims of war crimes. And that's just not how it's supposed to be. Like, no. You condemn the crimes up front and you investigate and you try to move forward. And that's how we prove that we're better than the opposing side. Like that's that's been the rule in this war and it's mm-hmm. been the rule in wars past. You know, you you prove that you're better than your opponents by being more decent. Yeah. And it's it's I have seen some really unsettling logic from some people along the lines of like, well, these were artillerymen who have been, you know, shelling civilian areas. So why shouldn't they be be shot in the leg? And the answer is because like that's number one, it is a war crime to shoot captured prisoners like that that is a thing that we as a as a species have attempted to make illegal um and prob- and ought to be it is a thing that like should not be done and there's actually a wide variety of like tactical reasons why it's bad for ukraine if russian soldiers believe they will be shot after being captured it makes for among other things it makes soldiers less likely to turn themselves in um one of the wiser decisions that the ukrainian government has made in this war has been really deliberately pushing um, the idea that like, hey, Russians, if you surrender, we'll pay you. You can get Ukrainian citizenship, like bring in your tanks, you know, land your planes or whatever. Like we'll, you know, we'll make it worth your while, um, which is a lot, uh, uh, which is a, a potentially a force multiplier, right? Um, if Russian soldiers think when I get captured, they will shoot me, then they will fight to the death and Ukraine will lose more people in that fight as opposed to if Russian soldiers think, well, shit, I could actually have a pretty decent life if I just turn myself into these guys and refuse to fight. That means less people you have to fight. Um, so it, it it does it does really matter whether or not this is happening. Um, and it's also just like on a moral level, you you shouldn't accept it. And I, I see some really I think one of the things that I find so unsettling about that logic, like these are uh, these are, you know, artillerymen who have been targeting civilian areas. Why shouldn't they be shot? Um, it's not that much of a leap to like some of the shit we saw people saying in Vietnam. You know, these villages are harboring insurgents. Why shouldn't we treat them like the enemy? You know, like the, all of this logic leads to people getting murdered who don't deserve to get murdered. And that is bad. Right. There's the snowball effect, the slippery slope effect with the moral side of it. And then like you're saying, the tactical side of it. I mean, if you look at part of the reason members of ISIS fought so hard in places like Mosul. Oh, and God. Raqqa yeah. was because. Once you're in that organization, mm-hmm. your options are a bullet or like a desert cell. Yep. If you're lucky, they're not going to treat you well and reintegrate you into society. Come on. Like, mm-hmm. no, that's not how it works. So you fight like hell, you know, and yep. that's, that's a very basic rule. That's pretty easy to understand. I would think. Um, yeah. So that's why this needs to be looked into. And if it's proven false, if it's proven to not be a correct, uh, true video, yeah. And that just strengthens the Ukrainian side. But if it is proven to be true, it's something that needs to be investigated. It can't be overlooked. It can't be swept under the, under the rug. Just because we we want one side of this war to come out on top doesn't mean that we have to ignore potential yeah. crimes they're committing. Like one a, a good rule of thumb to approach a war from when you're trying to analyze it is that 
there there has never been a side in a war who have not committed war crimes. Um, so that should always be on your mind when you're trying to evaluate the reality of a war crime. It doesn't mean every claim of a war crime is true. That would be a very silly way to translate that. But it does mean that when there is a claim that the side you support has been responsible for a war crime, your default should be this is not impossible. And I should I should proceed from the area that this could have happened and, and it should be analyzed without reflexively dismissing it. And also without saying that like war crimes committed by a group of soldiers in a single part of a theater necessarily mean that the the war itself is being prosecuted in a criminal level by that government. Um, no, because, for example, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I was about to say U.S. soldiers committed war crimes in World War Two, but actually the prosecution of that war was criminal in a lot of fundamental ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll um, let that one go for a minute. But, but uh, it, it does, <laughs> that doesn't mean that like your granddad committed war crimes because right. other U.S. soldiers who were in the field executed, captured German POWs, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Which I think is something people have an easier time understanding when it's not a war they feel the need to have a series of 280 character or less takes on in Twitter. Um, yeah. It's it, that's the weirdest thing about about the social media age and and kind of OSINT in general is that while it does make it very accessible and easy for anybody to get involved in investigating these uh, crimes and these events, it also means that everybody thinks they have an opinion that matters on it, and uh, and and in that sense they they muddy the waters. They they a lot of people can can imitate the OSINT look pretty well. They can circle things in pictures that look similar, or as we saw in Syria a lot, they'd take two pictures of, of two totally different dudes and say, these are the same guy. They're both members of al-Nusra or something like that. And it, they would compare the eyes and compare the chins and stuff. And it yeah. looked kind of like a Bellingcat image, but it wasn't, right? Yeah. It is. Like, that's the I'm danger sorry. here is that like everybody can, can, can help, but everybody can hurt now too. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things every every aspect of this cuts both ways because like a thing people started saying rightfully so after the invasion or the expanded invasion i should say uh, of ukraine by russia is like well now all of these people who were experts in whatever the last big story was are going to become experts on the ukrainian conflict right which is absolutely a thing that happened you get all of these people who i think are pretty bad journalists and reporters who suddenly like rush to to have their commentary on this thing that they have ignored for the last eight years um but at the same time, it's to talk about Bellingcat, the founder of Bellingcat, my old boss, Elliot Higgins, was like literally an unemployed dude sitting on his couch when he started analyzing war footage um, and is now one of the most respected conflict analysts in the world. Um, and that is a thing the Internet has made possible. Um, I, I think a great example would be the Caliber Obscura uh, Twitter, which is just like a dude in the UK who has an almost impossible ability to recognize firearms and pieces of firearms and so just analyzes people send him footage from all over the planet and he'll say like these are these guns and this is where they came from and this is uh this one is like looks like this kind of gun but it's actually um a a, a, a fake one that's being made locally in this country and it's supposed to look like this and you can tell because like um that's not a person who caliber did not like go to some sort of fancy gun school they just are uh, uh, I mean, it's definitely not right to call them an amateur because, quite frankly, I don't know any people who are working at institutes and better at the thing that Caliber does than Caliber is, right? Um, but they did just start as a person on Twitter, you know? Well, um, and that's the thing about this. This is that you get 
people who were not kind of born with the idea that they were going to become analysts in this, in this field. And so you have people like both of the, both of the people you mentioned whom I, I know personally, I don't know Elliot personally, but I remember him from our days, mm. our shared days on a comedy website together. <laughs> yes, know. the website that shall remain nameless. That shall remain <laughs> nameless, right. Um, and, then, and then, you know, uh, Caliber and I have, have talked on Twitter a bunch and, you know, we're friends there. And it's just interesting to see that, like, both of them are very real people mm-hmm. behind, like, their professional personality and their, their expertise. They're also down to earth, real people, mm-hmm. which is rare in this field because a lot of people are kind of elitist um, and 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 yeah. uh, gatekeeper y. And neither of them are about that. They're both all about like getting as many people doing this as possible because more eyes are better. Like, yeah, I, I, Elliot is is. Uh, I mean, the whole reason my career with Bellingcat existed is because like I emailed him out of the blue one day and said, "Hey, I've been noticing this weird thing in videos of fascists." talking to cops can i write a thing for you and he was just like okay and and that was i mean like that was how that started um and he's i've met him since a couple of times and yeah is a very i think is very informed it because of the fact that he did not come from sort of this big institutional background um has a has a humility with which he approaches his investigations that uh i think is one of the things you you should look for in trying to decide whether or not o- o- open source intelligence that you're seeing on Twitter, whatever, is credible, is how 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 conclusive are they stating their claims are? How many times do they offer only a single possibility for what something is like? Um, you know, there's a number of things you can do. I think at this point we should probably move to a separate area of discussion, which is how's the uh, how's this war going? Who's 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 winning? <laughs> um, well, so I I made a statement on uh, my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, about mm-hmm. three weeks ago, and I still feel confident in that statement. And that is that uh, well, Ukraine has yet to win this war. Russia's already lost. They've already yep. lost their objectives. They've already lost what they what their goals were. And at this point, it's a face saving venture but, on the Russian part. But Aram, um, Russia carried out a cunning faint action to distract while they while they took the east by burning a fifth of their general staff and all of their armored vehicles. It was a cunning faint. <laughs> yeah, I saw someone on Twitter posit that it was actually uh, uh, a move to mm. use up all of Ukraine's ammunition. Cut brilliant. Yeah, just <laughs> very, sponge. very Zap Brannigan logic right, on behalf right. of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> uh, Ukrainians have a preset kill limit, and once they hit ten generals, the the army will shut down. Right, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but no, the war is not going well for Russia, um, and that's not to say that it's going great for Ukraine either. But Ukraine no. needs to do less well to succeed here. Yes, than the, Russia the, does. It, it's uh. I mean, because one of the things that is a black box, right? I I do think, because there was a lot of discussion earlier in the war, particularly like how credible are these numbers that the Ukrainian government is putting out for for dead and for destroyed vehicles? And I think the OSINT out there, like the verified vehicle casualties and stuff that we can verify means that like, obviously the Ukrainian government is padding their numbers, but not by as much as a lot of people might have. Like, it's not wildly off. No, when um, I saw their first casualty count, I think first casualty count, I think it was like twenty five hundred dead. Yeah. And I was like, okay, guys, come on. It was on. like day two or three. It was like right? day two or three, right? <laughs> and then like all of the Western intelligence. Yeah, I was like, actually, yeah. They're like, yeah, it's probably about two thousand. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Like, wow. 
I mean, yeah, I, 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 perspective for some people who may not, that number may not jump out to them. Mm-hmm. We lost, you know, just shy of 3000 soldiers killed during the Iraq war. So yeah, 2000 in a couple of days is an extraordinary number of losses. Yeah. And of course, the black box here, we don't have nearly as good an information on is what kind of casualties has the Ukrainian military suffered and what kind of civilian casualties have been suffered. And um, obviously, civilian casualties nearly always take much longer to get um, to the extent that it's ever I think we have a better chance of getting objective civilian casualties for this, because unlike a lot of other conflicts, the civilians being killed are civilians under the aegis of a government that is a functional state as opposed to Syria, for example, where the there's basically the only people with an interest in accurately reporting the death count are a number of different non-governmental organizations um, because the the people being are being killed by one government or the other, right? Including like, this is this was the same thing like in Iraq, the civilians who died in Mosul were technically under the Iraqi government's, you know, whatever protection seems like the wrong word to say but i can tell you from my experience there there was no we still do not have anything that approaches a credible civilian death count for for that conflict um and probably never will right and and on that note on the civilian casualties note um we were talking earlier about what um how you can identify a credible OSINT account versus uh one that you probably shouldn't give too Mm -hmm. much credence to and one of the best ways to do that honestly is is uh look at their their morals, I guess. Yeah. If they're ever posting and celebrating the death of civilians anywhere, you should probably disregard them. Like, yeah. you'll never see Elliot Higgins being like, yeah, suck it, people of Belograd. Like, yeah. you got hit with a missile. Like, it's not, it's, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not. It's the same thing as like, I I get why people celebrate, uh, you know, battlefield victories. Obviously, I don't think, especially if you're literally a Ukrainian living you know, in the area affected. I don't think there's anything morally wrong with celebrating opposing soldiers being defeated. But I, I am, I continue to be deeply unsettled by footage celebrating things like the destruction of armored personnel carriers full of 19 year old kids. Um, even though a, a non insignificant number of those 19 year old kids are, um, accessories to war crimes, right? Like it doesn't mean like I'm broadly okay with it. I do, I do feel a lot better about celebrating losses of special forces units like the VDV um, that have been heavily involved in war crimes around the world. Like that, I have less kind of an issue with, but. Um, no, and, and I felt yeah. that personally, you know, I'm Armenian and during the Karabakh war in 2020, it was just day, every day I would wake mm-hmm. up to dozens of videos oh, of Armenian conscripts and soldiers being blown up and hunted from the air Mm -hmm. and people on Twitter cheering for it because they were for one reason or another on the Azeri side. And like, I get it, you know, like you were saying, you want to cheer your battlefield victories. And, and I understand that from people who live on the battlefield and live near the battlefield, I get it. It's happening to you. Sure. To people thousands of miles away, cheerleading on the internet. What the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, maybe don't like, do that. <laughs> maybe don't do that. Like you, what the hell? Like you know, those are real people in that video that never did anything to you. And this is not like a sporting event where like they go home at the end of the day and they've just lost. Like they're but dead. Even when they do, like I've spent a huge amount of my career talking directly face to face with victims of ISIS. Right, I have been to like eight or nine refugee camps in two countries uh, at this point, specifically for that war, in addition to days spent on the refugee trail in between Hungary and Serbia, talking to 
to Syrians and talking to um, um, other people who had like fled the region. Uh, but at the same time, I, I can't help but like, like I, I've literally been under fire by ISIS and then had those ISIS guys gotten killed. And I've, I have celebrated and cheered when that's happened. Um, and I'll never forget, we were embedded with this mortar team and we were under fire from this sniper and the mortar team, I, I forget, you can, in the article I wrote on it, I list the exact number of rounds fired, but it was like nine or 10, something like that, where they're gradually walking in mortars until they, they get this guy. Um, and obviously we like cheered when they fucking killed this dude cause he was shooting at us. And I remember like kind of on our way out away from the front, my fixer Sangar was like, how many rounds did they drop before they got him? And I was like, I don't know. I think it was like nine or 10. I've got the footage somewhere. And he was like, I wonder what else they hit. And, and Sang Sangar is a, 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 like was born and raised in Mosul. Um, and it was one of those things we spent the very next day. We were like talking to people, fleeing their homes and stuff. And not only did we like see some of those people who lost family members to misses, um, both by Iraqi forces and by coalition aircraft and stuff, but like we came upon this dead ISIS fighter in a fighting position where you could see he had been in there with his wife for days and he had been wounded two or three days before he got killed. And you could see the evidence of the first aid she had done on him. And it was one of those things, I guess I could try to make the case that like, well, maybe she was a captive and didn't want to do it. But quite frankly, everything I saw in there makes me believe like she cared deeply for him and stayed with him until the bitter end, trying to keep him alive and fighting. Um, and that doesn't mean he's not like a monster and it doesn't mean he shouldn't have been killed because he's a fucking Dashi who was in the middle of doing in, enabling a series of terrible things. But he's also like you can't you can't ignore the humanity of of somebody when you have seen that element of what what happens in the conflict. And that has stayed with me quite a bit ever since. Yeah. And, and it's it's one of those things you know, you, you got to you got to remember that the majority of, of young men of fighting age around the world who join a military or an armed organization or an insurgent group, whatever it may be, they do so typically because it's whomever is in charge of the area they're growing up in. Yeah. Right. You don't join the Russian army because you weighed all the options and the Brazilian army offers some good aid, you know, some good healthcare packages. And I looked at the Italian army, but really I want to go with the Russian. No, you go with wherever you were born. Yeah. Whether and, it, and you know, and I was talking to my roommate about this last night. We were watching this footage from the flood of 96 here in Oregon, you know, and it's this National Guard helicopter where they're pushing bales of hay out of the back of the helicopter down to cows stranded out near Tillamook. And so depending on when you join the National Guard, you either fed cows hay from a helicopter or deployed to Iraq. <laughs> yeah, that's the luck of the draw, right? Mm -hmm. Like That's not fair. No, they don't deserve to die any more than the guys dropping the hay out of the helicopter did. Right. But people get, yeah, they get carried away with like turning it into a sport almost. And they forget that there's people on the other end and that like, while some of them are threats and they may need to be dealt with. It's like, you know, a bear comes at you in the woods, you shoot it. You don't, you don't skin it and make fun of it. Like, yeah, you know, I, I go kill its kids. You know, that's not, that's not how it works, you know? So like, yeah. Yeah, don't don't be don't be a piece of shit. Like don't 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 lose your humanity um because I, I mean one of the things that makes it easy to lose your humanity is that like videos of shit getting blown up looks dope. 
right? Like it, it does. It looks cool to watch things get blown up. That's in fact, I suspect how a lot of people who become very good OSINT investigators, part of what draws them in is just like, I'm sure that was a part of why Caliber started obsessively researching guns is like, they're neat. Guns are neat. You know, weapons are interesting. People are inherently interested in, in weaponry, um, right. which is <laughs> not a good thing. It's just a thing. You know, it's not a bad thing either. It's just like a thing human beings will always be interested in because warfare is as natural to us as eating and fucking. Right. Um, well, and- you're talking about the mortars, right? The mortars walking in. And there's this video on, on YouTube of made by an American Navy attack squadron um, of them dropping bomb after bomb on targets in mm-hmm. Mosul and and, and uh, Raqqa, places like that. Yeah, And it's set to uh, the devil's going to cut you down. And every time there's a, a beat in the music, mm-hmm. you see a bomb drop. Yeah, And some of these bombs, it's like four bombs dropping at a time, dropping an eight-story building. And so I'm sure there was a guy inside there with a oh, weapon. Yeah. But like, you want to tell me there wasn't anybody else in that eight-story building? And like, okay, yeah, you're celebrating the death of the combatant there. But like, also all those other people are being celebrated indirectly. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, you got to remember that, like, these bombs explode and they take out a large area and these fights are happening in cities a lot of the time. Yeah. The weaponry that the United States uses is more precise than something like a barrel bomb, but not by as many orders of magnitude as you would hope. Um, right. And, yeah. and precision doesn't precision matters. Yes. It's not a non-important thing. It's not a non-important <laughs> thing, but ultimately it doesn't matter if your missile went right into that living room full of civilians and blew them all uh, up, or if you leveled the block and maybe, you know, killed them indirectly. Like, you got to know what you're hitting. The target yeah. is what really matters, right? So it doesn't matter if you can hit the target. You got to make sure it's the right target. And that's where we're starting to have issues now is like, we can hit targets really well. We just aren't always sure that it's the right. Yes. As opposed, I mean, and and you are seeing. Uh, so let's let's talk about. We we started this chatting about Ukrainian, a potential Ukrainian war crime. Um, what we have absolute documentation of is a tremendous amount of war crimes on behalf of the Russian uh, invaders, including a thing that they have done repeatedly in Syria, which is the targeting of of hospitals and and medical facilities, um, with with terrible civilian casualties as a as a result. And this is something that the New York Times actually published an incredible article based on a mix of OSINT and like I'm not entirely sure how they got them, but combat flight recorders, like the audio that these these Russian fighter pilots were sending back and forth to command as they attacked hospitals in Syria. Um, so we actually have a tremendous amount of detail about like what it looks like inside the cockpit and in like the control room and whatnot as airstrikes are being ordered on medical facilities. I, I really recommend people check that article out. Um, it's it's pretty harrowing shit. But um, yeah, are you are you surprised at all by kind of what you are what you've seen so far in behalf of the Russian forces in Ukraine? No, no, not even not even the slightest. Yeah. Um, because I followed the war in Ukraine, in Syria rather closely. And uh, I mean, there was a point when they had to stop marking the hospitals with hospital markings because the Russians would target yep. them so consistently. The United Nations had to stop giving the Russians the coordinates of the hospitals in, in Aleppo because they kept getting targeted. Um, there was an aid convoy that was struck, I believe, by Syrian aircraft, but it was mm-hmm. the targeting was given to them by Russian aircraft. Um It was just an aid convoy coming into Aleppo, a United Nations aid aid convoy, and it was bombed and strafed repeatedly for, you know, several hours. Um, Things like that that happened so regularly in Syria to the relative silence of the rest of the world um, that led me to believe that when they go into Ukraine, they're not going to be any gentler. Um, A lot of people suspected early on that, like, well, 
they it's harder to demonize people who look like you so they're not going to have as much of an easy time demonizing ukrainians and i think there has been some degree of difficulty with that uh, at least in terms of some of the conscripts on the russian side but the other thing we're seeing is that like a lot of these a lot of people seem to genuinely believe the mission of denazifying ukraine and so yeah. if that's what you believe you're doing then the the bombing doesn't surprise doesn't become a surprise right if you think that you're going into ukraine to suppress it and occupy it then bombing city, cities full of russians russians and russian speakers seems like a bad idea but if you yeah. believe that they're all nazis then it makes sense that you might just blow them up because they're all the enemy. I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not condoning it. I'm saying no, but I mean that is literally right. what the U.S. government and the British government did in World right. War II. You know, right? Exactly. Um, there have been claims made that what Russia is doing in places like like Mariupol um, amounts to an act of genocide. Um, what is your opinion on that? Genocide is a big word. Uh, it is. It is. There's a ton it's of a big word. It. It's yeah. Um, but you know, it has a lot of meaning behind it in the sense mm -hmm. that like, just because somebody is killing large numbers of people and doing so in heinous ways does not make it a genocide. You have to prove yeah. it was an attempt to destroy culture and destroy heritage and things of that nature. Um, as it stands, I would say that it looks likely that there are signs of potential genocide yeah. in Mariupol. I am not confident enough to come out and say that I conclusively think it's happening but the way that it looks like the the city is being deliberately targeted to either force the entire population to flee or to radicalize them yeah one way or the other is it goes beyond military uh targeting yeah. you know it, i think the thing that were that i that is the most like troubling potential sign of of an intention of genocide is the reports that the Russian government has been evacuating civilians that they have ca in parts of Mariupol they have captured to places in Russia, right. um, which is this is a misconception. You don't have to just be killing people, as you stated. It's an attempt to destroy a culture, which you can do by killing, but you can also do by things like separating, pe moving people, like forced migration and whatnot. Like there, there's aspects of that. Again, look at like the genocide of the Native Americans in the United States. It was not all straight up killing. A lot of it was forced migration, um, which is an act of genocide as well. Um, and that's the kind of thing where I'm I'm kind of waiting for more reporting on that uh, to the, the to see hear exactly what's happening and the extent to what's happening. But that really troubles me in terms of potential signs of a genocide. Yeah, and when they when they coined the term genocide after World War II, it, it was a uh, it was with reference to the Holocaust. But but what they had in mind was the Armenian genocide. Uh, yeah, it, when it when they when they drafted these yeah. words up and. and because it was beyond just sheer number of people killed. If we're talking sheer number of people killed, the Nazis also killed 6 million other people. Yeah. In addition to the 6 million Jews they killed. The <laughs> yeah. reason we talk about the Jews is one, 6 million is a lot of people. And two, it was a deliberate attempt to destroy their entire culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To make them have never existed. Yeah. And that's very different and very scary. Dying is also very bad. Yeah. But the idea of dying and then all of the people who were like you just don't exist anymore and all your books yeah. and your literature are gone, like that's that's monstrous. Yeah. And it, that's why there's a difference between genocide and mass killing. Yeah, and, and it's it's the difference like we talk about US war crimes in World War II, of which there were many, including the firebombing of Dresden, I would argue. But it's not an act of genocide because when they firebombed Dresden, it was certainly um 
the killing of civilians without particular regard to the direct military efficacy of the action, but it was not an attempt to destroy German culture or obliterate the German people. And you brought up the Armenian genocide. We'll talk about this at some point on Behind the Bastards, but you mentioned that that was kind of what the people, when the term genocide was invented, that was what people were looking at, even though it was kind of a direct response to the Holocaust. It's also worth noting that like, when the Nazis planned the Holocaust, they used the Armenian genocide as a model. Um, Hitler's literal statement was when people, when he was asked during like one of his his dinners with a bunch of Nazi officials, like what uh, what about kind of the international reaction to what we're planning to do? He was like, well, who remembers the Armenians? You know, like that was his that was his attitude. Is like we'll get away with it because nobody did anything during this genocide, right? Um, and 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 I think while. I would hesitate to call the entire war in Ukraine a genocide. Yes. As of yet, I would say that there's a similarity between the Armenian genocide and the, and how that led to the Holocaust. There's a similarity between the Russian war crimes committed in Syria and how that led to the war crimes being allowed, uh, committed in Ukraine yeah. in the sense that if the world had stood up earlier, we would not be seeing this now. Yeah. The problem is the world looked the other way when the Russians bombed hospitals in Syria when they repeatedly bombed hospitals. In fact, the world didn't just look away. A lot of people in the West mocked it. I, I'm sure you've heard it as often as I have, the last hospital in Aleppo joke, right? Where mm -hmm. they're, oh, they're bombing the last, last hospital in Aleppo again. Well, the reason that happened is because when you bomb the hospital, they build a new one, and then it gets bombed again three days later, so they've bombed the last one again. So it wasn't a joke. It was just a tragedy that kept playing out that people couldn't really fathom, so they mocked. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and so when that's the attitude of a lot of the world, it's no surprise that what's what's happened in Ukraine has has run out of control. Mm -hmm. Where do you think we go from here? What are you, what are you expecting to kind of see next within this conflict? You know, we, 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 the most recent kind of reporting is that Russia's pulling, Russia's framing it as they're pulling back from Kiev to to focus on other fronts. Uh, the Ukrainian side is saying like, well, they've been defeated around Kiev and they're pulling back. What do you think kind of we're seeing next? What, what is your opinion on kind of the next stages here? So I think it really depends on Vladimir Putin's power and how long he remains in a position of unchecked power. I'm not saying necessarily that he will fall from power. I'm saying that how long can he go as the only guy calling the shots? Because as it stands right now, it doesn't look like he's the same Vladimir Putin that we were used to dealing with. It seems like something may mm -hmm. have changed with him. And that's a wild card because if, if Vladimir Putin wants to continue to escalate here, he can continue to do so because he may not be getting the same reporting that we are about the condition of his army. He may think his army is doing better than they're doing and that they actually are just repositioning. So if that's the case, there's a chance that he'll escalate against potentially a NATO country. I find that unlikely but there's still a chance for it. I think what's more likely is that we're going to see the Russian military refocus its efforts in the east, in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, with an attempt to create a land bridge to Crimea through the area, through Mariupol and Melitopol mm -hmm. area. Um, and I think they're going to try to russify the area as much as possible uh, and remove as many of the Ukrainians as possible um, one way or the other. And I don't know if they'll be successful in that, but I think simultaneously while they do that, they're going to try to tie down and destroy as much of the Ukrainian military as possible. Um, which will be difficult because the units in the East are Ukraine's best equipped units. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how this ends. I, I don't see a, a reasonable end to this in sight, but that's just because there's too many variables at the moment. Yeah. I do think one thing that's kind of worth looking at this 
war in an historical context. A number of comparisons have been made to both of the world wars here. Um, I think the thing that it most reminds me of is World War One, not in that it's a, a conflagration on that scale or in that um, it's a similar war in terms of the combat, but it is an example of the first big war that utilizes a variety of weapons and tactics that have been battlefield tested in a series of smaller wars, right? Um, and I, I think we are seeing in Ukraine for the first time the actual I think one thing that we have seen is that drones, and I'm not talking about the big ones here. You know, they get a lot of the Bayraktar and stuff like get that gets a lot of attention, but like small, the kind of drones anyone listening to this could pick up and buy today, right? Those drones, I think, are proving to be a game changer on a tactical level in a similar manner to the machine gun in in the the turn of the last century. Um, yeah, the century before the last century. Yeah, well, with the drones, I've often machine guns a good uh, good comparison. I've often thought of it as like the airplane, and yeah. we had airplanes, and we even had combat airplanes before World War One. We didn't have very many of them because nobody really realized the utility of them in war. And then, as the war got closer, and then the war started, countries started to slowly build up these small fleets of aircraft. And then, by the end of the war, everybody had an air force. I think we're going to yep. see the same thing with these small consumer drones. Yep. Is that like? By the end of this war or whatever conflagrations are coming after it, every military in the world is going to have yeah. little, little, you know, phantom, phantom threes or whatever, yep. basically for every infantry squad. One of the things that's so wild is that if, if you, again, if you sitting here right now have not an insignificant amount of money, let's say three to $4,000 and the uh, enough mechanical like competence to carry out modest repairs on your own car. You could, with things entirely available over the shelf, build a weapon system capable of disabling a variety of armored vehicles at night. You know, like you that that is a thing that individual people you could do that and you could have it up and running in a matter of days. <laughs> I'm just I'm imagining the next protest in unnamed city. Yeah. Um, and a consumer drone flies over the police line and drops a little thing on him that says bang yeah 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 yeah, exactly (laughs) like there's a lot uh, people even even as as influential and and meaningful as they've been on the battlefield in ukraine i think people still are kind of slow to understand the extent like there is one of the wildest stories that's come out of it is that the ukrainian military has a an outfit of civilian drone operators using hacked and home-built drones to attack Russian forces at night. Um, and they have been, the documented f- efficacy of their raids has been significant. And I can re- I can remember spending a brief period of time with an Iraqi uh, military unit that was just using DJI Phantoms that they had rigged to drop what were essentially mortar shells with shuttlecocks on them from a height. Um, and they were very effective at killing people, um, as ISIS drones were effective at, at sort of spotting, you know, mortars for folks. Well, and one of the things I saw ISIS use their, mor- their drones for to great effect wasn't so much to kill large numbers of enemy soldiers. It was to do the same thing that American Predator drones and Reaper yep. drones had done for, for decades by that point to terror groups, which is let yep. them know you can't gather in large numbers. Yeah. If you gather in large numbers, you're a target. And so you saw Iraqi soldiers saying no more than two or three in a group. Yep. Any more than that will get targeted, you know, and it's they flipped the equation, basically. Yep. And don't I mean, I one of the reasons why I I have a general policy heavily informed by my time in Mosul that the last place I want to be in a anywhere near a war zone is an armored vehicle. 
Um, because that's it really in, unless you are in something that's heavily up armored, like an MRAP, little bombs dropped by drones can do significant damage to something like a Humvee. And that's exactly what you target. You don't target a Toyota Corolla with a drone like that, unless you specifically know an individual's in that Corolla that you want to kill. But you may just behind the line, see a target of opportunity in an armor, see an armored, lightly armored vehicle and drop a wet ammunition on it. And that's one of the things this has done. There was a lot of talk prior to the expanded Russian invasion about how immediately Russia was going to get air superiority. And that's obviously a bigger story than just drones. There's a lot of factors in why Russia, it's probably accurate to say they have superiority in a number of parts of the war, but they don't have supremacy. Like they, it's not like an absolute matter. And part of that is because um, it's not really possible to, at this moment, someday, I suspect there will be more effective ways of stopping drones in, in, in at like a theater level, um, maybe, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, there's there's the drones and then there's also on the Ukrainian side, they, you know, I think they recognize that Air Force against Air Force, the Russians have a numerical superiority. Mm -hmm. So you can deny the Russians air supremacy by shooting down their planes with man pads. Right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to have an air force to deny your opponent air no. supremacy. You just have to deny them the ability to freely operate in your airspace. And this is one of those things. There's been a lot of talk about a no-fly zone, um, which I tend to think would be a bad idea in the traditional sense, in terms of like the U.S. and NATO sending in planes to down Russian planes over Ukraine. There's a number of reasons why that's concerning, but you can effectively establish a no-fly zone by shipping in a fuckload of man pads. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm not against that. I, I think in terms of what kind of what kind of armed arms support is ethical to provide, giving people the ability to stop planes from bombing cities is broadly speaking one of the most ethical things you can do in terms of shipping munitions around the world. Um, right, and the other advantage is that man pads. I'm sure somebody could turn it into a lethal ground weapon, but they're pretty hard to yeah use against ground targets against houses, things like that. Yeah. Not really what they're designed for. So it's not like just handing over, you know, uh, some indiscriminate weapon to the Ukrainians to use against Russian cities. You're, you're giving them a weapon that's specifically used against military aircraft. Mm -hmm. Like most man pads can't reach the altitude that airliners are at even. So, yep. So I think that's probably what we want to talk about today. Um, you want to plug your pluggables, tell people where they can find you and, and your analysis out in the world. Yeah. So, uh, you can, you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is at Shabanian Aram and, uh, I work, uh, I, I publish occasionally with the new lines Institute. Uh, so you can see my work there as well. And I have a website that I seldom update, uh, the foldagap.com, um, hasn't been updated in probably eight months now because I've been tired, but, um, yeah, those are the places to find me. And uh, DMs are open on Twitter. So mm -hmm. if you ever have questions or anything like that, let me know. I'm happy to talk with anybody who's got questions on these kind of things. Hell yeah. Well, that's going to be us. So, you know, enjoy this analysis of the of the war in Ukraine um, before we return you to your regularly scheduled multi-part series on Nazi cat girls, uh, the primary focus of this podcast. <laughs> LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. 
In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Money. Money. <laughs> this is well, welcome day could happen here. It, it is me, Christopher Wong. Uh, this is a this is a podcast about things falling apart, things putting back together again. And also today it's just about money. Um, and also, well, OK, it, it is not just about money. It is about money and it is about seemingly seemingly esoteric dis- uh, arguments about the nature of money that actually turn out to be extremely important for any post-revolutionary society or even just this society. So yeah. And, and join- joining me to talk about this are Kyle Flannery and Steve Mann, who are the co-editors of Strange Matters magazine, which is a new workers co-op that's in the middle of a fundraising drive. So yeah, uh, go, go support the magazine and uh, Steve and Kyle, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having us. The, the basis of this interview is a piece that is coming out. Actually, when is it coming out? That, that's a good question that I should probably have asked oh, before this. Um, let's see. It will come out later this month. Okay. Yeah. It, that'll be out later this month. That is about the history of money and what money is. So I guess we can we can start there, which is, yeah. Can, can you walk us through a bit about the, the, the debate over what money is and how sort of various people have gotten parts of it wrong and parts of it right? Sure. I got into this debate as a economics graduate student in 2011, and a book that really kind of shaped my initial understanding was David Graeber's Depth, The First 5,000 Years. And Yeah, it's excellent. Um, it's it's very long and it's a bit scattered, but I, I love what he put together with it. And um, so he kind of introduced me to ideas 
of from a school of economic thought called chartalism. And chartalism is kind of the theoretical forebear of MMT. And MMT is, which is modern monetary theory, is kind of in the news now as a theory which is saying like, okay, if you if you're a government that issues its own money, its own currency, that is not really backed by anything, it's not backed by any other currency or any other commodity, then you don't really face a financial limit as far as how much you can produce. You, you're the sole source of that money and you can spend it into existence, spend by buying things, the money into existence. And people will accept it to the extent that they either need it or they want it. And that's one theory that's kind of in the air now. But chartalism, over a hundred years before this, is putting out very similar ideas around money that is um, created by states in order to marshal physical resources. They call it biophysical resources, which is just a fancy word of meaning all of the material, people, techniques, um, physical processes that are required to create economic activity. So to the extent that people either need or want your money, um, you can use it as a social technology sort of to marshal those resources into action. And uh, you being a state, chartalism says. So from chartalism, we got MMT. But David Graver's book is about a lot more than just chartalism and MMT. So it's about the origins of money. And origins of money, uh, it turns out, are at least 5,000 years ago, as the title says. Um, there are examples of um, early accounting systems that are where people are just, um, rather than there being a circulating medium of exchange type money, like a, a coin or something or a dollar bill, there were just records of what people own and what people owe and their debts and credits against each other. And it was... In early Mesopotamia, there so we have these early accounting systems that yield more advanced credit systems over time that are ruled by temples, um, which are sort of proto-states in a way, in terms of like they administer the flow of goods and services through their territory and between their territory and another temple's territory using their domestic money, but also international money. International money was facilitated through trade networks. Trade networks used things like um, they needed to convert between a domestic money and international money. And Graeber goes through these like wonderful examples of um, silver and other metals being used as like international means of payment. Um, that's sort of our term in our piece, basically, uh, which is covering um, foreign exchange, but. Um, he says, like, in order to get from the domestic money into the international money, um, you need to have these linkages of experts in the temple and the trade networks to get together and make um, credit instruments, which knit them together into this trade network. And from there, we go into, um, I don't want to spend too much time on the history, but we go from there to situations thousands of years later, we get coins. Coins are being minted by starting in the roughly 600 BC, I want to say, Carl, 
Yeah. That that sounds about um, right. It's going to be early first, Iron Age. Right. So um, the first, I someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been doing some homework on this because I've been on a few podcasts and there's like, like numismatists in the comments and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but um, the first, okay, the first mixed gold and silver coin was sometime in the 7th century BCE. And the first gold coin was not long after. I think it was like they were both Lydian kings. Like one after another. Anyway, <laughs> just wanted to hit that because someone said I got it wrong earlier. But um, <laughs> uh, these coins were kind of the first uh, widely used sort of retail means of settling debts like at the point of sale between people. So it wasn't just an accounting system. It was an elaborate credit system with no circulating means of payment. It was a circulating money now. And it's getting around um, based on military conquest. Military conquest in the Axial Age spread the use of coins much wider than the domestic spheres in which they were first minted. Yeah, and I, th- I think we should... like. Just, just to talk a bit about like roughly when this is like a, a you know like if if you go back I mean this this is slightly later but one of the huge sort of like like the the, the periods where like the entire Mediterranean is using coinage right is you know you're, this this is this is when you're dealing with you're sort of like classical Greek like mm-hmm. you have your your Greeks and your Persians and you have your sort of like Athens and Sparta um, and th- those guys are very much uh, they're engaged in this thing that uh, Graeber calls the the military industrial coinage slavery complex. The military industrial coinage complex. Yeah, and I yeah, yeah and I think he, he adds slavery on the end because it's yeah, it's it's this giant sort of like, it's this giant warfare system, right? Like these are like the, like Athens is an empire, right? They run around, they steal, they seize mm-hmm. people's gold, like this gold and silver mines, and they like have slaves that work it, and it's this whole sort of yep, like yep. like this, yeah. You you get the system of empire that is like what the actual age is sort of defined by. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, whereas previously, like, so precious metals did circulate, but they weren't in coin form and they were more as like a bulk means of payment stored from one temple to the next, almost as if they were central banks, but central banks don't exist yet. And axial, the axial age coinage system gave rise to the more, much more sophisticated medieval coinage system. And I'm going breezily through this because um, there's a lot there. But yeah. um, <laughs> several thousand years of there's history. There's several thousand years that are passing in a few minutes here. So um, bear with me. But um, there are, there now in the medieval and Renaissance times, not only do we have the coinage circulating, but we also have credit instruments um, which uh, are being submitted, transferred, transmitted rather between banks. Uh, between banks in different countries and territories that are saying, hey, you don't even need to, based on what is written on this piece of paper, I already know you're good for it. I will dispense with the coins uh, that I have in my bank because this paper signifies that they you're good for it, basically. And so that greatly speeds things up in terms of um, settling commerce debts and, and uh, settling bills between different um, states. So, but going through all this history, the point of it is that at every, at every sort of step of the way, you see, okay, there's a lot of different types of money that are circulating and they're being exchanged against one another. And there also seems to be a domestic sphere 
and international sphere. The international means of payment, which is a analyte category that um, I and my co-author, John Michael Clone, thought up, is kind of sort of sets the tune as far as what uh, what kind of hierarchy of money, if you will, develops in each of these ages. So like in the prior to the Axel age, there were bulk, there was bulk settlement from one temple to the next in terms of silver, although it wasn't coins, it was just um, like bullion, basically. Um, and then and then later it was coins, and then later it was bills of exchange, and then uh, after a while there emerged gold standards um, that existed between nations, and they had central banks eventually, which um, hoarded gold, not because, not just because they are fetishizing it or something something basic like that, but rather because it was the established international means of payment, and if you Either you need that or you need something that is easily transferable into that in order to conduct your trade, especially if you're a developing country or um, a otherwise like an upstart state of some type. Now, today we're in a dollarized world. The dollar is the international means of payment. From 1971 onwards, the MMT story, yeah, I mean, that's basically true. The MM the, for the U.S. government as the issuer, the sole issuer of the dollar, which is a fiat currency, which is not backed by anything. Um, yeah, you can make as much of that as you want. You could make, you can create and spend into existence as many dollars as the U.S. government wants, and then delete it from existence by taxing it away. And that makes perfect sense. Totally acknowledge that. But there's some problems, nonetheless, in terms of how they apply that into a more general theory. Because it's like, can you, okay, you can make as much of your own money. What about other types of money? From the perspective of a U.S. statecraft-interested individual, like, why would you care about other people's money, basically, if you're just the full sole source of the, U of the U.S. dollar, which happens to also be the international means of payment? Of course you wouldn't. However, if you're like, say, Tun Tunisia, the Tunisian dollar is accepted almost nowhere as payment. Yeah, and and one one of the big thing, I mean, it, it's not the sole driver, and people sort of overemphasize this. I'm going to caveat this immediately because people will yell at me. But like one one of the very important things about the dollar is that the dollar is what you can buy oil in, and this is extremely important because if you are a society in the world, you need oil. Um, this That's is true. basically universally true, and and this you know and the, but and the fact that you need to buy oil and and the fact that you need to buy a lot of other things that are manufactured in the U.S. means you have to find some way to get U.S. dollars. Now, yeah. again, the U.S. doesn't. This doesn't matter for the U.S. because we can just make them. Well, okay, a a it, 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 this is another thing. This stuff gets very weird and convoluted very quickly um but the, the the essentially the u.s can just sort of make this money technically speaking it's the federal reserve and there's all of this just incredibly convoluted finance stuff but yeah the u.s like doesn't the u.s does not have to worry about obtaining u.s dollars it could just do it but you know yeah if if you're yeah if, if you're if you're i don't know if you're tunisia if you're Denmark's an example I like. I know, yeah, Denmark. Yeah, like you you, mm -hmm. you, need to find a way to get U.S. dollars because you need to have stuff where you need to use U.S. dollars to buy it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in our international context, this is after all of the history I just went through since about 1971 or so when we went off the gold standard. Um, we have a system of central banks dominated by the dollar, and the dollar represents about 60% of settlement of all trade. And the next five or so currencies are, plus the U.S., account for like 80 to 85% of all trade. So there's really just a few currencies which dominate everything, with the U.S. being outsized among them. And when you look at the historical record, this is like very similar to other forms of international means of payment, where it's like, okay, I either need to have the one that's at the top or failing that one of the other sort of reserve currencies, even though that 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 terminology didn't really exist prior to about say eighty years ago. Um, but yeah, so like if you don't, if it's not gold, then okay, it's the U.S. dollar. So we need dollars, or we either need to be printing dollars because we're the U.S., or if we're not them, then we need to get into either U.S. dollar or the yen or the euro or one of the major trading currencies. And um, like China, China does a lot of trade with the U.S. and they they sell things to us. We give them dollars. They're rational. They put their dollars into treasuries to gain a little bit of a return instead of just holding the dollars themselves for no return. To explain, I guess, what a treasury is, because yeah, sorry, uh, a treasury bill is if you receive dollars, you can use them to purchase what's called a treasury note or a treasury bill. And sometimes called T notes too. So if you ever hear someone talk about T notes, that that's what this is. Yeah. So it's a way to learn. It's like moving from your checking to your savings account, essentially. So if you have just dollars in a bank, it doesn't earn hardly anything. If you're in a saving, if you go into the savings account, which is basically the treasury, the treasury bills, you'll earn a little more, and you'll earn dollars. You won't earn renminbi from them. You'll earn more dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So and dollars are the international means of payment. So that's good. Yeah, so, so like you, you basically like you, there's the U.S. government puts out a bond and like you buy it and then it when you know, when whenever it like expires there's, there's like a ten year T note that people talk about that's like in right, ten so years it, you buy it and yeah it, it'll it'll give you like a certain amount of dollars like later on that is more than what you paid for it. Mm-hmm, exactly. So you'll earn a little bit of interest over time, yeah. and then you may earn like a little lump sum when it matures in in the future. So China has tons of dollars. It's part of a huge strategy that they have in order to manage their foreign their foreign currency reserves or what's called forex. So forex is the and that's a term we're going to use a lot. Um, that just is the foreign currency reserves you have on hand in order to pay for things that are only available for sale in currencies that you can't make yourself. Okay, so you know you have this question of like, why do we care about this, right? Like, why do we people who want to make the world better care about this? And the answer is, okay, take 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 your hypothetical scenario. Uh, your 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 hypothetical scenario is the scenario in which like a a a a bunch of workers in alliance with like tribal confederations have taken Vancouver Island, right? And they've set up a new they've they've set up a new government. They have worked out sovereignty arrangements. Things have happened. You now have a new you you have you have a new sort of entity that is, that is in Vancouver Island. Um, yeah. So, so immediately you have, you have both, you have both 
uh, resources and you have problems, right? You have a certain amount of resources that are on Vancouver Island, right? You have, you know, you have like, you, you have literally like what, what you have the things that are on the island, right? You have cars, you have like probably some yachts you've managed to like steal. You have, you know, you have, you have shops, you have uh, production facilities, you have a, a, a extremely large number of very good Chinese restaurants. Uh, <laughs> you have yeah. uh, trees, yeah. got a lot of trees. Yeah, there. you've got major, trees. Major asset. Yeah, you know, Chinese let, restaurants. I mean, also it's true. Like I, yeah, my, my my family spent a lot of time, like specifically going going to Vancouver Island just to eat Chinese food. Uh, yeah, you know, and say say like let, let, let's say you've taken Vancouver Island and you you expand out and you now have like a swath of Canada, right? That that is that is that is now sort of been liberated and you know you have you have you have a lot of resources. You have sort of timber. You have. I don't know. Maybe you have coal. Maybe you have other stuff. You have you have a, and you also have a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, I was about to say, yeah, yeah. You got whatever yeah. labor you can marshal. Yeah, you have a lot of labor. And, you know, and those people have a lot of skills. They have a lot of dedication. They have, like, you know, they they they, they, have, they have they have a belief that you can make the world a better place. And I think this is where, you know, the, the, this, is, this is the arena in which MMT can sort of explain what you're doing next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. you have this, um, you have a territory that has undergone revolutionary change. And you have biophysical resources that are in it and biophysical resources that could be in it. And you have, and you also have the social technology of money. Some of the money you can just make yourself other monies. You cannot, um, MMT in the, is applicable in the sense that it says in this scenario, I think the most, the way MMT is most applicable is to say everyone can be employed who wants to be employed. Yeah, there's you a, know, there. Yeah. One of their principal ideas is a job guarantee, a federal job guarantee, and it could be applied just as easily conceptually in this situation. It says um, there's nothing preventing a revolutionary government of some type, um, not necessarily a state, but any any non-state type of um, administration from setting up something sort of like a central bank to make its own money to marshal domestic resources, domestic in terms of within its own territory, and to get everyone everyone who wants to be employed to be employed and to be paid for their work. Like, not yeah. to be too vulgar, but like why, why this is stuff is important, this monetary theory and this history is like, people want to be paid for their work. They're yeah, not and, going and, to go and barter things. They want to get paid. Yeah, and I, and I think this is something that, like you know, if 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 you look at sort of like the the thing that gets held up was like the 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 classic example of an anarchist revolution, right? Is is what happens in Spain, nineteen thirty six, and if 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 you look at what they do, right? Like very, very, almost immediately after the revolution, what happens is you have basically like a union of all of the bank workers, and those guys take over all the banks. Um, and you you have you have the individual work, like workers and different unions start seizing they start seizing the factories they start seizing like the trains, and once they've done that they start just pooling all of their resources into you know like in, into like they they have they they now have this like they have they have the banking union the banking union is is the the sort of central body that has resources that can distribute it and you know what 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 MMT is essentially saying is like yeah so. In as as long as what you're moving around is the resources that you have in your territory, like you can just create money in order to do that, and you can sort of you know and and you can use this to get people to do certain things and like you know the the the, the Catalonians like 
they, 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 they equalize everyone's wages, for example. I mean, it would be better if we equalize everyone's wages. I, I do agree with that. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I, I mean, yeah. they, they, they do have a lot of other stuff that's like, okay, so like they, they get rid of a lot of jobs that are like sort of managerial stuff or like just bullshit jobs. They just kind of eliminate and yeah. And, you know, and this, this frees up people to like do stuff that actually matters and is real instead of sort of this, like this sort of bureaucratic hierarchy that's above them. Yeah. And yeah, but, and I think the other thing they do that's, that's very important for our sort of scenario and for us talking about money is that like they, they immediately start, like they start seizing gold and they start seizing, uh, you know, like they start seizing foreign currency and yeah, and I think that this this is where we can get into where where I guess MMT doesn't work because MMT like it's it's it it doesn't it doesn't really think much about the fact that like okay you you have Vancouver Island you have a part of like Canada right there is a lot of resources that you don't have absolutely yeah that's 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 going to be a, a lot of why foreign exchange matters so much as that. Uh, you know, you, inevitably you think, what if we just made an autarkic society? That's uh, Sorry if that's a little, I probably should have jumped the gun a little bit there. What if we just made everything ourselves? What if we made a society that was fully economically independent? Uh, um, that's what autarky tends to be used to mean. And the answer to that is because that sucks. Uh, like, <laughs> that's that's the problem well. with it. Is that it, it? It sucks. Like you, you don't want to be trying to manage an autarkic society on multiple grounds. Uh, not least of which is that. I mean, we we we've, we've seen societies try to do it, and uh, you know, we, me, me and Steve could go for hours and hours and hours talking about historical precedents of previous economic systems, many of which did try to be autarkic because that was something that monarchies liked. A lot was the idea that their their kingdom could be fully independent because the thing is, is that when you're economically independent, that means that uh, you've got a certain amount of security of international security. Uh, and there's kind of a trade off where the more stuff that you're reliant on importing, the more vulnerable you are to the people you're importing and screwing you. But it's just so massively difficult to be a good producer of every possible good. Yeah, and and this and this is this is true even if you have an enormous amount of resources. Like I yeah. think, you know, we we can talk about one case study of this, which is socialist period China. And mm-hmm. you know, socialist period China, they 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 have, they they they're they're getting resources, and especially in the early periods, they're getting some resources from like Hong Kong. They're getting some stuff from the Soviets, but you know, they 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 get into like Mao. Famously, does not like markets. Um, this is a, this is a thing that is known about Mao, and so Mao is like, okay, we're like, no, we're going to shut off the sort of like market system that we that we've been running sort of through Hong Kong, and then you know, China had been getting technology transfers and aid from the USSR, but you know, the USSR and China got into a bunch of political fights, and the USSR like pulls out all of its advisors, and you know, China China has an enormous amount of resources, right? They have, they have a large population, they have they have just an enormous geographic mass. And so they, they basically try to, you know, build an autarkic society and they try to sort of just, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just marshal our resources and we'll just sort of like, we'll, we'll plan a way out of it. And they run into this problem, which is that there is actually things that they need from other countries, which is technology. And they, they hit this thing I've talked about before, which is uh, like, they, they basically hit this bot, this production bottleneck where it's like, well, okay. So in order to produce more industrial goods, they need more food. But the problem is, in order to produce more food to support a larger urban population, 
uh, you need more industrial goods, right? You need your like fertilizers, you need your tractors, you need stuff like that. And, you know, and once they're cut off from sort of the rest of the world from through Hong Kong and from the USSR, they don't have a way to, they, they, you know, they're, 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 sort of, they're sort of scrambling to figure out how we do this. And their solution is the Great Leap Forward, which is essentially we're, just, we're, 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 we're going to just bust through this whole thing and we're going to do it by forcing everyone to work for like an absolutely enormous like increase in hours, right? Like we're, we're going we're gonna to have peasants working in the fields literally until they collapse from exhaustion. And it just doesn't work. It is a it is a epochal failure. There are millions of people die from famines, and you know, and and the sort of the response to this is that, like, is that China eventually ends up like winds up opening its economy again. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and like and, you know, and this is the thing. Like, if if China, which has like just just an astounding breadth of natural resources, can't pull this off, like it's probably just not a good idea because like, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we even have like a, a very, you know, a very contemporary example that, uh, you know, makes that will make certainly makes my blood boil. And I'm sure it will make some of the listeners blood boil the, you know, vaccines, uh, you know, the the realistically, you know, the the coronavirus is fun is a more or less is an incredible threat to basically every state on the planet at this point. And the. really chemical and biomedical research is done in just a handful of places on the planet. Uh, And there have been attempts to create vaccines outside of those places, and they have been somewhat successful, but it has been difficult. And most places are just not in a position to create a, to develop their own competing technology. Uh, and even China struggled with creating their own competing vaccination technology. And I'm not at all a bio- biology expert, but I understand it's a not quite as efficient vaccine, the Sinovac. But at the end of the day, this is like South Africa is not developing their own independent vaccine. That's a quite sophisticated economy. Yep. All of all the various South American countries could have pulled their resources together in theory. But it's so hard to turn a dime and develop from scratch a primary research industry uh it's so difficult and it's so not worth it it's you know if you have trade relations with a country that has technology developments in a field that you really care about it's just not really worth it like we don't the united states doesn't really compete with several forms of japanese technology because it's just not worth the bother uh just let korea and Japan handle that for us and we buy it uh, and they accept our, our Forex, they accept our dollars, but you know, let's say you're the Philippines, you know, how are you going to get those? And uh, this is, this is now international trade and international politics. And uh, if we're creating our now independent Vancouver Island, we have now entered into this territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have now entered into uh, international politics and international uh, trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this this is an arena that's fraught in a lot of ways because it's it's you know as we've sort of been talking about right it's it's not just that you need it's not just that you need forex or like for example like you know if, if we, you 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 have you have your sort of like you know you 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 have your new society in like Vancouver right yeah Vancouver Island uh you know you need the thing you need mostly is dollars mm-hmm. and this is this is a real problem because. It, this requires you to have something that you can turn into dollars and you know okay so you you're, you're going to have some amount of dollars that are just there 
right? From from when you see society, there's there's assets you can sort of just sell off that like, okay, like do we really need this yacht? Like, okay, we can, we can we can sell this for some amount of dollars. But th- this becomes a a a real economic problem because you you need to produce something that you can exchange for dollars and you know there's there's a pretty good chance that like whatever sort of new currency whatever new sort of like mmt currency that's like oh it's it's controlled it be, because we're producing it it moves our resources around we can make and bust of it as we want like mm-hmm. yeah you have to actually be able to convert that into dollars and you know why why does the u why is the u.s going to want your currency yeah it's a bit dialectical because you have to okay you have your mmt currency which domestically is accepted because of tax receivability or something uh, or, or um, national fervor, if you will, to um, <clears throat> create a new uh, democratic confederalist society. Um, and that's accepted there, but yeah, you need us dollars. So like you, you need us dollars, but why do you need them? Partly because like you eventually want to not need them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you have what you can, you have assets right now that you can just sell. So that's one way, but long term, you can't do that. So you need to have cash flow over the long haul that allows you to buy what are called capital goods, which are, is a fancy term for machines that make machines or machines that make some sort of like in product, which is a physical thing. It's not like a service or something. And, um you want to classic like really classic economic development advice that is actually pretty good is you want to move up what's called a value chain and eventually be not producing um just like a stable crop or something but doing really innovative advanced technology things later on so you like here's where I am here's what I have here's what I could have though how do I get there um, part of part of the formula to get there is yes, acquiring forex, but it's other things like saying, how do I cultivate political alliances that will uh, yield trade partners, such that I have a stable flow of forex, and uh, maybe even technology transfers, you know, or something down the line, which could be a game changer. Um, you need to have an education system, like if you're a fan of the economist Thorsten Veblen. He thought, like in his mind, he thought the economic development was ultimately from the human intellect and like everything was downstream of that. So like you need to have money to, um, you can use your MMT money to create a basic education system and you can augment it with buying, importing things that you can't yet make and uh, using it to create like a university or something, which can do R&D work. Um, You have to... You have to find tools to get enough of the money that you can't just infinitely produce forex in order to augment what your society can produce beyond what it initially could, and uh, show essentially that you okay I can make a better mousetrap. Like I, I don't need to, I don't need donations from well-meaning imperial powers or something. We're building what we need in order to move up the value chain and then build out our productive capacity in such a way that um, it doesn't leave anyone behind. Everyone is everyone's employed because we're doing the classic MMT stuff on the home front, such as a job guarantee, but we're also doing the international economic development stuff of 
assiduously monitoring our foreign, foreign currency reserves and then using them to import things that we cannot yet make, but can make things internally and then have a, a, um, a snowballing effect as far as being able to sell even higher value things, which um, to our trade partners who are hopefully share our values of like democratic confederalism or whatever you, whatever your chosen guidelines are. Yeah. And, and th- this is something that like, this is something that that becomes very difficult in like the current market and, you know this this is to some extent like why the cold war went the way it did right which is that you know once once you have the sino soviet split once you have like you know, I mean you have chinese and russian troops killing each other on the border um china it, it like enters a situation where it's like well okay so we still want to do economic developments but we've lost the soviet union as as a technology as a way to get technology transfers and their solution to that was to ally with the us and this is like it, it it works out for the Chinese economy. It is an apocalyptic disaster for like literally everyone else on earth <laughs> because like it means that capitalism is the thing that wins the Cold War. And and this means that like you know I mean like if if you look if you look at how you know like the 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 the, the, the things that China are doing in order to be able to get technology transfers for the U.S. It's like like there's so there there are joints like Chinese CIA like operations inside of china that are like monitoring soviet missile sites so there's just like cia outposts just like in china that are just you know doing spying like for for the u.s government there's like they invade vietnam which is a <laughs> enormous and, and, you know and it's not just that they invade vietnam it's like they invade vietnam and then they fight this like there's really you know the, the immediate war doesn't last that long but they fight this like horrible border war that goes on for like a decade that kills enormous numbers of people and, you know, and, and the end result of this is like, yeah, like, you know, trying to get the technology transfers and they developed their economy, but uh, everyone else on earth. Yeah. <laughs> the cost is like ev- everyone who's ever tried to be a labor organizer in like, uh, you know, in, in like El Salvador gets murdered by a bunch of fascists. <laughs> yeah. And it's like every uh, development econ is so fucking frustrating because at every single step of the way. There's like there's like a really razor thin line between risk and reward at every step of the way. And yeah. so, like, uh, imperial powers will dangle technology transfers or extended yep. trade agreements on somewhat favorable terms uh, in exchange for allowing them to just, like, go to war with your neighbors, like, uh, or rope you into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or or extract resources that would be valuable for you later in your development phases. Yeah, actually, uh, th- this leads to me, um, you know, go- going to our hypothetical here, thinking about Vancouver Island, the People's Republic of Vancouver Island, uh, and we can kind of talk about some of the development traps because that's kind of what I'm was churning through my head right now because I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Vancouver Island at that <laughs> incredibly deep level of research, uh, and so what they list under the economy is there's a tech sector, logging, fishing, tourism, and food. Um, and so, you know, we talked first about, like, you could, like, sell off, like, the yachts and the cars and stuff like that. Uh, and that's, I don't even know if that counts as a sector of the economy at that level. That's a uh, zero yeah, level You can have sector. a yard sale. <laughs> yeah, you can have a yard day. sale. Uh, but, you know, logging and fishing, those are those are pretty solid primary sector economies. You know, uh, you know to that, describe the terminology, you know, they've got this, this is part of that hierarchy that Steve was talking about, that, you know, the chain of development and a primary sector is like a basic extractive element of your economy, a mine, uh, 
logging, fishing, food production, you know, basic goods. And then, you know, you talk about a secondary development, which is like manufacturing and then a tertiary, which is, you know, services. Uh, those are kind of your basic, those are usually considered like sectors of the economy, but in a way they kind of correspond to development. Um, and they require different amounts of development. And, you know, the thing about primary is that everybody needs those things. Like, unless people just stop using wood for construction, which we are very far from doing, we still use a lot of wood for construction, uh, your logging industry is going to have buyers. Um, until people stop buying, eating fish, your fishing industry is going to have buyers. You know, up to a really ludicrously bottomless reserve. Uh, but you're going to be stopped on that secondary industry until you have capital. Like, I don't mean just like the sense of having a lot of money, but you know, as, as Steve said, the right capital. money. <laughs> the right money and well you need capital production you need capital you need the machine yeah you need like you need you need yeah. your factories you need your yeah, like, you need, yeah so printers. you uh and wealthy countries uh partly in, in order to maintain their power they have they they want to be the only seller of capital goods yeah and, and they're gonna be very um, withholding about it um like, like a really good example for right now with like all of the inflation stuff going on and like the chip shortage yeah so oh, yeah, yeah. The machines that make the machines that make the chips, holy shit. Those are like, those are, they only make like 50 of those a year. Yeah. And it's all two companies. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wasn't, the, the, <laughs> the, the, thing with, the thing with the chip shortage, right, is also like, so if, if you can be like the people who do that, that gives you a lot of economic power. Like this is, this is one of Taiwan's things, right? Which is that like, you know, it's like, okay, so why hasn't Taiwan just sort of been bowled over by, by, China and like I mean, there's a lot of sort of geopolitical reasons for that, but it's also partly it's just that like yeah, like Taiwan has this enormous chip making industry, and it's incredibly advanced. And you know, and it has like you know, and this this is I think another thing that, that that's a real problem for sort of revolutionary society doing this is that like yeah, like Taiwan's chip making economy, like it's not like people like fall in like vats of chemicals like mm -hmm. a lot. Like there's a lot, there's a lot, like just horrible sort of labor exploitation, and and this comes back to even your sort of like, like you know if you're talking about your, your your sort of primary, primary sector stuff in the economy, which is that like okay, well, yeah, I mean like oil is a particular example of this, but like you know same with timber and same same with fish is that like these are extractive industries, yeah, and this becomes a real problem for a lot of your sort of like newly revolutionary developing societies Absolutely. because you you get this tension between. Um, like, and you see this a lot in, in Latin America. It's like, this is a, there's a huge tension like this in Bolivia, for example. You see this in Ecuador too, where like you have different factions of, you have different factions of the political movements where you have people who are like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with just like, you know, building these highways through indigenous land or just like yeah. doing mass deforestation or like digging, doing open pit mining. And those people will be like, well, those people will be leftists, right? There'll be people who are like, okay, well, we need to do this because we need to like, you know, this is an anti-poverty measure. We have to move up the value chain. We have to increase our mm -hmm. production. But then, you know, you have the indigenous people who's like, homes these are, right? Yeah, yeah. You, and, can, and, you can rationalize a lot of evil shit if you've yeah, got the right yeah. intellectual backing. Yeah, yeah. and like, and this this happens like in, in China too. There's like, like a lot mm -hmm. of the industrialization has been absolutely devastating. Like, and 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 this this becomes a real, like the, the, the fact that you need Forex becomes a this like incredible trap that that mm -hmm. you you sink into because it's like on, on the one hand like yeah like there are resources that you need in order to have a functioning society but it's also that that you can't get in, in, in your territory but also like the cost of getting that forex is enormous and and a mm -hmm. lot of times it's it, it's 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 a 
it, it, it it's something that just essentially destroys the revolutionary project. Yeah. What hit me when I looked at this list of uh, Vancouver's uh, economic sectors was, uh, you know, tourism being listed among the big ones. And my mind immediately went to Cuba, uh, to pre-revolutionary, pre-Castro Cuba. Yeah. And, you know, pre-Castro Cuba has all these things going for it off when you when you're looking at it from like a developmental standpoint you know it's got this like very good productive base of you know primary resources like sugar uh it has uh great relations with the united states of america particularly through the mafia uh you know yeah wonderful right uh it has uh you know the, the tourism industry is is very successful it's producing manufactured cigars so it even has a secondary industry bridge but it is still absolutely failing to develop in a way that is meaningful for the people living in Cuba. You know, pre, pre Castro Cuba was a nightmare for most people. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's that, that, like Steve said, you know, there's this razor thin thing between uh, risk and reward. And uh, during that, you know, during the forties and fifties in Cuba, it was just, it just made so much sense to just stick it with this, impoverished, extractive, tourist-heavy, mafia-friendly economy. And yeah, they were friendly with the U.S. They could have gone technology transfers in in principle, but were they actually going to? Uh, And that's something we have to think about with our our People's Republic of Vancouver Island is, you know, yeah, like people are going to want our logs. People are going to want our fishing. American tourists are going to come here and go whale watching, and that's going to bring in Forex. But are we going to be able to, like, leverage that? And how would we leverage that? Yeah, yeah. And I kind of want to move the conversation to like, I think people might be listening and saying like, okay, yeah, I can see why Forex would be important. But like, what are the specific ways in which we can acquire it, but also manage it? And it's like, okay, well. Without being were, evil, it, which we want. We, without we, being uh, evil. With, yeah, I mean, with, you can't while be, being socialists who want yeah. democracy. Um, okay. So I think if we're. I'm I'm picturing some sort of assembly structure taking shape because I'm a Libsoc, libertarian socialist. Um, and uh, it could be something else, but in any case, uh, I think they should appoint 50 or so people, some of them experts, some of them not, to examine, they should do a thorough economic analysis of the entire island. And you should do it on the basis of here are the assets we have. Here's where we want to go in terms of assets. How do we get from here to there? And one of the assets that you have is, okay, we have so many US dollars. We have so many Canadian dollars. We have reserve balances. So we need to import things. We can make some of it ourselves and we need to buy the rest of it. We can't buy all of it now. We need to cash flow some of this. We need to We need to do export-led growth, as the develop, the classic development econ people would say, where we say, we have some industries where we can gradually and consistently ramp up to the point that they give, they give us the types of money which we need in order to input capital goods, the machines that build machines, to buy them, learn how to use them, and maintain them, and then build more ourselves, ideally. And over the course of, say, basically, I'm basically suggesting that Vancouver Island should have a 10-year plan. <laughs> they should have a 10-year plan for, for their economic development. 
and it should be as democratically decided upon as possible within the limits of like, okay, there's some experts which will obviously be needed and not everyone can do that. But um, whatever assembly structure you have should be given oversight ultimately. And you should say, um, just be really frank with it. Like we have, these are our biophysical resources now. In 10 years, they should be this. In order to get there each year, these things need to happen. We have to have this much foreign currency. We have to have this many workers involved in this industry. Um, we can change things along the way, but we're constrained by these factors. We're like, we need trade partners. We need uh, to reverse engineer some technology that we've acquired or something in order to to educate ourselves on how to like create chips or something in the future. Um, yeah, there's like, there should be like an extremely vigorous discussion of what assets do we have? What do we need? What's our goal? And then thread together a development plan from there. And then use your MMT money to marshal the resources that you currently have and that you need for like the next year, say domestically while monitoring and augmenting your foreign currency reserves and um, using the tools of monetary policy to safeguard those reserves and economize on them in order to import what you can't yet make so that you can make it in the future. I think the, the thing that we should learn from the fact that like a lot of these projects haven't worked is well, I think it's twofold. One is that you have you, okay. There, there, there's constant sort of like there, there's traps you have to avoid that have to do with like, for example, like who actually has access to the forex, because this is what this is a way that like mm -hmm. you know, and, and mm -hmm. also like like because it, 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 it it's it's very very easy to like access to sort of like incidentally redevelop ruling classes when you're trying to do planning technology stuff and when you're trying when you're dealing with enormous amounts of foreign currency. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. And, you know, and, and the second problem has to do with sort of like, how, how, how do you make sure that your economy essentially doesn't end up as a resource colony? Mm -hmm. And this has, this has other components. And, and, you know, and I think, I think this is something that like, like the, there is a lot that can be done if you control like a region of territory, but there's, there's political limits on it. And the political limits have to do with, you know, who actually controls the sort of like vast majority of, of resources and technology. And the only way to really deal with that is that like, you know, you can't, you can't sort of have like you, if, if, if you want to actually have sort of long-term stability, you can't just have your sort of like your, your like libertarian socialist councils in one country. Like that's, it's a, it's a thing that has to like keep moving and keep spreading because otherwise it, it becomes, it becomes just increasingly difficult and you come under increasing pressures you know, for, you know, in, in order to do things that you do, that you need to do in order to make sure people don't starve, in order to make sure that people have education, in order to make sure that people, you know, are able to sort of live, live their lives. And also like in order to make sure that you don't just annihilate the, like annihilate the entire environment while doing this, because that's something that happens a lot when you, in these developmental estates is that like, you know, you, you, you get, you, 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 you get groups who are like come in the power and are like, well, okay, we're like, we're going to be an ecological regime. And then you know, they wind up having to, they wind up doing oil extraction and like open pit mining because that's, you know, that, that's the easiest way to, to, to get money. And I, and I think, I think like, I, I, I think 
it's it's valuable that like these are things that if if you're serious about taking power you have to think about but i i also think it's it's important to keep in mind just the the the, the the inherent limits that you have if you're just sort of an if if you're if you're a completely isolated like if if you're a completely isolated revolutionary movement in one place it doesn't have people where that you can you know give stuff to and move stuff around between oh um, yeah i mean it, yeah. it's 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 always been kind of, i mean that's that's been like a kind of inevitable thing that like you know I, there are there are communes in my extended family you know i've got members of my family who live on you know those little farm communes and they're not fully economically independent. Um, and I'm sure that we could find people who would be willing to say, Oh, you know, this is like, this is totally fake. This is not a real commune because they, you know, sell, uh, you know, sell sunflower seeds at the farmer's market and stuff. Uh, and that's kind of the unfortunate, that's kind of like the tough reality that, uh, Unless you manage to create a truly global revolution, as I said, unless until you've got like two thirds of the population under your umbrella, uh, you're going to have foreign relations and you're going to have foreign trade, uh, which is going to uh, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to manage. You know, you're going to have to be both. You're going to have to have like a you know a diplomatic core. That's something we're barely mentioning here, but like we're going to need to have diplomats coming out of this council if we're talking about them having relations with the u.s and canada uh and you know negotiating these trade deals you know these trade deals don't happen out of nowhere um and uh you know we kind of brush this aside but it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a misperception that people tend to have that uh the united states is pro-free trade in like an extreme sense that like any trade with the united states is done without any tariffs Oh yeah, no. I don't think that you, if you believe that, without having done a lot of research, I do not think that that is an absurd thing to believe because that is the propaganda that is passed along in common knowledge. A very quick examination of how trade works between international actors will reveal that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of tariffs active all the time in every trade deal. <laughs> Yeah, and like the like the the the, the big one with the U.S. agricultural subsidies, which mm-hmm. are just it is it is it is illegal to have them. We have like just in just like billions and billions and billions of dollars of agricultural subsidies that oh, have yeah, us producing cheap food. That's like yeah. we're not even good at making it. Like it's it's a complete disaster. It I mean this like this this is just single handedly annihilated the economies of like enormous swaths of the globe because the, because no one can compete with with American agricultural subsidies and it's you yeah. know and, and but like it when when you join the free trade system like that's one of the carve outs that was that's 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 in the WTO is you can't have uh subsidies for for your agricultural programs uh except for the US yeah and it's and, it's great and, and by great and, and, i mean everyone dies well and there's all sorts of like weird technical ways that you can create pseudo subsidies you know mm-hmm. uh you know Italy very famously has a price floor on wine. Uh, and this means that, you know, if you if you make a bottle of wine that nobody would buy for the minimum price, the government will buy it off of you for that price. And so there are, there are wineries in Italy that just produce wine at such a, this is so bad, nobody would buy, nobody, you'd have to pay people to drink it. Uh, but the government just buys it at this minimum set price and then throws it in a, in a giant Olympic swimming pool vat. Mm. Uh, to go rot, uh, and like th- there are 
yeah, there, 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 the trade is, you know, there, there's a lot more complex. The, the free trade is kind of a myth at the international level. Uh, it is at it's at the most cynical free trade as a doctrine is a cudgel used by more powerful countries that they impose that you have to do free yeah. trade with them and that they get to do protracted trade with you. Well, it's yeah. a it's well, firstly, like you mentioned, it's a myth. Mm-hmm. And historically speaking, we had like we had infant industries in this country that were highly protected from the very earliest days through most of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And we had, uh, we had expert led growth from infant led for infant industries in the U S and that's precisely the opposite advice. We now turn around and give via our Imperial like apparatus from the IMF and the world bank to, to developing countries and like countries, countries that, that examined what the U S was telling them to do and did the opposite are the ones that succeeded. Yes. Like yes. South Korea said, nah, fuck that. And, and they went up the value chain and they did all of the things that we said Vancouver Island should do, basically. Yeah, except except uh, not being evil. They did not do that. Uh, well, they, yeah. okay, they were evil. <laughs> they were yeah, evil I, for a time and they were dictatorial. But yeah, they, in yeah. terms of their economic development plan, divorced from political reality, which is probably naive of me to say, mm-hmm. um, they took the opposite advice of the IMF yeah, in terms yeah. of that narrow scope. Well, yeah, and I, I think the the other thing that's kind of important here that we haven't really touched on yet is that like, so part 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 of what was going on with with South Korea's economy is that South Korea's economy was it was a war economy, and it was a war economy designed to build. I mean, originally just it was it was a war economy because they were fighting a war, right? But then it became this. I mean, it was a central axis of sort of the the production, the Korean War, and then it became this axis that uh, like it became a huge part of the American sort of arms industry in in Vietnam, and this is the same thing. Japan has this too, where both of these economies are like a huge part of the reason why they're able to develop is because they get enormous amounts of just money and then guaranteed yeah, contracts and stuff true. like that from American military development. And and this is a, this is another really big problem for like your sort of free state that like you've created, like whatever your sort of like council republic, your like autonomous mm-hmm. zone, your like indigenous confederation is that like. You need weapons, and the people who make guns are like the U.S. and Russia, and this is a real you know and and you know we've we've been talking on this show about about producing mm-hmm. like three D printed weapons, but I mean you know in terms of things yeah. like you know you're like artillery right like in yes. terms of your mortars and like things like that or like you know you you can't you can't three D print to best of my knowledge. And I'm like 99.99% sure about this, that like, unless you had extremely advanced facilities and even then it's not clear to me, like, I, I, I like, I, I don't think anyone on earth has ever pre 3d printed like an anti-aircraft rocket. Like you, 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 yeah, like, you know, you I can't mean, make, you can't make stingers, you can't make man pads, you can't make like anti-tank, anti-aircraft weapons. And, not to, not to get too much into it, but like the way in which Ukraine is fighting like Russian tanks in its very specifics is kind of encouraging actually. Yeah, but like, like things that you, you like the like specific. Yeah, I mean, there's only a few companies who are making the components for these things. Yeah, so like, that's a problem. And that's like that's the, the thing. like the personnel launched uh, the in law or whatever things. Yeah, like the the, the anti tank and anti aircraft weapons. Like, yeah, if, if you can get them, they're effective and they they do they they do stuff. That's they're mostly just you, handed like, out from by the U.S. or the U.K. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's that's a huge problem if you're you know not trying to like be a political colony of these two things and stuff. And, and this this is another trap that you see like 
you see dictators especially falling into, which is that that they, you know, okay, so like on the one hand, yeah, you do need weapons, right? Like you you need you need some kind of military complex, and you you need arms in order to make sure that like you know you're not like the U.S. doesn't roll tanks across the border. But simultaneously, like there's there's a thing that happens a lot with this is happening with petrostates where you know okay so you, the 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 U.S. is like okay so we need this oil right. And how, how do you how do you deal with this sort of balance payments deficits? And the answer is we just sell them like a hundred billion tanks and we just like we just like dump F-35s on them. And you, you can get into these scenarios where like you get these like because I mean the, the problem with weapons, right? It's like, okay, so you need them to survive, but they also they don't produce anything. Right. In fact, they're, they're, they're sort of they're sort of net economic negatives because the only thing you could do with a gun is I mean, I guess you could technically hunt, but like, you know, the the thing you're doing with the weapon is destroying value. Yeah. Like yeah. And, and I mean and and they require maintenance. Yeah, yeah, you and, know, and, like, these things are substantial net negatives. Yeah. yeah, and 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 you know, and, and countries get sucked into these traps where, like, you know, okay, we're we're just going to keep buying American weapons because of security, or like, uh, we 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 want to invade some yeah. other country, or like, or you know, and you see this with, with Soviet weaponry too, like back back when that was a thing, and and today modern Russian weaponry, where it's like, yeah, you can you can get funneled into these traps where like the ruling class of your society just decides that it the thing that it wants to just spend as forex on his weapons and, and you have to be very very like you have to be you know and, and this is the thing that happens like like evner hoaxa for example famously like makes just a bunch of bunkers right and like militarizes society and it's like well you know part of this is just hoaxa being extremely weird but like you, you have to be very careful when you're a society that is genuinely under threat that you're not sort of like just throwing all of your resources into into stuff like that, where you it, you know it doesn't it doesn't produce anything, but you know, and it, yeah, and also I mean, this is it is a it is a need, like yeah, like, uh, whatever the the Vancouver Economic Planning whatever group should like one of one of the objectives would Frank would be military, of course, yeah. Um, you need to. I don't know if you could get your hands on in-laws or man pads or anything like that, but you. Um, I think you would be foolish, frankly, not to distribute and train on weapons and stuff like that. Yeah, and use, I, I use think, some of your forex for that. Yeah, yeah. Like I, th- I think, like yeah, it's like you have to use some of it for that, and it sucks because this is something that like it, this this sucks you into the arms complex, right? Yeah, I mean, but like Ro- Rojava, like- Rojava is using its oil revenues. Um, to fund like fifty percent of its expenditure, almost is at least like in twenty twenty or the last time I checked was uh to defense forces. Yeah, and like and yeah, this, this is I <laughs> and mean, a lot of that thing. a lot of that came from dollars, euros, and um, Turkish lira that they yeah, acquired and, through oil. Yeah, and like this, and this is the thing that, like, yeah, this 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 is a problem if you're in the revolutionary society surrounded by people who just literally want to murder you. Where <laughs> it's like stuff like this winds up happening, and you wind up like I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's like it's, it's obviously it's hard real, to, it's like, just a reality. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a you know that that that's a good example of like what happens if the revolution doesn't spread, and if you get mm. sort of like if you get isolated and contained by imperial powers who just want to murder you, is that you wind up like. You, you you basically you you wind up fighting an endless war against both the proxy forces and the real forces of armies that are significantly larger and more powerful than you and mm-hmm. yeah and there's a, you know, a lot of times there's not much you can do about it but it's like 
I think, you know, in, in terms of like, like in, in the school of high principle, like this is why internationalism is important. I mean, yeah. And the, the, of course, obviously the other answer is, you know, selling out on the revolution. And, you know, yeah. we, 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 you know, the, there's the example that people tend to think about of Tsaritsa. Uh, you know, Tsaritsa gets elected on all these like radical promises for Greece and then just doesn't do any of them. Um, and then you can look at, say, Nepal and, you know, the, the communists won in Nepal and then they establish a government that's functionally, you know, it's a liberal government. Yeah, my my, my 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 favorite Nepal fact is that uh, the, the okay, so the, Nepal has like seventeen different like Maoist factions, but the, the guy who was the yeah. head of, of of the of the largest Maoist faction, uh, yeah, yeah, the, I, I think it's him. Is is he's he's the one who now lives in the mansion of the guy who used to be the Nepalese head of security. I think so. Yeah, think and it's like, huh, huh. We've well, this is this this has gone great. We've we've changed the person in the mansion. It's like <laughs> <laughs> you've kind of. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean the and, and you know uh, not too surprisingly, uh, you know the second leader a couple about a year ago, Kiran was uh, on the verge of declaring a new people's war against the Maoist faction. Yeah, like it's... you know Ma- a Maoist war against the Maoists. Like, yeah, I mean that's you know you 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 end up it's yeah it's it's, it's tricky to try to like game it out so to speak because you know my. I, I, I maybe I'm just squeamish. I, I am hoping for things to not happen with a river of blood. Yeah. Uh, in in life, I, I hope that uh, I hope that we don't get rivers of blood. Um, oh, plan plan for war so you get you get peace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you like, like like Chris has said, you know, you can get trapped into like that that escalating security dilemma. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, investing in security doesn't actually necessarily lead to security. We have you know over a century of looking at Latin American countries that. Uh, investments in the military is just investments in the next civil war. Yeah, or um, or, or you get cooed, and that's yeah, that's, that's another yeah. real problem. Like like, I mean, it's weird because it's like a double, it's a double edged sword. Because like the 20th century, like there's a there's a lot of like socialisty governments that come into power just from military coups, but also mm-hmm. like probably more of those governments like get overthrown by their own coups. And it's yeah, uh, there was yeah. there was one lesson I learned from playing Tropico. It's that. <laughs> If you try to invest more in your, no matter how much you invest in your military, it only will ever get you up to 50-50 odds of surviving a coup. Yeah, this is a, a don't have colonels and don't have generals. Yeah, like, the whole like, problem is then, then then you get captains coups. So yeah, you know, no, like, Jesus, it's always <laughs> colonels. Like, yeah, there's always colonels. It's it's because they're like passed up for generalship by the next administration or something. Yeah, yeah although again, again, some, sometimes sometimes you do get like. Sometimes you get like your Pinochet, and sometimes you do get your captain's coups, and it's like, this is a that that guy was that's ambition right there. When the captain coups the government, that's yeah, ambition. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, once, I, well, once your captains have hit fuck it mode, it's yeah, like, like almost, things are bad. <laughs> yeah, that's indicative of like bigger, deeper problems. Yeah, well, and I think like the, the Bathists are an interesting example of this because like okay, so like the Bathists were never like good, but like you know the, the Bathists like originally like were kind of a mass movement, but then. Mm-hmm increasingly like over time as as they consolidate power through military sort of revolutions like it, it becomes increasingly just the bathists are powerful because they have control of like various portions of the military and you know and like the the, the end result of this is like instead of having revolutions like you just get you just get all, all political power has nothing to do with whatever's happening in the street you get these giant protests that are like we want to go back to being part of unite the the uh uh United Arab Republic and it just doesn't matter because the actual political power is just what happens when the army fights itself 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think like there's no easy solution to that other than just like don't have an armed body that's separate from just the masses of people, which is difficult to do, but yeah. also like I mean Or just yeah. arm the people somewhat. Yeah, and and you know it's, it's, uh, it's means of violence should be more evenly distributed. Yeah, um, I will say that, that was uh, I guess part of why the the scenario we had started off with like you've declared the People's Republic because the question of how you get that People's Republic feels like that's seventy five percent of your podcast uh, podcast episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, we, we've done we've done we've done just like a miracle has occurred, but like a revolution has occurred, and yeah. then, I don't know they like blockaded well, I mean, all the you know, roads it's, or it's, something um, like. I, I, as I like to say, it's good to have a plan for if you win. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think it would like, suck to win and then fumble once you've already gotten. Yeah, like, and th- this this is something that like that actually does happen a lot, which is like you, you get into the, you get into these revolutionary like moments, but then there's just sort of like no like no one has any idea what to do next, and so they sort of bungle it, or you know you get into revolutionary scenarios. Yeah, or, or you get into revolutionary scenarios where like nobody's thought about what happens next and that that's that's another way that like yeah these these things collapse all the time that's another way you get like you know this this is in some sense like the 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 whole of the sort of yep like the trial and error of the 20 of the the 20th century which most of which sort of ended in error is that Mm -hmm. you know a bunch of people were experimenting and a lot of the stuff they tried didn't work and there are lots of reasons for that but you like you have to in order to win you have to actually be serious about taking power and you have to be you know, you you have to be thinking strategically and, and have a like, have at least a vision of what you're going to do before you like, you know, like be, before things happen. Because otherwise, there's just sort of like you know, you just you just get sort of mass confusion and yeah, and, yeah. and say what say what you will about the fascists, yeah. they know what they're yeah. going to do when they seize power. They're not confused well, about it. It's more well, their <laughs> their problems are what you do after. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 yeah, they're not confused about that. Those first like forty eight um, hours when things start falling their way. Like, I hope that nothing we've said. I hope that nothing we've said on this podcast kind of makes people think like, oh, they so they have like one weird trick basically to like secure secure no. your power. Like, yeah. obviously no. Um, and like, and that and that we aren't like singularly focused on acquiring forex or something. Also, yeah, no. I, I mean, this, uh, it's this just like, like yeah. it's an important lever to to have at your disposal and like well number one you should know that it's important number two you should have yeah. tools in place such as like uh running a running a fixed extra uh, fixed exchange rate or something to make it a bit easier to acquire forex uh, on the whole or um doing capital controls or doing price controls or something like that and you should have these tools in mind in order to get from year one to year ten in terms of your biophysical resources, like here's what we have, here's what we need, and uh, you know some of that could be military, some of that could be economic, and some of that could be political. And um, no one, like, I don't have the answers. We don't have the answers, but um, at each step of the way, you need to find groups of people who can come together and think objectively about them. Yeah, I I, I want. Uh... Yeah, it's not that I think that there is an answer. I, I'm kind of thinking about it almost a little bit parallel to like, we know that if we create our, you know, if if socialists manage to seize any amount of power, they're going to reform whatever healthcare system they're currently existing in. Uh, we know that it's going to be better because it would be hard for it to be worse. Uh, but 
you know, that's making a good hospital system is not the entire thing that makes a revolution happen. It is just one of those things that you need to do and you need to think about it. And my objective here, and it's uh, a lot of my objective with, you know, making this whole magazine project is that my socialism means that we we have say over our lives. You know, that's fundamental to me, that we have say over what we do with our lives. And I want to make sure that the people who are in this with me, which is hopefully everybody, I am an optimist. I'm hoping that everybody is with me on creating a, a better socialist world, that all of us are at least somewhat informed about the decisions we're making. I, I'm not actually economically trained. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I've learned this stuff as I've gone. Uh, it's not in, insurmountable. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I, I would want the decision about how do we make a socialist economy, you know, the, the core of socialism, worker control of the means of production, that the people involved, again, hopefully everybody, uh, has, you know, at least has uh, an inkling of what's going on. I don't want people to be confused and baffled by the decisions being made on their behalf. That's, you know, a mm -hmm. fundamental evil of a capitalist system that we don't know what the fuck decisions are being made for us by powerful people. Well, part of the, part of the problem comes back to education. Cause like people are, um, the bourgeoisie have hogged, they've hoarded the knowledge of how to plan in certain respects. And I think socialists, Socialists will sometimes look at the body of knowledge in terms of planning an economy and say like, well, because they are the only ones who know how to do that, the knowledge itself is tainted. And like, I don't need to learn this because it's evil, basically. I don't need to learn how to manage a, a currency board or do forex management because that's money and that's evil stuff. Yeah. And I, hope, and I hope what we've described so far says like, I don't know if it's evil or not, but it's important and it should be, I think, I honestly think you're going to probably, probably fail if you don't uh, consider these things at each step of the way. Yeah. And, and even in your, like, one of the things that, that you see a lot with socialist countries is they have basically have like a firewall, right? Where they, they try to keep a separation between the parts of their economy that like are planned and the parts of their economy that like are about moving forex around and i think like okay like uh, th th there are varying degrees of effectiveness of this but like this is like even even if you're like okay like we want to get rid of the economy right like we want to get rid of labor we want to get rid of all the stuff as a concept like you're gonna have to deal like uh, until until you like win right like until until you've like until you've like raised a flag over like new york berlin Shanghai, like, and New Delhi at the same time, right? Like you're, you're going to be, you're going to have to be dealing with this stuff and how, how you do that and how quickly you're able to, to figure this stuff out and how quickly you're, you're able to implement it and how quickly you're able to sort of like seize control of and use the resources that you have in order to advance your political project is you know that 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 that's going to be one of the things that determines whether or not your revolution survives, no matter what it's fighting for. Mm -hmm. Like in addition to all the military stuff, um, military and economic, I think you have to just say, like, you have to get to a point economically and militarily and all the other rest of stuff to where you can just say to international powers, like, I don't need to make some moral claim to you. 
I've built a better mousetrap. I'm going to let the people decide. And it's like, it just shows people living freely together uh, and enjoying a good standard of living. And they don't need to exploit each other to get it. And like for not everyone, but many people that will be really appealing. And you have to have like, uh, well, more than just a diplomatic core, you have to have like an entire, like a full court international push to say like, it's just a better mousetrap. It's like, it's, um, I don't need to focus on moral claims about like, well, it's better because you should just care about people because of like, you should care about people more than capitalism permits because it's just morally right. Um, that may be the case, but also people want to get paid and they want to be treated well and have a decent standard of living at the same time. And we can do it. So here's, so here's how, like you've, you've shown them specific steps you've taken and you've shown them the material standard of living that is shared democratically. And, um, it's not just like a state giving, handing things out to people. It's like, a a, um, true industrial democracy where it's like you, you get plugged in, you make decisions each along the way. And, um, yeah, basically that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I, th- I think, I think that's a pretty good note to, to end on as a, 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 a thing that we want and things that are going to have to be components of it. And also, I guess thinking about, you know, like rejecting theories about money as incomplete that don't deal with the fact that you don't have all the resources in your country and you in fact need other things to acquire them that you cannot simply create into existence. Yeah. Do you two have anything else you want to say before I guess you move into plugs? I, I mean, like, like I said, I mean, I, I, you know, we, we, this may have sounded like a whole bunch of, you know, high minded theoretical egghead crap, but again, I am, I'm not formally educated on this stuff. Uh, this is stuff that I have learned and participated in uh, as a socialist first and foremost, and it's been driven uh, from the get-go, at least for me, from um, a really fundamental desire for egalit- for egalitarianism and for people having a say in their own lives. And uh, I, I hope that the people uh, who have stuck with us through this, uh, who didn't know these concepts before... Uh, feel a little bit more equipped to participate in a discussion uh, about um, how you would handle these things. And as, as I kind of alluded to, this scales all the way down to, you know, uh, 12 hippies on a farm. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this, this scales <laughs> yep. all the way up until you've got a total, total global communism. For pretty much anything below that, uh, this, this, these principles scale. And uh, I... I hope that people feel um, more able and more willing to uh, engage both. First of all, you know, to, to tell liberals to, you know, shut the fuck up uh, that I should have a say over how I participate in the economy, even when that's things like Forex that seem very abstract and far away. Like yep. I, I am, I'm a person who's affected by this. Therefore I've got a stake. Therefore my opinion matters. Uh, and that you you can get there, you can learn, and you should be allowed to participate in that. And yeah, the, this this is what I'm trying to create is you know that socialists do not feel like they can they'll just get browbeaten out of the room of a discussion because some liberal nerd pushed up their glasses a whole bunch and spun their bow tie and then 
<laughs> sense of bullshit. Like you, no, you. It is your life, and uh, you have a right to have an opinion on it. And this is not an insurmountable thing to. It's it's hard. I want to be clear here. This is hard, and I want, but I want you in the discussion. Well said. Yeah. So I guess speaking speaking of uh, things that people are involved in, uh, I can I can do transitions like this because I'm a professional. Um, yeah. Do you do you two want to talk a bit about your magazine? Sure. Like we mentioned at up top, we're uh, Kyle and I are both co-editors of Strange Matters magazine, and we're in the middle of a fundraiser right now. You can find the fundraiser at the URL tinyurl.com slash strange matters. No, no dashes or anything. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at strange underscore matters. And the magazine itself is going to be a, we're a literary magazine and each issue we're, we're publishing in both print and digital. And the print Issue one is about 300 pages, and it's split in half between the front pages, which is um, topics like economics, philosophy, politics, um, more technical fields. And then the back pages is art, um, uh, like culture reviews. Um, anthropology is a... Anthropology, like uh, more certain... We, we kind of attach it to the word meaning, like meaning development. And um, and there's a middle resting spot, which is actually called the futon, which is a play on, a play on the word fuyatan, which is like kind of a resting spot between those two halves where there's going to be short pieces of usually of humorous nature. And um, overall, it's going to cover a wide range of topics. And... You can find out more of us. You can find out more about us on our fundraiser on our website, strangematters.coop. We got a couple articles already up on strangematters.coop. Uh, we have a Steve wrote an amazing piece explaining a, some very, uh, in very layman's terms, some arguments about what inflation is and why we should care about it. You know, it's very quite good. Yeah, very relevant right now. Uh, we have a. Truly delightful um, review of of very contemporary, very recently made cyberpunk works uh, by Elizabeth Sandifer, author of Neo Reaction of Basilisk, which anybody who listens to this podcast needs to read Neo Reaction of Basilisk. Uh, and she did us the wonderful favor of doing a pop culture review for us. Uh, we've yeah, we've also got a, a work uh, by the editors, uh, Words for Our Present Reality, about what how how can we discuss what actually exists in the world and what are the shortcomings with our current with just like the basic levels of our discourse and how can we advance beyond beyond this difficulty and it's you know it's something that sounds like it's supposed to be this very high level philosophy but we've been i i think uh I don't want to take too much credit for this because I, I was not the main writer on it uh i think that uh, we've successfully managed to uh bring it down to a to a, a lower brow level uh you know to a to a a level that uh doesn't require you to have 18 letters after your name of various college degrees <laughs> uh we also managed to publish a piece by a russian dissident and we i'm, I'm very excited for the the works that people are going to see in the future from us we've got a history of black cooperative movements uh we've i, I wrote a nice little ditty about uh, colonialism in modern board games uh 
I'm I'm very excited for people to get the chance to read these, and uh, you know, it's all kind of in the service of us creating a more of us democratizing the socialist world and making it making it meaningful, making it useful, and also making it pleasurable for people to be socialists and to fight for uh, a freer and more equitable world. Yeah, do you two do you two want people to find you on social media, and if so, where? <laughs> Okay. You can say no to this. People do sometimes because first <laughs> hell site. Okay. I well, don't have social media. So. <laughs> Kyle's not really on social media. Uh, I am on some social media, so you can find uh, you can find me at at Capim in Wackham, and I'll spell that out because it's kind of confusing. <laughs> at C A P M N W A C C M. Misspelling <laughs> <laughs> your own username. Oh boy. Um, yeah. So, Strange Matters is our our campaign will run through this month, and it's going pretty good so far. But we can use uh, every little bit of support goes a long way. So yeah, find find us at our website and also the fundraiser. Yeah, we're we're not getting paid. Uh, just to be clear, this is the we we need to pay the authors. We need to pay for the printers. But you know, this is not us <laughs> trying to make a quick buck. This is us trying to make sure we we are not willing to accept paying our writers substandard yeah. writing yeah, fees. We're going to that pay our bullshit. writers higher than market rate as, as on principle because we think the market rate is just too low. It really is. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um. Oh, and by the way, our we're. I think I mentioned it, but we're a workers cooperative. So we're 100% worker owned and control. There's no, there are no levels of employment or ownership. We're all horizontal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go, go check out Strange Matters. Um, yeah. Thank, thank you to both for, thank you both for joining us. It was a wonderful Thanks. time, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. And uh, if you want to find more of us, uh, we're at Happens Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram. I keep saying Instagram. I've never actually. I'm not on Instagram, so I, I've been told we have one. I've never interacted with it. Uh, yeah, and uh, Coolzone Media has our other shows. Go listen to them. Uh, they're good, and we work a lot on them. All right, bye bye. Goodbye. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Oh, it could happen here, and it's currently happening there. There being Ukraine, which is in the midst of an invasion by the Russian government. I'm Robert Evans. This is a podcast about bad things and how to make them better. I'm joined, as often, by Garrison and Chris, my co-hosts, and we are talking about some of the advice, good and bad, that's been going around on social media about how to disable and destroy armored vehicles. This is something we've kind of waited to do until the conflict was a little bit more of a mature state. But in brief, if you have been following what's been happening in Russia through the lens of social media, or what's happening in Ukraine through the lens of social media, one thing that has happened is in the early stages of the invasion, a whole bunch of people flocked, particularly to Twitter, uh, but also, not this did not just stay on Twitter. There were a large number of mainstream news articles published on the subject of the things people were saying to talk about different ways civilians could disable uh, Russian armored vehicles or otherwise stymie and thwart uh, the progress of Russian military units through their cities. Um, and this has been accompanied by things like the Ukrainian government giving out information on how to make Molotov cocktails. We talked about this in our Molotov cocktail episode and putting out really neat infographics on where to throw Molotov cocktails to disable armored vehicles. Um, but it's also come with a lot of bad advice that I don't want people who are maybe looking at the potential of urban combat happening in their future to take away from this conflict, because there's also a lot of disinfo. So that's what we're talking about today. Yes. And I guess one of the first places to probably discuss this urban combat idea is the probably the guy who's tried to make kind of a career out of talking about urban combat, which would be sure John Spencer, mm-hmm. who, who wrote a relatively viral Twitter thread on this topic sure and has been writing about this thing for the past few years. Um, he's uh, he's the, the chair of urban warfare studies at West Point's Modern War Institute and served for like a quarter of a century as an infantry soldier, uh, including two deployments into Iraq. And yeah, the past few years, he's tried to kind of make a name for himself as the guy who writes about urban combat. And yeah. uh, obviously, since this was happening uh, largely when Russia started invading uh, Kiev, John Spencer put put together some of his thoughts that went pretty viral on this on this said topic. 
Yeah, and it's it's frustrating. You've got a quote in here from one of the articles about he was giving out that says, some of his advice, such as preparing simple Molotov cocktails, is already being seen on the streets of Kiev, which is kind of framing it as if Spencer advised the Ukrainians yeah, to make Molotovs. <laughs> no. Absolutely not true. Before he made that thread, the government was urging people to resist. And also, like, Molotov cocktails got their name from people in Finland, not super far from Ukraine, resisting the Russian military in a very similar way to how they're being used by Ukrainian civilians now. Yeah. Um, what I I believe what John Spencer did, he's a guy with some qualifications, um, certainly like not a, a random person. We'll talk about random people giving advice too on Twitter. But he's also, all none of his advice is new. None of it is from him. None of it is counterintuitive. A good deal of it is bad. And most of what he said that is good is just him pulling things from U.S. military combat manuals and from Ukrainian military combat manuals and then putting it up in social media in order to go viral and try to get another book deal by making it look as if he is giving advice that is being adopted in real time, which is not what is happening. Yeah. I mean, like a good good instance of this is, yeah, he's claiming that they're making Molotov cocktails due to his advice. I mean. There's a picture in that very article that was taken before he even posted that thread. So it's like, no, they're, they're, people know how to make Molotov cocktails. That's not hard to find out. In a lot yeah. of cases, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian government was giving out instructions on how to do it. And I mean, and if you, if you look at this picture, um, it looks very similar to a lot of, a lot of like the, the, the almost like small defensive weapons factories that we saw across the States in 2020. You mm -hmm. would often see just collections of bottles uh, just ready to be thrown, all kind of laid out mm -hmm. in 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 melt crates, very similar to this photo. Now there was there was less actual Molotov cocktails, but the way that this is whole, the way that this is all set up looks looks very similar to any kind of insurgency tactics of being like, yes. yeah, there's going to be spontaneous on the ground organizing because people are just kind of naturally gifted at that. And on a on an objective level, Molotov cocktails have a place on an urban battlefield. They can be useful weapons for disabling armored vehicles, for causing distractions, for injuring and even sometimes uh, killing soldiers. They are they are capable of doing that. And they that's part of why the Ukrainian government put out these guides showing like where to huck the sons of bitches in order to disable, you know, transports and armored vehicles and whatnot. Now, that said, attempting to attack a military column with a Molotov cocktail in most circumstances, is very close to suicidal. And I've watched a number of videos of Ukrainians do it, and the times that seem to be most successful is when you have areas where the Russians are attempting to establish control. You have small groups of vehicles that are moving down residential streets. You have a significant amount of traffic, of civilian traffic, occurring alongside those military convoys. And as they pass the convoy, a civilian hucks a Molotov. Or as they pass a building, a civilian hucks a Molotov. Um, and those seem to be, broadly speaking, the situations in which people have kind of gotten away with it. We don't have any kind of, I'm not aware of any kind of solid uh, overarching analysis of all of the use of Molotovs in this. But that is, broadly speaking, a potentially effective way to use a Molotov cocktail uh, in order to degrade military capacity of an occupier. What doesn't work and what Spencer and a number of other people suggested is, is huck and paint at tanks uh, or other armored vehicles. Yeah. And that may be surprising to a lot of people. I think there's a lot of folks who want to believe this, uh, want to believe that, that that could really work because 
it it's like Ewok shit, right? It I mean, feels and it, like and the kind of thing insurgent should police. be doing. Yes, but here is the thing: when you have police officers who are tear gassing an area, and you huck a bunch of paint, and you get it over their face masks, and they cannot see, it reduces their ability to tear gas you for a while. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them have less fun, and it damages gear. When you huck a bunch of paint at an armored vehicle, the armored vehicle will return fire with a 50 caliber mounted Dashka or some other similar gun, which fires bullets that are large enough to take chunks the size of your head out of concrete, and you will be torn apart and your organs liquefied in a hail of metal. Um, meanwhile, the paint that you are attempting to throw at that vehicle is almost certain to have no impact on it. Um, not only are you unlikely to get close enough to use the paint, because you have to be considerably closer to do that than you have to with a Molotov in most situations, but also tanks are built with the understanding that it is possible that one or more of the ways in which they see will be obstructed. Tank yeah. drivers are trained to drive blind. There are ways of utilizing tanks when vision is obstructed because in the kinds of fights that tanks are built to get into, they are often in situations where there is so much smoke around them, De so many things bursting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That there is effectively zero visibility, which is why when Spencer started talking about people throwing paint at tanks, a number of tank drivers came out yeah. and said, that's actually horrible advice. <laughs> like They don't work that way. And I was... I was chatting with a couple of people. Um, there was one fellow, a former Green Brain named Mike Nelson, who was posting about Spencer and very angry that he was basically copying material directly from stuff published by the Ukrainian government. And then like getting up anytime journalists or media figures would comment about Ukraine would like, like there's a nasty post here where uh, Ann Cabrera, who I think is some sort of reporter, was like, I feel heartsick upon the latest news out of Mariupol. My God, just like expressing horror at humanitarian tragedy. And Spencer posts a link to his personal website and says, me too. Not sure if you saw my mini manual for the Urban Defender, but it is available in English and Ukrainian. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh -huh. it's, so like, anyway, grifty shit like that. But Yeah, because that, and it's all that's very different than also like throwing paint at like, a squad car or a, like a riot, yes. like a riot truck that's coming through. Because if you're going to obscure their vision, the worst that they can do is crash into a wall. They're not going to start firing uh, massive uh, head yes. explosion rounds from a central. Uh, yeah. So they they do not like for one thing, the like the police, as bad as they can be, their default when they come under any kind of like attack is not to start firing machine guns wildly in all directions not not yet <laughs> which <at> russian <laughs> soldiers do yeah. not yet at yeah. least um but you know the other thing i was chatting with uh matthew mora who's a is has been one of the guys who's been yelling at spencer on twitter matthew was a marine corps tank commander and was blown up in afghanistan so he was in a tank that was attacked several times and eventually destroyed um, so he's, he has some firsthand knowledge about what works and does not work against tanks. And one of the things he pointed out is that the people who destroyed his tank put together, I don't know, $100, $200 worth of various accelerants and random scrap metal and made a bomb that destroyed an Abrams tank. That works a lot better than paint. Yeah. And it's it's the kind of thing where... I think one of the things that's frustrating here is you've got a lot of these like American kind of military academic guys. And I know Spencer served, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. It doesn't mean it, just being deployed to Iraq doesn't mean you did anything. But they were deployed and maybe they did see urban combat. But I have watched United States soldiers in an intense urban combat environment 
Uh, and most of what they did was be inside of MRAPs because it's very hard to blow those up while the Iraqi military did a great deal of the fighting. And when U.S. soldiers did engage in fighting, they did so with absolute air supremacy and with artillery supremacy, um, which isn't to say that it wasn't dangerous, but it is a profoundly different situation than engaging in urban combat when the airspace is contested and when you do not have artillery supremacy. So what does that mean in terms of like what can people actually take away that's useful from this? Um, well, on an individual level, some things have been extremely effective. Ukrainian territorial defense militias have been very effective at doing things like picking up small arms, going out in small patrols into uh, rural environments around the area where Russian troops are moving in small convoys. And oftentimes, because of the way the advance went, you would have a single or a couple of Russian munitions trucks essentially alone and unsupported trying to find their way around. Um, you had civilians doing stuff like turning signs around, like removing yeah. signs. Which they were instructed to by yeah. various Ukrainian officials as well. Yes, yes. And which I'm sure some people just started doing because it seemed like a good idea. Um, but that sort of shit causes them to burn fuel, causes them to abandon vehicles. You had these kind of independent groups of farmers towing away abandoned vehicles. You had small raiding parties attacking convoys and attacking isolated units. You had cases where, you know, Russian military units early in the fight would get into Kiev uh, kind of on accident and be ambushed by territorial defense units and wiped out. And those are all very effective examples of of decentralized kind of ground up resistance against a, a, a major military force. Now, one thing we don't know that is important if you think about the potential that you might have to endure something like this is we have no idea what the casualties were like among those. units. Yeah. it is a total black box. And it's it's probable that part of why Russian forces did the war crime they did in Bukha um, was because they had an attitude that all civilians were insurgents, which is, you know, what happens when you have kind of a people's war, which doesn't justify an act of genocide. Um, but it is something people should keep aware of when you start fucking with the signs and ambushing the convoys and throwing Molotovs. One of the things that will happen is it will accelerate the violence that is being done. Yeah, and it, it makes to them the seem civilian more population. of a justified target in some, you know, propaganda lens. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't mean like uh, it's you should resist if you are invaded. Um, but these are things that also should be noted is this is what happens when you resist, right? This, this is what a, a modern war of this type looks like. Other things that I, I'm not sure if they've been effective, but they're certainly not bad strategies is the construction of a lot of vehicle barriers, tank traps. That was what blockades. I was talking about next is, yeah, 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 is, yeah. Is, is the barricade thing both than what we've been kind of seeing or being speculated about in the East and then how we've seen, you know, barricade setups a lot in the past few years in various resistance movements to, a, you know, a variety of success levels and non-success levels. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it, these are like you know b barriers, tank traps of a very long history in in warfare. So they absolutely can be and have been effective many many times on the battlefield. So this is not an area of does this thing work, but it is a question of like and and this is something we just don't seem to have perfect data on. Did it did it particularly play a role in what's happening here? And yeah. um, that's harder to tell, uh, and is probably going to be different. You know, depending on the tactical in area you're talking about, and which kind of like theater you're talking about. But, um, you know, one thing that's like the way in which these kind of barriers, hedgehogs and like whatnot work is they're they're an area denial tool. It's like uh, an area denial tool for vehicles. Um, and it makes 
military units slow down. It makes them take more time in clearing area. Um, they have to tow things away or blow them up. Um, and they also can provide, depending on the type of thing, cover for infantry in, in urban combat situations, which obviously can cut both ways a little bit. But there's a reason why you see these kinds of things in every conflict and also a reason why people put them up in protests. It can be very useful to deny the vehicles of the enemy access to an area temporarily. And a big pile of metal always does that 100 yeah. percent of the time. It requires something to deal with it. Yeah, that was something that was very kind of considered when there was an increase in like vehicular attacks uh during 2020 of like a lot of vehicles ramming into massive massive marches there was definitely a concerted effort to try to block off streets where stuff is happening whether that be like you know corkers for marches of people who specifically block off the sides of streets with their own cars to follow the march around or you know less less effective barricades like throwing a chain link fence in the middle of the street which yeah. is, I guess, better than nothing sometimes, but also maybe not the most effective thing. Yeah. Um, in terms of trying to like build layered barricades, that's not just you know one flimsy wall, but it's a, a series of things that can compress down. And when you're talking about barricades in a, a kind of militant situation, there's there's broadly speaking going to be two purposes. One of those purposes is to create a, a to add to the friction that you are attempting to create. For the enemy, and that's that's all insurg all insurgent warfare is about creating friction, right? Because friction degrades assets. It, it's over time. It it, it causes basically like okay, so say you blocked off a bunch of roads and you've added 15, 20 miles to the transport distance that this convoy has to go. Well, generally speaking, in the case of war, when we talk about war, it, it's assumed that about one mile is in terms of wear and tear, like ten plus miles, um, because of how much more difficult. The strain on vehicles is in those situations. So you've added a great deal more strain on the vehicles. That increases the chance that one of them is going to blow a tire, one of them is going to crack an axle, one of them is going to have an engine block go like blow or whatever. Um, which means over time, if you're doing this a bunch, if you're setting up barricades and you're effectively increasing or all the amount of travel time or at least the amount of idling time that forces have to go in by a significant amount, you're guaranteeing a certain number of those vehicles are going to break or be rendered inoperable in that time. And you're also, the other thing that they do is they allow you to deny area and funnel the enemy into a specific, to, into a place more advantageous for you, right? And this can be advantageous if you're trying to set up an ambush, uh, if you're just trying to buy time for forces to move back to a better position. Um, it can, you know, there's a number of, of, of uses for it. But if you set up a, a series of obstacles like this and guarantee that they're going to have to find an alternate route and you know broadly speaking because it's your terrain what kind of route they're going to take um then you could do stuff like drop throw a drone at them or if because of the the damage you've done to the roads and the difficulty you've how difficult you made it to advance they wind up just parked for a long time that's also a great situation to bomb people with a fucking drone which is by far the most effective weapons unit that we have seen built by civilians in this war, by the way. Uh, uh -huh. It's not Molotovs. It's certainly not paint. It is uh, civilian volunteers who put together combat drones using generally DJI drones that they have upgraded with uh, thermal imaging uh, cameras in order to see at night. And they have used 3D printed parts in order to drop bombs from. Um, and they have done carried out for weeks now, hundreds of extremely successful nighttime raids on Russian positions. And this has been effective for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the Russian military does not widespread have effective night vision. 
Um, we don't need to get it. The, the reasons for this are complicated based in a mix of like appropriations, corruption, issues with the technologies they do have, yada, yada, yada. But they do not have the capacity in large scale to carry out operations at night to the extent that the Ukrainians do. Um, and so you get when nighttime comes, these forces that were advancing in places like Kiev clustering up and huddling for the night. And then these hunter killer drones would sneak in at night and they are impossible to fucking see in daytime. I can tell you from experience at night, they're ghosts just dropping bombs on on armored vehicles and on groups of soldiers. Um, and these, you know, what you have seen with these units, which have been integrated, they are like started out as civilian volunteer groups. They have been integrated into the military to a significant extent. And I think what you do have some of this is conjecture on my part, but you've had a lot of Russian officers and generals killed generally because they have been communicating over open phone lines. And I suspect some of what's been going on is when they figure out where one of these guys is, they send some of these fucking drone units in to blow them up because it's not hard if you know where someone is to kill them with a drone in this way. I think the other thing to talk about in terms of, you know, building obstacles, building barricades is the whole cover versus concealment thing where a lot mm -hmm. of people think that if they hide behind a barricade, they're now impervious, um, which yeah. obviously isn't true if a drone's going to get you, and obviously isn't true for a large a large number of the munitions that get fired, whether they be bullets or tank rounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and I I think that's something in videos I have watched of Russian soldiers responding to contact. You have seen a lot of people in ambushes that they lost hiding behind vehicles. Um, which, if it's an armored vehicle, definitely can protect you from small arm fire. But if somebody shoots that vehicle with a with a javelin, you may find yourself next to a cooking off tank. Um, and uh, I've seen shit like people hiding behind fucking fences, which is terrible to hide behind. Um, failing to go to ground, which is always your best bet, is to kind of get behind a berm or something, get low to the fucking ground. And it's it's interesting to me, a lot of the worst videos of responding to contact that I've seen on the Russian side have been their, the Rosgardia units. I'm, I'm not great at pronouncing Russian, but they are essentially police special forces units. That actually makes sense. <laughs> yeah. They have every video I've seen of these guys handle being ambushed very poorly because they're not trained for that. They're trained to go bust into a house and arrest somebody, you know, like, yeah, this is not where they're what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> The other thing that Spencer really focuses on is this whole like um uh, sniper idea of of being afraid of someone of someone just cutting you down from above, which obviously kind of is, you know, more more of a thing with the drone stuff as well. But this idea of not even being good at firearms, but just having the threat of taking fire from somewhere that you can't see um, yeah. in terms of like knowing your terrain better than whatever invading force does and knowing how to set up spots where it's it's less you're less likely to get shelled um i mean yeah and that's that's very i mean this is very basic and old you yes. know military <laughs> doctrine but this is like you know this, the the way a sniper can work in a dense urban environment is you have a large number of guys and they are trying to move to a specific area and if they take fire um that limits their options from forward movement unless they're willing to just risk getting hit. And generally they're not. And then you find yourself kind of holding up for time to take out the sniper, which can be an involved and difficult process for just a single sniper. And yeah, that's definitely a thing like that. You don't have to be the fucking uh, Chris Kyle in order to effectively yeah. work in that kind of situation. Now, what makes that effective? Because if 
you just have a sniper attacking police officers or soldiers in an urban environment, generally speaking, there exists the ability to deal with that pretty fucking quickly. But if you have small units of snipers, kind of, of oftentimes just like civilians with hunting rifles, who are doing that within the context of soldiers also being resisted by other soldiers and dealing with like an active combat environment, then yeah, a handful of people with rifles can be a significant force multiplier. It's a lot extra to deal with. And I suspect shit like that has been part of why you have seen cities like Mariupol resist so long under overwhelming force is that there's a, a pretty wide comprehensive amount of of resistance going on in those areas um and yeah a, a single person if they're not like the only person engaging with the enemy in that in that area um can make it a lot harder for them to effectively respond to contact i think the the last thing i wanted to kind of get into today is the whole i mean this, this kind of ties into the weaponized unreality aspect of being like all of these people who are giving you know, unsolicited advice on Twitter.com, whether they be John Spencer, whether they be, you know, the wife of a former Marine, whether they be there we you go. Know, tank mechanics, whatever. Like everyone's everyone's doing this now and it's all seen as like completely valid, right? We're giving instructions on how to do urban insurgency online. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is totally fine. Yet when, you know, pr- when information from Hong Kong gets used in protest kind of uh, propaganda for ur- urban insurgency instructions, then it's like international like organized t- like terrorism yeah yeah um, if, if you're you telling know, people how to use fucking laser pointers yeah so like the the selective thing how you're like okay we're allowed to tell people how to do urban insurgency right now but when this is over or in the past it's it's, it's not allowed right you have john spencer who i doubt would be giving i, I doubt was a big fan of any black lives matter demonstration mm-hmm. um just yeah i, just I don't, don't know personally but <laughs> but i mean <laughs> i certainly doubt was giving people instructions on how to disable bear cats yeah <laughs> I, I don't think he was giving instructions on how to ambush police officers or, or you know anything like that so you had this whole like coalition of people on twitter.com giving all this advice out how to do urban insurgency and whatever well also you know whenever something is is happening like that where they live it is that that is obviously bad and obviously not a good thing whether you know for you know you could talk about whatever like ideological drive people have but i think this is just an interesting thing worth talking about in terms of yeah how we will off we will view you know this type of discussion of urban insurgency is always like a bad thing right it's always this thing that like terrorists do you're helping you know you're you're always you're rooting for the destruction of civilization or whatever um then it just takes a few things for you get you know an instructor at west point to start you know posting threads to help sell his new book on these very same topics yeah i mean there's i think a little degree to which i might push back on some of that not necessarily with spencer but i can remember during like the fed war in portland which was the the probably the part of portland that like most people are aware of when you had a bunch of federal agents snatching people it was the most warlike part of the summer you you had for this brief period of time a a lot of folks because i i took part in this like giving out advice on twitter to respond to and handle police munitions um that went i think that certainly went more viral than it would have gone in a different sort of situation that's true um and and i think you do have i think part of what you're seeing in ukraine and this is just sort of a general thing that happens online is when something a a a news moment blows up in a way that is like big enough it disrupts the norms and suddenly for a while you can talk about things like how to disable government armored vehicles and fight like yeah you know Re- reality suddenly becomes so much bigger 
And yeah. what is what is acceptable discourse suddenly yeah. expands out much bigger than what it usually does. It becomes a lot more permeable. And I, I do think broadly, like we're shitting on Spencer here because he's frustrating to me. Um, but I, I do think that like really, really broadly, um, it's good when stuff like it's good for people to think about, even if I, I, don't, I, I certainly don't. I certainly do not want there to be. I don't want anyone listening to this who has not experienced urban warfare to experience urban warfare. I will yeah, absolutely not. I will I will say that right now, but it is not bad for people to be thinking about and talking about the ways in which a civilian population can do damage to an invading organized military force. That's not a bad discourse to exist and it's not bad for people to be thinking in this way and it's not bad for the people who are potentially in power to have that in the back of their heads, you know? Yeah. I mean, like the one of the first things you sent me when I started working for Rick Adapt and Here was the was the city is not neutral piece um, on, yeah. on why urban co- combat is is hard. Um, so it's yeah, it's, horrible. Def- it's definitely <laughs> yeah. it's the thing that. Yeah, it's it's always it's it's worth thinking about, but you don't want to. It's, we're not trying to wish it on anybody. And I think mm-hmm. you can you can look at all of like the weirdos on the internet who have like, you know, the, this, you know, there's some degree of like Nazis who have done this, but also just like random other people who've like flown to Ukraine to help join fight off the Russians because mm-hmm. they think it's going to be cool and they'll be able to work with the Azov battalion or something who then get stationed to basically be cannon fodder because they're this like 20 year old from America who's never actually ho- held a gun before. I, I hope that one's true. It, it, it is just like a post because if it's true, then it means that someone in the Ukrainian government is consciously making the choice to use wannabe Azov veterans as cannon fodder, which is, which very is funny, funny <laughs> extremely funny if it's happening. Right. We don't. That's not that's not confirmed. Certainly. A, a percentage, probably not an insignificant percentage, of dudes who have done shown up to do this have like been like, "Oh my god, what the fuck!" Um, some of them, I'm sure, just didn't have much experience. I'm sure some of them were dudes who had experience being on the side with overwhelming air power, um, and were like, "Oh fuck!" But you also do. It's fair to note, like the the stories of people like having like freaking out go viral. Um, there's plenty of videos of like mixed foreigner units in heavy combat, including a bunch where you can hear U.S. and British dudes like yeah, fighting absolutely. in Russia. Like because a lot there's a lot of people who have legitimate like hard combat experience who have have volunteered to go do this. Yeah, the the one thing I also do find kind of uncomfortable is, I mean, not it's not super unlike what what, what we're doing now, though we're trying to come at it from a more uh, like critical standpoint, but like. Americans who maybe have gone to a protest or two, but no real experience just going on Twitter.com and talking about yeah. how they think beating an army is uh, best done. <laughs> how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and like, you know, if, if you look at like the, the OK, like the the times that like the U.S. has actually attempted to fight its own army. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the, the last time this happened was the L.A. LA riots in 92 and they got their shit pushed in like it. It 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 went really really badly for the people on the street. It streets. was really ugly. There was a lot yeah. of bodies. Yeah, and like and you know and part part of what you know and I I will say like part of what's I guess useful about this is like yeah this is I mean this is a thing that is I mean I wasn't alive for it but like a boat like Robert you were alive for that like like that 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 is a thing like in living memory the army has been deployed oh, yes. on American soil and one of the things that went wrong is that the people on the ground had basically no time. And this is something you can read from from like the army's accounts of this, is that 
Like the, the people that they were dealing with had no tactical experience whatsoever. They did it. They had no conception of tactics and the army was able to just sort of just very quickly crush them. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you don't want that to happen to you, yeah, like there, 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 there is a way in which this stuff is important to be thinking about, but also like, dear God, that is the worst shit. Like, yeah, yeah you don't and want that. Here, here's what's, what's important to understand about that. Anytime you are dealing with any kind of conflict, like physical conflict that involves violence, and, and that can be as narrow as like a protest, you know, where people are squaring off with the cops or an actual like full on military conflict. The winner is the person who is most disruptive to the enemy's Oda loop, right? Um, observe, uh, orient, decide, act. That's the loop that you go through when you are trying to decide how to act in any kind of a kinetic situation. Um, on the streets in a protest, one of the things where I, where we have all seen people be the most successful against cops is when you change the rules on them, is when they are in a situation they did not anticipate being in because they tend to freak out and they tend to respond ineffectively, Right. You do not want to, if you see them preparing to act in a certain way because they believe you are doing a specific thing, you ideally do not then do the thing they are preparing for because that is a situation in which you're going to wind up battering yourself against a riot line, right? Yep. Um, that's what the that's the core of the move be like water thing from Hong Kong is the idea that do not engage them in a way they are prepared for. And that, yep. is, that, that, is a, that is a piece of advice, broadly speaking, that's just as true in a war as it is in a protest situation. Do not meet but them on their own terms. <laughs> what this also means is that you don't want to be playing by a set of rules that are ineffective in the situation you're getting into. So like when you had protesters in 93 in LA engaging with the military, they were playing by the rules of how do you deal with cops and suddenly they were dealing with soldiers and yeah. boy howdy do, are the rules different you yeah. know um and likewise the russian military was trained and blooded to a large extent in conflicts in places like syria where again they had air supremacy um they had artillery supremacy they were backing the state that was fighting against these insurgents uh and so their soldiers gained the combat experience they had with every advantage in their pocket. Um, meanwhile, the Ukrainian military, if you're talking really about like, because we've talked about a lot of little things that have maybe had an impact on the conflict here and there, one of the things that's had the biggest impact on how the Ukrainian military has responded and, and comported itself in this war so far versus the Russian is for years, eight years since this conflict started, the Ukrainian military has developed a posture of having soldiers sign up for these brief contracts, sending and rotating them through the battleground in the Donbass so that when this war started, they had a huge number, more than anyone else in Europe, of combat veterans who got their experience fighting against a peer adversary when they did not have supremacy in artillery or air support when they engaged them. Um, and then the Ukrainian military very intelligently spread these guys out amongst their 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 units, uh, which is what you want to do. Any military is going to want to like spread out your veterans among units because you're not everyone's not going to be a combat veteran, but you want some guys who know what it's like to be shot at in every kind of unit that might get shot at because they stiffen the back of everybody else. And this is what so again, when when the war started, to get back to what I'm saying, the Russian military entered preparing for a police action, like the ones they carried out in Chechnya, um, like what they did have done for Assad in Syria, and they got a war. And the Ukrainians came into that fight prepared for a war. 
So you, you, it, 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 I think one of the things that is important when you look at, consider any kind of possibility of being involved in a conflict is you wanna know what are the rules your opponent is going in ready to abide by, right? What are the things they are expecting to happen? What is kind of the rubric with which they are looking at what they expect to occur in this conflict? And by God, you want to be going in there with a different one, you know? Um, and that, again, depending on how you do it, that can go badly or that can go really well. Because like I said, if you're if you're going and prepared to fight cops and you wind up dealing with soldiers, that's not great. Um, but if you have prepared if you are able to kind of lock your enemy into the kind of conflict that they're not ready to face, um, then generally speaking, you'll win. We have 20 years of experience in the war on terror of more or less that going down. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a good example of this also with the like with the IDF's uh, war against Hezbollah in 2006, where it's like the IDF is a really good army, mm-hmm. but they'd spent like, I don't know, like they spent like 40 years basically just sort of like – you know, they spend about 40 years doing police actions. Yeah. And then they run into Hezbollah and they expect Hezbollah is going to just, you know, they made Lebanon in 2006 and their expectation is that Hezbollah is going to go to ground. They're going to do a guerrilla war. And instead Hezbollah, like, I mean, they go into bunkers, but they stand and fight. And the IDF gets smashed. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, they, they, they pull out and they spend a bunch of time just like murdering people from the air. But like, they don't win the war. And like, yeah, like that, that happens a lot, especially with these armies that are used to dealing, used to doing these sort of police action things. And they lose to enemies that like, the the, the, the fact that the IDF lost a war to the Hezbollah is like, by like balance of forces, it's like, this is inconceivable. Like how on earth did they possibly lose this? But it's like, yeah, this stuff happens because they weren't like, yeah, they, they, they were, they were doing, they were doing this police action thing and they weren't used to, they hadn't fought an enemy that was actually going to stick in and fight them since like the seventies. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the great defeats in military history are because a, a a force came into a situation expecting a different kind of fight than what they got. That was a part of what happened to Napoleon when he invaded Russia, right? And the Russians did not respond the way that he expected a state to respond to having their capital occupied um, and effectively kind of starved him out. There was other shit going on there. Attrition had really depleted the the, the French military before it got there. But But yeah. Um, I guess yeah. The, how how I would want how I would want to wrap up this is basically saying like, I mean, all of that stuff regarding how this war has really prompted a lot of things that were seemingly more unexpected and seemingly thought to be previously more impossible. Um, in terms of how fast both rhetoric around these these types of conflicts can spread and morph, and the role in which like disinformation and misinformation is used for you know both both sides to 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 gain to gain ground on the other. And how, you know, relating back to it could happen here is term- in terms of like the urban crumbles or like, you know, the small, small like urban collapses um, and, you know, escalating, escalating like inter intercountry conflict uh, in various places around the world. How fast certain things can happen that we once thought are kind of more impossible or improbable at, at the very least, you know, yeah. how, how fast you can get people giving advice on how to take out armored vehicles on twitter.com how mm-hmm. fast you can get you know people like people who are you know seemingly are part are, you know seemingly not not tied to certain to certain like ideas or ideologies giving out you know information on types of types of ways to resist invading or oppressing forces it is uh it is an interesting kind of it's like case study is the wrong word because it is it's it's obviously having horrible effects with you know, thousands and thousands of people being slaughtered. Um, 
but it it is it is intriguing to watch how you know in terms of like the microcosm macrocosm idea of of eventually you know conflict if conflict breaks out in other places around the world in the next in the next few years how our current like social media landscape how our kind of rules around like urban conflict like urban conflict and all of these things kind of interact with each other and how we view yeah what is what is likely and what we you know who who you're going to predict is going to do x thing based on people invading a city that it's not theirs yeah um i mean i think in terms of stuff that that people can take out of this you know without necessarily needing to prepare to fight in an urban insurgency one of them is that anytime big shit happens and and more big shit is going to keep happening for us you have a window of opportunity through which you can get things across to people that they would not normally listen to. Yep. Um, and that is a really important time. And it helps to think about the kind of situations that might occur and the kind of things that you want to push out into the world. Because um, this is this is as true with climate change as it is with war, right? We're going yep. to have more disasters. And when those disasters hit, it will be easier to get people to talk about radical solutions to things like climate change. Yep. And it will be easier to do things like get out in the fucking streets and get large groups of people agitated. You know, we're, we're at some point, fucking God willing, we will have the climate change equivalent to what happened in 2020, where something so terrible and fucked up happens that a lot of people take to the streets. And hopefully we will succeed to a greater extent in forcing actual change than maybe we did in 2020. Yeah. But but that's that's something like that could very well happen. And so that's one of the lessons I think you can take out of this again without sort of obsessing over military technology or getting into gunfights with fucking soldiers is Ukraine is is hard evidence that that is the way the media environment works. You get these moments where you can really yeah. push some wild shit to I people. Mean, that's that's why I like the whole uprising or insurrection model more than the revolution model. Because the uprising model posits that basically you have, you know, base base society, based reality, you know, always at like the baseline level. Then an uprising happens. It's like it's like shooting up onto a graph. Suddenly mm -hmm. so many things that are just outside the normal way that we view, you know, systems of governance, systems of, you know, yeah. social control, so many things become so much more possible in this like heightened place. Yeah. Um, and that's what the uprising does. It gets things that were suddenly that were once so far away and once just only in the imagination. It almost it makes them so much closer. Right. Yeah. The, 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 there was this feeling in like July of 2020 during the height of the Fed war being like so many things feel possible in this one moment. Nothing is true and all is permitted. Like, yeah. you can you can get away with some shit. <laughs> yeah. And so using the uprising model. Yeah, it can really. And or or the or the insurrection model, like it can really it can really make things feel so much more possible than what they usually feel like. And th there's, you know, brief moments in time where massive social change can happen. And, you know, you have to learn how to recognize when those moments are happening and then organize effectively when they do happen. Yeah. Yep. Well, I believe that does it for us today. Um, yeah, I, we've been, we've been wanting to you know talk, talk about this topic for a while in terms of, you know, one of the fir very first things that started happening was various governments giving guides out on where to attack armored vehicles with Molotovs. You're like, oh, wow, this is this is intriguing to have a government giving out instructions. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is probably has some implications on how we view, you know, uh, uh, collapse in a, in, a, in a general concept. So, yeah, ever since that started happening, we wanted to talk about it. So 
Yeah. It, cer- it certainly leaves us with a lot to think about. And I, I didn't get to go on my rant about the structure of the Russian military vis-a-vis their lack of an NCO corps, but maybe we'll talk about that in the future. I'm sure we'll have enough time to talk about this in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, everyone, uh, I don't know, do do something productive. Yeah, do, do something productive. Uh, don't charge armored vehicles. Don't charge armored vehicles no. with paint. But yeah. maybe think about the different things you would like to get a bunch of people suddenly radicalized on Twitter to do in the immediate wake of a horrible climate disaster in which large numbers of folks are suddenly willing to take to the streets seemingly overnight. Maybe be thinking about that and and trying to talking with your buddies about it and being like, hey, if everybody gets out in the streets again, what kind of information do I want to spread? What yeah. would be good to get people talking about in that instance when they're suddenly listening for, I don't know, about two weeks? Feels like you get about two weeks. Two, honestly, yeah. About, that is, about that is two weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in the, in the wake of the new IPCC report, we, have, we sh- certainly have a lot to think about. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye. Bye. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. It's Goblin Mode! 
welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is today in goblin mode. Uh, you know what it's about. You've heard us say it like about 20 million times. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm your host, Christopher Wong. And uh, with me today, we have Juniper, who is a really Twitter shit post extraordinaire, <laughs> extraordinaire uh, on to discuss language, media, culture, the nature of reality and goblin mode. Uh, Juniper, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. It's going much better since Goblin Mode has <laughs> seized control of the world. We are it's, now living in the age of Goblin it's, Mode. It's the year of Goblin Mode, as the Drew Barrymore show said this morning, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been quite a time. I, I didn't realize just posting would like just posting would influence so much around yeah. me, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting time, for sure. Yeah, so, so I wanted to talk to you about sort of the absurdity that is goblin mode um and i i want to hold off on talking about what goblin mode like is or isn't for a bit because i think that's actually weirdly the less interesting part and i want to start with instead the story of how goblin mode became like a thing and why i am reading uh i i i keep i keep like every every time i look for more goblin mode headlines there's more goblin mode headlines like there is yeah, yeah. I, think, I think uh my favorite so far is from bloomberg it's a uh, diesel diesel prices have gone goblin mode forget crude oil this could be the real energy emergency yeah that that is by far one of my favorites too uh <laughs> the the full headline too if you search for that one is uh it, it's what you said but then it adds on uh thanks to the ukraine war yeah i never thought that i would see an official bloomberg headline with goblin mode and the ukraine war in the yeah. same I gotta say, that, that's just by far my favorite one for multiple that's reasons. Amazing. Actually, <laughs> the, the other part of to me that's extremely funny is that uh, so the, the the people who are doing these articles uh, keep getting asked. So someone is someone is asking like an intern to find a picture of a goblin, and they keep posting pictures of orcs, which is like enormously funny to me. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what they're searching to get those. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's, it's really incredible. <laughs> okay, so. Yeah, I guess I should, so we should start from the beginning of this story, which is, yeah, can you talk about your shitpost and uh, what you were thinking at the time when you made a shitpost that randomly, like, has has had months-long ripple effects on the world? Sure. I I, I think you were right, though. Like, the, the, the post itself, and that's, like, the least interesting part of all of Goblin Mode, in my opinion as well uh like just seeing the ripple effect is what's been super interesting and really funny to me but um sure yeah the, the post um basically i think it was like the day that um uh, what, kanye west and julia fox which just a quick note i i've never heard of julia fox before any of this <laughs> so i just I, like sometimes if like you, you know if twitter is all talking about one thing the most recent thing being like the will smith slap like everyone's talking about that so whenever like some like big event like that is happening and everyone's posting about it, I try to like think of some creative different post I can do, you know, just to get in on the the discourse or whatever you want to call it. So I just I I, I really don't know what compelled me to make a fake headline, but basically <laughs> I just I, I just decided to search. I think I was driving home from work and I just decided to search like Kanye West Julia Fox, and I just found the first headline and I just edited it to say um, Kanye West doesn't like it when uh, Julia Fox goes goblin mode, basically. And that's why they broke up. That was, that was the whole essence of the, of the post itself. Um, and I, I really didn't think too deeply uh, about it. 
beyond just making the post. And it just, it caught fire with like, I, I guess what we would probably call normie, normie Twitter, like people that aren't even like necessarily leftists or anything like us. Um, it just really caught a hold with the whole of Twitter. And uh, pretty much like most of the people that saw it, you can you can go back and check the replies. Most people think it's real at the time. Like yes. people posting it and replying about it all think it's real. And no one, like hardly anyone verified it. It, it was like kind of insane to see. <laughs> yeah, and again, you could just... Really you could just yeah, I think it's funny because again, like you could very you could just, you could just Google this, right? Like you could just Google it and it'd be like, oh, wait, hold on, this isn't real. But like no one did that. And it was like... Yeah, yeah, like you could have just easily searched the, the the main part of the headline, like Kanye West to Julia Fox. It was literally the second or third headline. Yeah, that I searched. You could have found the same website, same author, but seeing that it wasn't the the correct headline. Although that does remind me, when there was a, the initial article about my post, um, I forget who wrote it at this point. I think it was um, the focus. Yes, that's right. It was the focus. They, um, they, they, for some reason made the assumption when they decided, when they decided to talk about my tweet, that the, the website, like the headline that I made, made up the original website, like edited that part out. So they thought that my headline was real, but it was just <laughs> edited and taken away. And yeah. so that also affected what some people thought about it too. Like they thought a lot of people thought it was really real. That's, that's what's insane to me about this yeah and like you know and like like vogue like picked this up this was just like a thing that that like everyone <laughs> yeah. believed was real everyone was just reporting on it as news and the, the, there's yeah, so much yeah. like there's so much like incredible stuff about this like part of it you know uh, so one of the articles uh, that that gets published about this, like after, so like there, there's this initial period where everyone is running around going like, "Oh my god, it was goblin mode," and then Julia Fox has to make a statement that's like, "No, I, there's, there was no goblin mode. No one said this." Yeah, yeah, that's that's the interesting about the, like the evolution of goblin mode, uh, like stemming from my post specifically is. At first, the coverage was talking about whether my post was real or fake, and talking about that aspect of it but as time has gone on it's kind of evolved away from that like you you won't see any goblin mode article talk about the original like julia fox tweet that jump-started this whole thing anymore it's kind of like shifted away from that initial uh that initial post which i found really interesting that that's what's sustaining this i feel like yeah i I wanted to read a uh I, i wanted to read a passage from one of the, or I don't know why I'm calling it a passage. It's just like a sentence. But I mean, read part of one of the articles <laughs> that that came from, from the the initial surge, which is from the streetwear company called High Snobbity. Uh, don't tell me if I'm in, like pronouncing that uh, wrong. I well, okay, that's that's not true. Twitter. If I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, my Twitter is at I write okay. Uh, yell there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I want I want to read this quote because I think it's interesting. It, it, so the, the article they have this whole thing that's like, okay, they, they they get to the denial, they post your tweet about like, oh my god, I can't believe Julia Fox had to respond to this, and then they say, I'm not saying Fox was lying, but wearing a borderline not suited for work dress, a purse trimmed in human DNA, and DIY eye makeup to an Oscars after party is goblin mode to a T. And and I think this brings up an interesting question, which is to what extent was Goblin Mode real in the first place before your sort of meme to went went viral? 
So, so like the phrase itself, you mean? Like yeah, what, yeah. Like at what part of the, the phrase existed before my post? Yeah, and, and I, I think it was also like, what what were you thinking? Like, did you have like a conception of what Goblin Mode like was before you made the post? <laughs> so, so the only thing I had in my mind at that point, um, it's, it stems from specifically. Um, do Do you know the the user on Twitter, uh, Hottie Pants? Do you happen to know that guy? Uh, I don't think so. No, uh, he goes by, I think his ad is like punished pants or something like that. But anyways, uh, he, he at around that time, he was posting a lot about like goblins. He was, he would post a lot about like goblin time and like, it, oh, it's goblin time. And he would just make like a, a bunch of just like posts like that. So goblins were on my mind at that point. And then I forget his username, but his, um, I think his username is, um, uncontrolled I, I, for, I forget his user i'll have to tell you afterwards or something I, I i don't remember off the top of my head but he he made a, a post that went viral uh something to the effect of like um your honor um i was going goblin mode at the time you know that format <laughs> that's like you're, you're in court but yeah. the excuse is like oh i'm going goblin mode it really in, in my head that's really the only reference i had so I, I didn't make up the phrase a lot of people think i, I made up the phrase yeah. goblin mode which i i definitely did not um but I, I think just there was a lot of people posting about, about goblins around that time, like early mid-March. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I just in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to say goblin mode on this, this <laughs> shit post about Julia Fox. I, don't, I really don't know why. It's just the first thing that popped in my head. And whenever something pops in my head, like a, a tweet idea, and I laugh to myself, I'm like, okay, I should post it. I don't know. And it seemed to work. <laughs> D- did you end up – so one of, the thing, one of the other things I think is really interesting is that right – so – Okay, so you you have you have your first wave of like it's the goblin mode thing, and then you have your second wave of articles that are trying to explain what goblin mode is. And I was I was wondering if if you'd see if you'd actually even seen uh the post I just li- I linked to the chat. Um, there was like like the, the 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 thing I'd seen from goblin mode before this like all started was this like Reddit. It was, a, it was someone on Twitter had a tweet that went viral about goblin mode and it was about just like someone, it was about this Reddit post of like someone creeping around their house and pretending and acting like a goblin. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I didn't see that until I made my post, like in my initial uh, goblin mode post. Cause I think someone linked it under my post and I was like, Oh shit, is this like a thing? Like this is actually <laughs> like a thing. And then it started popping up more because people saw that reply and were like, Oh shit, this is like actually a thing. And it, to my surprise, it like totally worked out for me. Like everything kind of just came together in a really insane uh, fashion. Oh, that's another tweet too. The one that you linked the, the that's yeah. when I was going, that's when I was in Goblin mode. That, that came before my tweet too. Yeah. Ha- so, had you, had you seen that one yeah, before, no, before you made it? I follow her. Uh, I do. I, I follow Kel Gore. I might've seen it. I don't remember. I remember the, the other one I was referencing before. Um, I, I might've seen this one though. Yeah, like I, I, I think like that. That was what just, what was interesting to me about this was that like the moment it went viral, there was this whole sort of like attempt. Because so there was an attempt to figure out what it is, and then there was an attempt to like back project a history on it. And so you get a lot of these articles, and you get a lot of people like I don't know, like I would talk to people about this, and they would like you know, okay, so they do this thing where it's like, okay, so they 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 go to know your meme, they look at the the Google trends, and then like the people sort of like. You know, okay, like there was an Urban Dictionary thing from like 2009 that was like a completely like a weird sex thing. It was like completely unrelated to this, but it was interesting to me the way that people like 
Okay, so you you have this thing that goes viral, right? And like you're just fucking around. Like there's no act. Like it just sounds cool. But then, like yeah, there, there's an extent to which it, it becomes this like you know it, it it gets into the sort of like virality machine. And so you have all these journalists who like have to cover it, right? Because like you know the the way the journalism model works is okay. So you 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 have this trend, right? People can see it trending. You see something on Twitter. Uh, you do like four sets of Googles and you write an article about it. And it's like, well, okay, because they're trying. You're trying to like capitalize on on the clicks as fast as possible. So when someone Google's what is Goblin mode, it's like, okay, your thing comes up. But it's interesting because it's like it's like they they have to fill the content in because there isn't any. Yeah, yeah, that's what was interesting about the specific uh, that, that first one, the focus article. It it was just a lot of like filling in where there was really nothing. Yeah, that, and that's it, what's interesting about that. Yeah, and then and then like after that, like all the other articles are like like you you get to see this proliferation of sort of of how the media works, where it's like, okay, so you have the initial article, the initial article Google some stuff and is basically just making it up because they're they're trying to like give coherence or like give a meeting to an empty signifier, and then after that, it's like all of the other articles are just copying off of the first article, and you get this like Ouroboros of like everyone just is repeating the same thing over and over again, and none of them seem to understand that like it was not the the thing that they originally talking about was just kind of I mean I can say just it a was, funny phrase. Yeah, it was just a funny just like, phrase. <laughs> <laughs> like that's really all it was. And uh, it, it's it is interesting to see how it is just able to proliferate off of as you yeah, as you were saying, they just Google search urban they find an urban dictionary and it's like yeah. hey, I'm putting that in my article. Urban dictionary is a is a good source. <laughs> yeah and, and like I, I think it, this this is like I mean I think there's there's like a few interesting things here. One of which is about how, yeah, I'm like I I had this before. Like I'm not sure if I actually talked about this on the show. So the day of the Atlanta shooting, uh, Garrison and I spent a lot of time trying to like track down the shooter, and there was there was this like fake Facebook post that was going around, and you know Garrison and I had spent like a lot of time looking for this guy, and we okay we were, we realized he's like, this guy just doesn't have a Facebook right. And so we were like, so like, I, I was like, look at this. Like I, I saw this fake Facebook post and I was like, oh, this is fake. And then like a bunch of, uh, a bunch of like, a bunch of like actual journalists, like found, you know, people have, like, cause journalists have been passing around the fake Facebook post as like, mm, oh, this okay. is a post alleged to be a thing. And then, and then suddenly they were like, oh, oh, hey, this is fake. Hey, you can see all these things like, oh, look, it's like, uh, you know, like there, there was like the, the, it, it was pretty clear of it, like his face had been copied and pasted into like a thing that's supposed it was supposed to look like a Facebook post. Like, there was all these like minor details about it that were just wrong. And it was like, okay, so this isn't real. But the the media cycle of it was like all of these people saw my Twitter post that was like, this is fake, and then they just wrote a story off of it and like never mentioned that that, that they literally got it from like me fucking around on Twitter. <laughs> like and it was like it, <laughs> And it's like, and it's like you look at this stuff, and it, and the the extent to which these people are just like these people who are journalists who are you know supposed to be real journalists are just like woefully unprepared. Even people, even who people who are extremely online, like wind up being woefully unprepared to deal with like anything. Like they're woefully unprepared to deal with anything of any complexity, or deal or like figure out that they're being like hoaxed. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're 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 really right about that. I mean, I mean, I think this it's I don't know what I would call this phenomenon, but it, 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 it there's definitely something there where it's like they will see something 
like I, I don't know i don't know what it is about specifically twitter that like i feel like that's where a lot of people get news just in general but i feel like a lot of journalists just assume anything that they see maybe i'm overgeneralizing but if they see something on twitter even if it's like a joke like they'll just assume it's real or something i'm not i'm not entirely sure like it's super easy to make a fake post i do it all the time i, I make all sorts of like fake fake things most of them are more obvious than goblin mode i guess yeah but i don't know they're i don't want to say journalists are too trusting yeah of, well and, 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 and space, but. I, I will say like there are times when it's genuine like when, when you first started posting the headlines of like the actual twitter articles that were about goblin mode i, I like i didn't even bother looking them up because i just assumed they were fake yeah no, I was, I was, like, a, lot, a lot of people told me that. Yeah. like i think specifically the, the the one that like most of my followers realized that they weren't fake anymore was the one that was like um as a disabled uh, woman, goblin mode, is, th- this goblin mode trend is really problematic. And people, people decided to look that one up and were like, oh, it's real. And then everyone was like, wait, were all these other ones that you were posting real? And I'm like, yeah. fucking yes, they were all real. The yeah. only one was the, the Julia Fox one. All yeah. of them have been real. All it of was... these different <laughs> agencies have been, or all these news organizations have been writing all this insane shit about nothing <laughs> yeah and, and there's there's you know i mean i think that th- this one is funny just because like yeah i mean like it's goblin mode right like it's 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 just funny like there's no like you know but but i mean i think that there's an interesting thing that happens with with the the, the specifically the disabilities one because the disabilities one isn't like it's basically about something completely different that the goblin mode thing spawned which is that like like the, the other thing that happened with goblin mode was that okay so people saw goblin mode and then particularly on like tiktok um, I, I don't I don't know if they knew where it came from, but like people like people turned goblin mode into an actual thing where like it became this thing about like uh I like I I think I think this is also influenced by like some of the like shit post answers that you gave the media people that were like goblin mode could be whatever you want. Uh it's when you aren't awake in the pandemic or like you're not doing your makeup in the pandemic or whatever. <laughs> and, like <laughs> yeah but 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 it's yeah, interesting I'm not, I'm not sure how much that like fueled like the I, I really don't know if the tiktok thing came before or after i, I only I th- really i think it's after the whole tiktok yeah was from, it after okay from, from what i've seen it, it it's it seems like it, it actually became a thing after and, and that was really interesting to me too because it was like it, it's this way in which like you know okay so y- y- you start running into these sort of like fundamental problems about the nature of reality where it's like Okay, so we, we made this thing that is fake, right? But then it became real because enough pe- enough people believed it was real that it it turned into a thing that people actually use to describe stuff. And then you know that that's how you get to like you get a bunch of people complaining about how like there there was an article that was like the Great Resignation and Go in Goblin Mode are like the two great threats to employers as they try to force yes. people back to work. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's like. It, it, the goblin mode like self manifested into reality. Like I feel like a lot of journalists are saying like people being lazy and like you know how the, the, the whole meme of like oh no one wants to work anymore. Yeah, yeah, I feel like a lot of people are trying like attributing like oh not wanting to work and being lazy to goblin mode, and it's it, it self manifested through the media or TikTok or whatever whatever it might, yeah. might be. I, I truly don't know, but it, it's it's become a thing now in in a really strange way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think this is like an, this is an interesting way of looking. Like you know, like this was the whole sort of like 
like in 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 terms of like okay in in insofar as posting can actually affect reality which it can but not as much as people seem to think like Mm -hmm. there are there are there are people who like seem to think that like the three letter agencies care what they post on twitter which is like (laughs) it's like no 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 hold on hold on if if we post correctly interventions won't happen it's like if you seen the cia like but like like there's there's this whole thing where it's like you know i mean this it it, 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 okay this this is gonna be the like someone's gonna pull this out of context and be like ah hey look at how dumb chris is but like you know like this this is kind of what happened with trump where it's like like, this is this is like what the meme magic was is like if, if you just meme something long enough you can kind of turn it into reality by just sort of convincing enough people that it's real that it and and you know and once you've done that like you you have effectively made the thing real Right. And what's interesting about yeah, this that's... one is, is this like, cause like a lot of people like do that on purpose, right? Like this is how like, pro- this is like, there's a lot of propaganda stuff that works like this or like, you know, this is like what the, the, the meme, like 4chan Trump bullshit was but, like, you did this like completely like as a joke on accident. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't intend this. I just, made, I, was, I just wanted to make a one-off joke. Yeah. I, I didn't think that would happen, but, but you're, you're, you're totally right about the whole, like, I don't, I don't know how much like the Trump meme magic was really a self manifestation of him kind of just winning the election and pe- becoming popular with a certain group yeah. of people, but it definitely feels like, uh, like that self manifestation of like posting to, to a certain extent really can become real. If it just like hits a certain zeitgeist of some yeah. sort and like, they just get, I, I think a crucial part of it is it needs to get picked up by the media and taken seriously by journalists specifically. Yeah. Because the, the, the thing that really, uh, I feel like broke the camel's back for goblin mode specifically was the first journalist that uh, reached out to me because she, she wanted to interview me about the whole, the whole experience. Like, and, and her coverage of it was about the whole fake meme thing and then how it became sort of a thing in, in that aspect. Um, and then um, from there, they all, a, a lot of different journalists and uh, websites referred back to that article. And now it yeah. seems to be the, the, the one that everyone's referring to now is the, the Guardian article about it. That yeah. seems to be like the media's favorite piece about it, which is the one that talks more about it being like a lifestyle trend. And I, I, I think that's where it really went off is when like some people took in the TikTok aspect of it and kind of manifested it that way. I think there's a couple of interesting political consequences of this. One of which is that like, like Twitter as a platform isn't really, I mean, since Trump got banned, it's kind of like, it hasn't really been where most like stuff is happening. Like TikTok is exploding. I mean, you still have like the boomers on Facebook. Like it it hasn't, (laughs) like it hasn't been the sort of like driving force of politics that it normally is. But the one thing that it has is that all of the journalists are still on there. And that means that like, yeah, like there's all these weird political consequences where like, yeah, you can sort of like, like you can just sort of will things into existence by convincing journalists that it's real. And that's, I I think, really scary in a lot of ways because, you know, like the the people who are really, really good at this sort of manipulation are right wingers and right wingers have sort of like, like, I I don't know, like I, I, people are probably mad about me for this, but like one of the things that I remember from like, Oh God, was this 2016? Was like there was this whole discourse about like uh like there's a bunch of ra- like all a bunch of people are really mad about like there being a black stormtrooper in Star Wars. And oh God, yeah, the whole the whole last yeah, yeah yeah. The, the, the thing that was interesting <laughs> about it was like uh yeah I think I think that was just, yeah yeah there the, there the, the thing that was interesting about it was like 
So I know people who like who like looked into it beforehand, and it was like the only people who were talking about this. It was like people who were confused because they thought that stormtroopers were all clones, and were like, "Wait, why?" Wait, what? <laughs> and then, and the other thing, the other the other group of people who were mad about this was Stormfront, right? And Stormfront was able to like turn this into like like a, a discourse, like they they were able to conv- they were able to convince journalists that like this was a real thing that like a significant number of people are mad about, and then it like actually turned into a thing that a significant number of people are, were mad about because you can sort of just like like you you can start these like panics, and like this is one of the things we were talking about in in our trans episodes where like you know a a a, a fairly small network of well funded people can cause like enormous swaths of the U.S. to just lose their shit and get mm-hmm. extremely violent and get like, you know, and, and, and the, the specific thing they're mad about changes like pretty frequently, but you can just sort of like, if, if, if you're able to manipulate the media well enough and you, you know, there, there's other ways to do this. Like, you know, you could do it by like weird memes. You can do it by, you know, being the cops or just like having press releases that you send out. You can have, you can do it through like these sort of like AstroTurf, like, uh, I don't know. You have like an AstroTurf intellectual, like what's his name? Mark right. Rufo. But it, it, it's it's interesting to me that like it, they they all seem to work like the, the the pathway through it all seems to be very similar. Which is you what you do is you convince a bunch of media people that something is real, and then once once they start taking it seriously, it sort of manifests itself into reality. Yeah, no, that that is what I realized what was happening. Like I, I one of my initial points that I was trying to make after. Um, the whole goblin mode thing after the first article came out, I was like, it, it really made me realize like how potent fake, I, I hate saying this phrase just because it's become such like a, a nothing sort of phrase, but like fake news, how, how easy it is to just, yeah. like what if, what if instead of goblin mode, I decided like, maybe, let's say I'm like a crazy right winger and I had this weird zeitgeist moment just causing a panic about like trans people. And I, I made like a fake tweet, like, that you would we see that happen all the time like trans people a lot of people hate us um and yeah. it would be super easy put it in the right community um make this fake tweet or a fake headline and people right wingers specifically will go wild and it'll uh, really influence the discourse i mean look at the the current i mean it's it's kind of over now but the the, the last i think it was last week the swimmer the the trans swimmer yeah, that yeah. won the, the women's competition i mean the, the amount of vitriol that was able to be created over that. Yeah. Just like imagine what, like, as you said, like a well-funded tight network of, um, that's, I don't know, but I, for lack of a better phrase, like fake news creators, just yep. all, all they need to do is put something out on Facebook. The boomers see it and then it's over. <laughs> it yeah. What, what, real to them. What, what, one of the things I learned about, like, while I was doing research for weirdly an episode about Reverend Moon was that like, People figured so. Th- this is sort of like this is like how the Republicans came to power. Like they, they figured out you could do shit like this, and like uh, Robert Figueri, like in in like in like the sixties, figured out that like if you just if you sent like you you, you could just send letters to like like well, they weren't I guess they weren't even boomers at that point. If you just send letters to old people that would say stuff <laughs> like uh, uh, Planned Parenthood is uh, harvesting baby fetuses, you could just get them really mad. And it's like, and it's funny because yeah. you know, oh, yeah. in the sixties, like he's he's doing this like by mail, right? Like he 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 is <laughs> mailing you a chain letter. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it, it it became this like chain email. Yeah, yeah. It's like just like it's like, it's weird because you can watch them invent this, and then it's like, oh yeah, this guy was funded by like a a 
weird cult guy who was trying to take over the world who was being backed by the Korean CIA. And it's like, I don't know. It, <laughs> it, it gets into this. And yeah. It, 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 all, it all sort of comes back into this weird thing where, yeah, I mean, I, I like one of, one of the, what the sort of political transformations I've had since I started working here was like, I didn't take like sort of similar to what you were saying. Like I didn't take the like weaponized unreality, like fake news stuff like that seriously. And then it was like, right. you, you cover it every day and it's like, Oh my God. Like, the like the the weird like like watching like 4chan like invents the actually i don't know if it's 4chan it was i one of watching like just weird right-wing like message boards invent uh like the, the whole <laughs> ukrainian bio lab thing which like grand oh, Glenn God, greenwald yeah. now tweets about and like like oh, like <laughs> the, the, like the official state media of russia and china are like talking about these bio labs and it's like it, it, it's turned into this weird like like thing where like yeah like like actual countries with like nuclear weapons are like basically using shit posters as like as like a way to do propaganda and it's it's just like really weird i don't know it, it's it's just really weird and incredibly disturbing media space to live in yeah, it's it's like a, it's a weird synthesis of uh shit posters just posting online to like whatever audience and i guess like media of some sort not maybe not like um in the in the case with the 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 bio lab i don't know too much about that especially because i'm blocked by glenn greenwald so i, I don't <laughs> see a lot of his stuff <laughs> yeah but um <laughs> but yeah no it, it's it's interesting how how kind of interlocked there and and to your point about er, earlier about the the whole trump meme magic thing like i i didn't take that too seriously at the time um like in 2016 i was like oh all these silly right-wingers making these yeah. dumb memes like this isn't going to do anything. I, I don't, I truly don't know if it really had an effect, but I mean, it's, we can't really ignore the power that just simply manifesting something, even if it's artificial can actually have a hold on certain people. Um, as you were saying with the, the mailing letters, I mean, if, if you just say enough, if, if you say something enough to the right type of person, they'll just believe it. I mean, yeah. it's it's not hard to lie to people, as horrible as that is to say. It's really not yeah. that hard to lie to people. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, that's the, the the whole sort of like everyone yelling groomer like constantly about trans people. It's like, yeah, they just lied over and over again, and like half the people who are like saying this stuff are actually pedophiles, and it doesn't matter because <laughs> you know if you just like do this shit over and over again, you get these, you get you just get these like hate mobs, and it's. Yeah, no, the, the, the right wing, right wingers specifically are phenomenal at creating hate mobs. Yeah, it, it's kind of incredible to, to witness. It's it's really scary, but it, it's it's an incredible thing to see. There's not really an equivalent, I would say, on the left in in the way that um, even in, maybe in liberals, there's an equivalent, but like on the on the left, there's not really like an equivalent to like some like a mob in that way. Yeah, that I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think that's, you know, like, okay, th th there's always an extent to which, like, these stuff, the stuff has, like, material constraints. Like, you know, I, I talk about, like, constantly on this show, the fact that, like, this is, like, this is the stuff that the neocons believed, and then they ran into the material constraints of the Iraq war, and their entire project imploded. And, mm -hmm. like, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why this is easier for the right is that, like, there's, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's always a, a political base for them that is there that that they can access fairly easily which is okay they, mm -hmm. they 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 have access to like you know that they have access to 
like a, a, a vast swath of petite bourgeois. They have access to a bunch of, of white business owners. They have access to like this sort of like this like white professional class. They have access to the sort of like white gentry class. And like those people can very easily be sort of like whipped into a frothing rage. And like part of it is because like that, that's essentially, that's just what their, that's what their class interest is. That's what the sort mm-hmm. of like, like their status, the racial, racial hierarchy, like brings them to do already. And you could sort of like, you know, if you just shuffle a bit of coal on it, you can, you, you could make the fire go. Absolutely. And I mean, I, it's talked about a lot, I'm sure, but like the, the, the one thing that is really powerful is Fox news. Um, yeah, yeah. Fox news will pick up literally anything. Like I saw, yeah. I saw a post on Twitter just the other day, a screenshot or just a, just a picture of uh, Fox news. And they, they cited the, the libs of TikTok Twitter account. Yeah. When talking about school classrooms. It's like, what is that? Like, no, like right wingers will just take the source of a random Twitter user that has a TikTok. So, that, to, that takes messages from random people that message them, and then that's their news. Like that like, is just insane. To 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 be fair to Fox News, which is not a thing I will ever say again. <laughs> uh, it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if that whole thing like well because so the the I don't know if you saw this the the, the lives of TikTok person is like is is that that thing is run by an old Bush administration person. I did not know that. Yeah, no. so it, it it wouldn't. I mean, okay, like there there there's probably a three in four chance that they just saw someone who's like trying to own the libs on TikTok. But there's like a one in four <laughs> chance that like all the the old like Bush Network people like know each other, and that's why they're promoting it. Which, yeah, I know that's that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. I mean, they have to know that they brought. Well, that maybe I I don't know. Like it's 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 one of those things where it's like it it becomes. I don't know. It, it becomes really difficult to to know the extent to which the right believes. Yeah. Well, how organized they are and to the extent to which they believe what they're saying, because right. part of that, like that becomes like, you know, if, if, if you know who's behind that, it becomes easier to sort of be like, Oh yeah, we're just sort of playing a game, but it could also just be right. like, nah, this is, this is content that we like. Uh, we were all too lazy to go <laughs> or just message the person to see who they are. Like, <laughs> I mean, they had the specifically in this case, the, the libs of TikTok lady they had her like on fox news once talking oh yeah yeah so I, they, they referenced her multiple times so they they have to know her yeah they, they probably I, do. I do yeah they have yeah to. that that's that, that's another technique that they do a lot which is that they they, they take someone who is like it you know like an like an old part like an who's literally a republican operative right mm-hmm. and just launder them as an actress actually the, the funny part is you you see like like the new york times and shit like all the main street outlets do the same thing too where it's like oh right yeah well well the, like Anytime you see an article that is like, I was a Democratic voter, but I'm going to vote for the Republicans, uh, nine times out of 10, that person is a Republican operative. And if you Google their name and look hard enough, you can just find it. And it's like, it's, and, and, and that's yeah, everything where it's, you're so right. Yeah, that's another thing where it's like, I, I don't know whether they, whether they're just lazy and don't check or whether they're just sort of like doing this kind of like, I don't know the, what, 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 whether they're doing this on purpose because I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing with journalism. Like it's, it's difficult to like when someone screws something up, it's, it's difficult to determine a lot of times whether it's malice or whether it's, they're just the only research they did was they Googled something. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, 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 feel like, I feel like in the, the, the realm that we're talking about right now with like right wingers, I think a lot of it obviously is pretty malicious a lot of the time. Yeah. At yeah. least with like, 
but in terms of like the whole goblin mode situation where that that stemmed off just from like random like guardian whatever articles i think i think that was just more of like uh oh let's kind of try to explain this thing that is apparently now a trend and we're manifesting it in real time yeah. I, I do think there's a distinct, like a dis- distinction between that. I, I feel there's no like uh, <laughs> like with Goblin Mode, there's there's no nefarious aspect of it. But it, it, that like technique can be used in a very nefarious way, and I, I think that manifests in in the most easy to waste, uh, easiest to see ways in right wing media. Yeah, I, I do want to also mention that like the, the, the yeah I I think I said briefly like the people who do this the most often are cops, like the cops and if if you see a story about the police in a mainstream newspaper and you see the same story in another paper it's because they're basically printing a press release and you know i mean this this gets used to like launder just straight up police lies about shootings uh they manufactured like the entire crime wave thing like the whole thing <laughs> about people taking boxes off of trains it's like yeah y- y- you look into it and it's like yeah there's these like the, the there's these sort of like shadowy police networks of people who are basically running i mean they have enormous budgets to do this too like they they have these enormous um like departmental uh like public outreach budgets and those public outreach budgets are basically them running information ops on us which is incredibly fun (laughs) you know that that is absolutely like a real phenomena i i I don't know too much about it specifically in cops but i know i know the white house does that all the time they've they've done that forever too where it's like oh there's a white house leak and it's like, oh no, they wanted people to see this. This was yeah. entirely intentional. <laughs> yeah, they they try out balloon stuff a lot, and that's I don't know. And like the, this is this is go- go- goblin mode is like the fun version of looking at how all of this <laughs> stuff works, but this stuff happens with stuff that is extremely deadly and has real world consequences. And yeah, it's it's some it's something we need to be thinking about and trying to. I don't know if use for good is the right thing, but like it, it, it's something that we need to be really conscious of as we're dealing with, you know, a bunch of fascists trying to murder everyone. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's been the most interesting thing about this to me is watching like, I, I hate calling it this, but just for lack of a better word, kind of like uh, goblin mode is like being manufactured, like manufacturing consent in real time, like from the genesis of my post watching it in real time, seeing all these articles come out and kind of all tie into each other and refer back to each other. It's been, it's been kind of eye opening about this topic that I, I think a lot of leftists kind of know a lot about, like in terms of like media manipulation and you're, it's, you're right. When you said it's like the fun version of that. Yeah. And and, and it has been the fun version of it, but deep down it's like, Oh, this is kind of like watching watching like how they did like the this might be dramatic, but like how they did the Iraq war in real time. Like this is on some level, a very similar strategy, yeah, like media yeah. strategy. And I think, I mean, I think, I think there's with specifically goblin mode. I, th- I think there's, cause it's like the Iraq war. There was a lot of just malice there. And, yeah, but, but in this one, it's like, yeah, like the, the, you know, not all of the media, like all of them, like, okay. It, 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 in order for something that's completely fake, to get traction it doesn't require everyone involved being malicious what it requires is one person saying a thing and then a bunch of journalists being too lazy to actually look into something and then just you know basically reprinting the article but like rewording a few things which happens constantly right and yeah and and that like you know it 
the, the, the thing I think that's scary about that is it, it reduces the number of actors who actually have to be involved in a thing for it to just sort of like take off like this, which, mm-hmm. yeah, like, and I think like there's, there's an extent to which, okay, like it rocks, like something on that scale is pretty rare because it requires like an, an enormous amount of buy-in from a lot of people. But there's lots of small examples of this stuff that just happens sort of constantly. And that stuff, like, yeah, I mean, you know, as we've been talking about, like that, that, that kind of thing with small numbers of actors and then people just sort of lazily reprinting articles like that stuff. Right. I mean, I think the best example of this currently, at least just in my mind, because I am trans, the the whole trans panic that's happening right now. I I think that's a really good example of it. It was just where like some website will print this certain thing and then it becomes a hysteric panic. Yeah. And then more websites more people keep talking about it. Yeah. Like I think the best, the most recent example that was that that spa where it was like some person claimed like made it, made a bunch of claims where they were like, they, they might have seen a trans person maybe and it oh, turned right. into just like literally mobs showing up at this spa, like anti-trans mobs, just like a bunch <laughs> of fascists showing up, a bunch of like, and like yeah, and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, is, that, that affects reality. That, that yeah. affects people. That, that really affects people. Yeah, and and like the 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 other one, the other one that, that we've talked about in, in the trans episodes is people. Do people are starting to uh, do these kind of stuff with gender clinics, and it's you know, oh it's god, all, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, like that that's only a matter of time before they start killing people. Like Yeah, as sad as that is to say. Yeah. The media can easily whip someone into frenzy to do that. I mean, it, we've we've seen that in the past with I think as you referenced before, like the whole like abortion. Yeah. The whole like what was it, in the nineties and the early two thousands, the whole yeah. abortion panic. Yeah, I mean we saw we we saw people die over stuff like that. Yeah. It's it's, it's insane. Yeah. They did bombings mm-hmm. like yeah, and you know, and the other thing is that like they're winning, like they are on the verge of after this like half a century long battle, like they they are on the verge of overturning Roe v. Wade. They are, and, yeah, yeah, like you know that, and that's I think a really grim thing for the left, where it's like, like what one of the asymmetries here is that like if if a leftist like assassinated the head of ICE, right, <laughs> like. There would like I I would be in prison in like a day and a half. There'd be like fifteen people who'd be shot in police raids. Like yeah, yeah. But you know, but like when, when the right wing does terror, like does terrorism, like just murders abortion clinic providers, it works. Mm-hmm. And that's a really grim asymmetry, but it's sort of the reality of of the situation that we're in, right? And yeah, that, that reminds me of the, this is a while ago. This was during the Black Lives Matter protests. I don't even remember why he was on the, the um, feds radar, but there was the dude, I think in Portland and there was like a, there was like a raid and they just shot the dude in the street. Yeah. Do, you, do you happen to remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happened yeah, again. They in, uh, yeah. They just murdered him. And then like, it happened again yeah. with uh, Winston Smith in, uh, uh, in Minneapolis where like the like the cops were mad at him because he was like he was one of the leaders of the stuff that's happening in Minneapolis, and they just walked mm-hmm. up and shot him. Yeah, and that's insane. Yeah, and it's it's it, it it is a really bleak look at 
you know, how this country actually works, which is not really what I expected this episode to be ending up. <laughs> and I was like, we'll do a fun episode about Goblin Mode. And now it's like, yeah, here's the state just assassinating people and uh, they're going to keep doing it. And also they're going to like to start bombing abortion. Not, well, I mean, keep bombing abortion clinics and start bombing gender clinics. And it's like, yeah, well, let's uh, hope that doesn't actually happen. But, but yeah, I, I think, I think it was, it was uh, our point was that it was like, we've seen that happen in the past. Yeah. Yeah. By, by the arm of the, the reactionary media fueling this hysteria through it doesn't even matter if it's real or fake stories that's that's the main issue is it can be totally yeah. fake and it'll it'll just fuel um, hysterics against anyone any any target yeah and it's just that easy like yeah like what the, the we should probably close out but like the the, the one that's been fun for me and i by fun i mean dear god has been the the the, the fucking the wuhan biolab shit which was like literally oh like like literally this 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 like literally this whole thing was a psyop by Steve Bannon, who was like, This is how we can have Trump win the election by 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 <laughs> uniting everyone in like anti-Asian hate. And like it worked. Like well, I mean, okay, he, he lost the election, but like, you know, all of like eventually this 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 just like completely crank like absolutely bat shit. All of the people who are advocating for it are like like they like they're like mushroom scientists or they're like people who like you know like like they're they're like weird ivermectin truthers like all these people you know like yeah, were, yeah. Were, were legitimized by the media and like that had that had an enormous impact on the last sort of two years of anti-asian violence like that's like that that's the thing Absolutely. that made it get as bad as it did and again it was it's just completely fake there's nothing it's it's they're, they're just they're just you know like a, a bunch of fascists made up a lie about a plague so that they could try to win an election by like murdering Asian people. And yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's, and that's, that's the interesting thing is that if you look at um, like polls about like, Oh, how do you feel about China? Like you go back even just four years ago, most people were like, I, I don't have exact numbers on my head, um, but most people, it was like maybe split like, Oh, like, China's kind of scary or like China, China's okay. But like most Americans at this point, even like a lot of liberals do not like China. Like it's like yeah. deep in the red, do not it, like China. It's like, it was just manifested through the whole, maybe not all through the whole Wuhan um, lab, but just the last few year, years of both Biden's government and Trump's government ra- uh, ratcheting hard against yeah, and- um, China and just like anti China's or even anti-Chinese, like, people sentiments. Yeah, and there's an interesting thing there, too, where it's like, okay, so you, for the first about... So this pivot starts in, like, 2018 when the, when Trump starts a trade war, right? And <laughs> there's this interesting thing where it's like, for the first about two years of it, it was like the views about China were changing, but the actual level of anti-Asian violence wasn't doing much. But then when COVID hit, it was like... Because, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of like an abstract thing, right? It was like, okay, well, we don't like China, but, like, there was nothing... There, there wasn't like a a super strong like thing you could point to to directly tie it to Asian people, and then the moment the moment the pandemic started, and then the moment the like Wuhan shit started, it was like suddenly there was like a concrete thing that you could point to, and it was that was like, hey, look, it's the Chinese people. The they're they're they're, they're spreading the plague. They manufacture the plague in a lab. It's because they're dirty, and like the the, the moment it became that was when mm-hmm. everything just like all the attacks skyrocketed like that that's 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 when like everything just sort of like really like kicked off and right that was, that was like, the hysterics that was like the targeted hysteria of yeah. 2020 and then most of 2021 
I would say, yeah, yeah, and it's well, you know, the 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 fun thing I'm bracing for is like, yeah, this looks like it's going to be the Democrat strategy in 2022 as well as Republican yeah, strategy, right. and it's like, oh, hey, uh, more of us are going to die. This is going to be fun. So, yeah, oh gosh. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's kind of scary. Yeah, this this started out as a fun episode, but <laughs> yeah, it's now gotten less fun. So, I guess it was still a lot of fun. It was still a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do Do you have anything else that you want to say, or do you want to tell people where to find you? Um, I don't really have anything to say necessarily. Uh, all I really do on the internet, at least, like my whole my whole internet presence right now is just on Twitter. Um, if you want to follow me, it's um, at meow meow meow. Um, I don't know if you'll have like that linked or anything. It's kind of yeah, hard yeah. to spell with the last the, the whole you it's m-e-u-w but um that, that's really all i have is just my twitter <laughs> yeah that's all that's all i really do online i mean it, it it is extremely funny and every once in a while you'd create goblin mode as an actual thing which <laughs> is yeah it's fun <laughs> yeah no I have, I have a good time on twitter people people complain about that website a lot but yeah i i since I joined in like 2019 or whatever, I, I haven't looked back. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I've met a lot yeah. of cool people. I, yeah, I've, I've known of you for a while, but it's nice to actually talk to you. Yeah, you too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, it was a good time. I, uh, yeah. So uh, go goblin mode. I uh, don't <laughs> let the fascist murder trans people. I, uh, yeah, uh, this this has been it could happen here. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod. Uh, yeah, have fun. Find cool trinkets. Suppress the turfs. <laughs> got it. You got to have the trinkets. You got to find the, the. That's what Goblin Mode's all about: getting trinkets. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. Bye, bye, folks. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.